Graphic Audio. A movie in your mind. Graphic Audio presents White Sand, Volume 1, by Brandon Sanderson. The graphic novel direct to graphic audio adaptation by Rick Hoskins. Narrated by Terence Aselford. With performances by Alexander Strain, Don Ursula, Jason B. McIntosh, Frank Britton, Yasmin Toazan, Holly Vagley, Peter Holdway, Paul Reisman, Kenyatta Rogers, Bradley Smith, Eric Messner, Dwen Washington, Jacob Ye, Michael Glenn, Zeke Alton, Lawrence Redman, Tim Carlin, Joe Mallon, Jonathan Church, Matthew Pauley, Ken Jackson, Nanette Savard, Richard Rowan, Chris Genebach, Joy Jones, Tony Nam, Scott McCormick, Thomas Keegan, Nick DePinto, Rose Elizabeth Supan, Mort Shelby, Steve Wanall, Chris Stinson, Alyssa Wilmoth, Nora Ashradi, Ren Casey, David Fernandez, David Zitney, Tia Shearer, Andy Brownstein, Michael John Casey, and Chris Davenport. White Sand, Volume 1. The wind caressed the stark dunes with a whispering touch, catching fine grains of sand between its fingers and bearing them forth like thousands of tiny charioteers. The sand, like the dunes it sculpted, was bone white. It had been bleached by the sun's harsh stare, a stare that never slackened, for here, in the empire of the white sand, the sun never set. The planet was called Taldane, and it hung in space, never turning, but still like a stone. The sun glared upon the dayside, watching the sand dunes like a jealous monarch and ever ignoring the dark side. Two moons orbited the planet, their passage the only way to mark the hours. And down there, beneath the relentless sun, a group of white-robed figures met on the stretching sands of the Curla region. There were dozens of them in all, standing in the natural circle of rocky protrusions that was their sacred place beside Mount Crater. They watched, dumbfounded, as two men argued as only family can argue. Don't tell me you intend to go through with this foolishness, Kenton. No answer? As ever. Just that scowl of contempt, as though you know better than your father. Need I remind you that I am Lord Mastral, boy, and you would do well to pay me the respect of your contemporaries. Lord Praxton looked older than the sand itself as he stepped away from the DM's twenty gold-sashed mastrels. Though he had seen barely sixty years, Praxton's skin was dry, wrinkled like a fruit that had been left out in the sun. <sighs> Come with me. His son, Kenton, was nineteen, with close-cropped blondish hair and a look of rebellious conviction in his eyes that was all too familiar to his father. He wore the white robes of a Sandmaster, but unlike most others of his kind, he wore no colored sash. His sash was plain white, the sign of a student who hadn't yet been assigned a rank in the 
RPM. Tied at his waist was another oddity, a sword. He was the only person in the group of Sandmasters who was armed. His skin, too, was subtly different, darker, his inheritance from his mother's Darksider genes. Praxton led Kenton away from the group, just far enough to conduct the rest of their conversation in private. Look, boy, I have suffered your insolence and games for eight years. The Sand Lord only knows how much trouble you've caused. Why must you constantly defy me? Perhaps because I'm good at it? You have refused advancement four times now. A move that has made you, my own son, into a fool and a novelty before the rest of the Diem. And an embarrassment to me. Inept students might spend five years as an acolyte, but never in the history of Sand Mastery has anyone remained a student for eight. Lord Master, once a Sand Master has accepted a rank, he's forever frozen in that place. So? All right, boy. Despite the pain, despite the shame, I will admit that you've worked hard. The Sand Lord knows you haven't any talent to speak of. But at least you did something with the small amount you have. Give up this stupid decision to run the path, and tomorrow I'll offer you the rank of Fen. Fen is the next lowest of the Sandmaster ranks. A rank above under Fen, yes, which you have declined now for four years. Thus an improvement. A Fen you shall be, despite your shortcomings. No. I think I want to be a Mastral. Taisha! Don't swear now, father. Wait until I run the path successfully. Then what will you do? Boy, you're inept enough to make the hundred idiots look brilliant. Eight years ago, no one thought I could even be a Sandmaster. And now you've been offered a respectable rank in the Diem. Running the Mastral's path won't prove anything. It's meant for Mastrals, not for simple acolytes. The law doesn't say a student cannot run it. I won't make you a Mastral, Kenton. Even if you find all five spheres, I won't do it. The path is not a test or a proof. Mastrals run it if they want to, but only after they've been advanced. Your success will mean nothing. You'll never be a Mastral. You aren't even worthy to be a Sand Master. Praxton's words burned away Kenton's doubts like water in the sun. If there was one person who could fuel Kenton's sense of defiance, it was his own father, the head of the Sandmaster Guild. Then I'll be an acolyte until the day I die, Lord Mastral. Don't you see, child? You can't be a Mastral. You don't have the power. I don't believe in power, father. I believe in ability. I can do anything a Mastral can. I just have different methods. Different methods? <laughs> a sword? No Sandmaster in all of history ever needed a weapon. You spent too long with your little friend in the tower. That's a brute's tool, fit only for the vulgar profession of soldiers. I repeat, I can do anything a Mastral can. Then remind me, how many ribbons can you control today, boy? After eight years of training, how many? One. One. Ribbons are how we control sand, boy. How we function. Kenton knew this well. By infusing the sand with power, a long ribbon formed, which could be used as a tool, a weapon, or even as a spring to raise its user into the air in a limited form of flight. The more advanced one's abilities, the more ribbons a mastro controlled. 
and you with just one ribbon. I've never known a Mastral who couldn't control at least 15. You're telling me you can do as much with one as they can with 15? Yes. Why can't you see how preposterous that is? You're right. I'll just have to prove it to you, Lord Mastral. What? Now you listen to me, you foolish boy. The path was meant for Mastrals, and most of them don't even use it. It's too dangerous. Kenton ignored the old man, instead approaching another Sandmaster who was standing a short distance away. His short frame cast no shadow, for the sun was directly overhead here, in the jagged rock lands south of Mount Crater. The Sandmaster was bald and had a slightly fat, oval face. Around his waist was tied the yellow sash of an Undermastral, the rank directly below Mastral. The man smiled as Kenton approached. Are you sure you want to do this, Kenton? Yes, Alloran, I do. Your father's objections are well-founded. The Mastral's path was created by a group of men with inflated egos who wanted very desperately to prove themselves better than their peers. It was designed for those with massive power. Mastrals have died running it before. I understand. As Kenton spoke, one of the waiting group padded across the sand to speak to him. Kenton, a moment? What is it, Traben? Traben had joined the DM at the same time as Kenton, but he had swiftly advanced to the level of Mastral. Even out here, in the windswept Curla, he appeared immaculate as always in his robes and golden sash. Traben had gone bald early in life and kept what hair he had close-shaven, accentuating his firm, square face. We've been friends since we were both accepted into the Diem as children. Traben, please don't try to talk me out of No this. one who's run the path has ever revealed its secrets. No one! You can't know what it is you're getting yourself into out there. It's just a race through the Curla. How bad can that be? Lack of water, steep cliffs, that's not so much of a challenge, is it? Not to an accomplished sand mastral, maybe, but you? If I don't do this, Traben, my father will never see me as anything other than a failure. And when you get yourself killed, you'll confirm he's right. Then better dead than a coward. I hope the Sand Lord watches out for you, my friend. Because Aisha, you're gonna need as much help as you can get. Thanks for the vote of confidence, best friend. Shraben speaks sense, you know. I know, Ellerin, but I need to do this. All right, then. It falls to me to mediate your run. A group of us will watch as you move through the path, evaluating your progress and making certain you don't cheat. We cannot help you unless you ask. And if we do, the intervention will end your run where it stands. You see this? Iloran had pulled out a small red sandstone sphere from his robes. Yes? There are five of these spheres hidden on the path. Your goal is to find all five. You may start when I say so. You have until the moon passes behind the mountain and reappears on the other side. The test is finished the moment you either run out of time, or you find the fifth sphere. Above, the moon circled the sky once per day, hovering just above the horizon the entire time. Soon it would pass behind Mount Crater. The moment the moon reappears, your run is over. Kenton would have about an hour, a hundred minutes, to run the path. We will count the spheres you have found, and that is your score. I understand. You may not take your Gita with you. As he spoke, Iloran held out his hand to take Kenton's water bottle from his side. Take his sword, too. No, that is not in the rules, old man. Rules? 
A true Sandmaster has no need of such a clumsy weapon. It's not in the rules, Lord Mastrel. I'm keeping it. I'm afraid that he is right, Lord Mastrel. The victory was small, pointless even, but it gave Kenton a moment's satisfaction as the moon began to disappear behind the mountain, signaling the start of his run. Get moving. And may the Sand Lord protect you, young Kenton. Sure. Why not? By tradition, the Sandmasters had always been atheists, but even they might turn to the Sand Lord when it came to a lost cause, like him. The Mastral's path began atop the highest point of the rock formation, a jagged spine reaching out over nothingness. Standing there, Kenton eyed the unforgiving terrain before him, its sharp chasms and unscalable overhanging walls, all dabbled with the residue of wind-blown sand. There were eyes on him, watching from the high peaks that surrounded this unforgiving parcel of land, rising atop spiraling ribbons of charged sand. Okay. Stay calm. You can do this. As Mother would say... Kenton changed dialect, speaking the words in his mother's own Darksider tongue, one he spoke as well as he spoke Daysider. Let the world guide you, or you'll always be fighting a foe you cannot hope to beat. The advice was little comfort. Above, the moon passed behind the mountain, signaling the start of Kenton's challenge. As it did, Kenton began to move, watched from afar by Iloran and others. For the first few steps, he moved quickly, fired up to succeed, and show his father how capable he was. But then he slipped. Whoa! Whoa! And the enormity of the danger struck him as he saw how far he would have dropped had he not recovered. Then, with more care, Kenton moved on, searching for the first of the hidden spheres. Remind me again why I thought this would be a smart idea? Eight years ago, Kenton had just been a child, scared by the stern adults who stood before himself and the other applicants in the Curla Sands. A dozen forms waited to be tested, clothed in identical brown robes. They had their hoods pulled up against the wind, but it was easy to tell from their small frames that they were children like Kenton, barely into their second decade of life. The boys and girls stood uncomfortably, shuffling with nervous feet as the winds whipped at their robes. They knew how important this day was, the significance of what was about to happen. Present your sand. The command came from a white-robed mastrel called Tyndall, a senior mastrel who looked as old as the rocks protruding from the sand around them. As one, each child pulled a handful of white sand from within the bag they had with them. They had to hold tightly to keep the increasingly powerful wind from tearing the sand away and scattering it across the curla, Kenton recalled. His father had frowned, as if his simple displeasure could force the wind to abate. This testing took place close to the mountain crater, one of the few places in the curla where stone jutted free from the sand. Here, the wind was usually blocked by both mountain and surrounding cliffs. Further down the line, two Mastrels had tested a boy the same age as Kenton, instructing him in quiet voices that were almost lost upon the wind. Well, child, tell the Lord Mastrel your name. Traben, sir? Traben? You're the son of a lower Sandmaster, aren't you? Yes, Lord Mastrel. 
Now, show us your mastery so far. I'll try. The boy stared at the sand in his hand for a moment, a brief flutter of his hood revealing the look of concentration on his face. You are aware that you may begin, Draven. Ah! Cupped protectively in the boy's open palm, the sand began to glow faintly for a moment, then turned a dull black like the charred remnants of a fire. Senior Mastral Tyndall nodded sagely, meeting Lord Praxton's gaze. Ah, a good start. Yes, he displays at least moderate power. The Lord Mastral will find a place for you in the DM, where you will learn proper mastery of sand. The testing continued, some of the boys producing glows similar to Traben's, some barely managing to turn the sand black. Overall, however, it was an unusually strong batch. They would bring much strength to the DM. It was a sudden flash, one so bright that the onlookers blinked in surprise, trying to clear the bright afterimage from their eyes. The two Mastrals performing the test stood stunned before a small child with a shaking hand. A remarkable display. I haven't seen one so powerful in years. Who is that? Dryl, son of Reinst Dryl. Hmm, a profitable catch then, in more than one way. Eventually, it had been Kenton's turn. I believe you know the last would-be Acolant? Your son, Kenton? Hmm. As his youngest child, Kenton was the last in a long line of disappointments, not a single one of whom had exhibited any talent for sand mastery. It was an unvoiced mark of shame that Praxton, the Lord Mastral, had been unable to produce a single sand master child. It was unheard of, scandalous even. Rumors abounded that it was because his wife was from the dark side, and that she had polluted the family line forever, poisoning the family tree at its roots. Young Kenton had heard the whispers, and he wanted more than anything to prove those rumors wrong, to prove everyone wrong. Proceed. Yes, sir. I'll show you. The boy looked at his sand, a look of total concentration on his young face. Praxton held his breath, waiting, excited in spite of himself. The boy stared at the sand, his teeth clenched. Praxton felt his excitement dribble away as nothing happened. Finally, the sand gave a very weak glimmer, and then it faded to a dun black. Did I see something, or imagine it? All of Kenton's pent-up determination and righteousness had been channeled into that one spark, and it had proved to be no substitute for actual ability. Though he knew he betrayed no look of disappointment, Praxton felt the senior mastrals around him grow stiff with anticipation. I'm sorry, Lord Mastral. It's nothing. Not every boy is meant to be a sandmaster. But this was your last son. Yes. Take them away. So this was Praxton's legacy. A Lord Mastral who couldn't produce a single sandmaster child. He would be remembered as the man who married a woman from Darkseid, and thereby sullied his line. Those who have any skill may enter the Diem. The rest will choose another profession. Quickly now, out of the wind, all of you. The Sandmasters moved quickly, their feet sinking easily into the swirling, fine-grained dunes beneath. They were eager to seek refuge from the furious elements. One form, however, did not follow the white-robed Mastrals. 
Small and slight of frame, Kenton remained in the increasingly violent wind. I will be a sandmaster! A short distance away, the line of retreating mastrels and would-be inductees paused, several heads turning in surprise. You have no talent for sand mastery, boy. Go home. You saw! The law says I have enough! You've studied the law, have you, boy? I have. Then you know that as Lord Mastrel, I am the only one who can grant advancement in the Diem. And it is I who must give his approval before any Sandmaster can increase in rank. Every rank but the first! You... <clears throat> you will not find it easy in the Diem, boy. Kenton did not move. Lord Praxton was increasingly aware of how bad this looked for him to be challenged by his own son out here in this sacred place. By Sands, see reason. He needed to end this now before it reflected any worse upon him. Fine. You may join if that is your desire. It is. Thank you, Lord Mastrel. Join and fail is what he had meant, of course. Join, fail, and wash out. That's what he had really wanted to say, Kenton suspected. So here he was, a failure in his father's eyes, washing out in the most suicidal manner he could envision, tackling the Mastral's path, an almost impossible challenge for even the most adept Sandmaster. But if he was going to fail, he wouldn't make it easy. Kenton had spotted the first sphere, hidden amid jagged points of rocks, sharp enough to pierce a man's body. Kenton took a firm grip on a rock above and then leaned down, stretching out as far as he could and reaching for the sphere. Come on! For an advanced Sandmaster, the operation would have been the casting of a single ribbon to pluck the sphere from its ledge, but Kenton chose to rely on physical prowess rather than exert his sand mastery. Got you! Kenton pulled himself back up to the pathway above. That was one. Kenton put the spear safely in his bag and moved on, keen eyes searching the rocks. Hey! You want humiliation? You may just as well ride high on the top rather than cower behind it. If they heard him, the other sand masters did not answer. Kenton quickly found the first two spheres. The red sandstone globes had been so easy to locate, in fact, that he began to worry that he had missed something. Draven, you will be disappointed. You thought this would be hard. Despite his good humor, Kenton knew that he didn't have time to go back and recheck his steps. Either he found them all on the first try, or he failed. That determination drove Kenton forward as he ran across the top of a rock ledge. Around him, the strange formations of stone jutted from the sand floor, some rising hundreds of feet into the air, others barely breaking the surface. The scenery was familiar to him. The Sandmasters came to this place every year to choose new members and award merits to old ones. It was almost a sacred place, though Sandmasters tended to be irreligious. None of the Kurla's Kirstian inhabitants came to this place. Its sand was far too shallow to sustain a town. In fact, few even knew of its existence. It was a place of the Sandmasters. And for four years, it had been a place of embarrassment. 
to Kenton, at least. Four years of standing before the entire population of the DM, presenting himself for an advancement that would not be granted. He knew that most of the others considered him a fool, an arrogant fool. At times, he wondered if they might be right. Why did he keep pushing for a rank he did not deserve? Why not be satisfied with what Praxton was willing to give him? Life in the DM had not been easy for Kenton. Sandmaster society was ancient and stratified. New students were immediately given positions of leadership and favor based on their power. Those with lesser ability were made the virtual servants and attendants of those more talented. And such was a situation that continued up through the entire Sandmaster hierarchy. To them, power was everything. Kenton had watched the other accolants in his group and seen how easily Sand Mastery came to them. They didn't have to stretch themselves, didn't have to learn how to control their sand. Their answer to any problem was to throw a dozen ribbons at it and hope it went away. Today, Kenton intended to prove that there was a better way. Aisha! He stopped abruptly. He had run out of ground. Directly in front of him, the sand-covered earth ended in a steep chasm. The chasm sunk as deep as his social standing in the DM, a reminder of how much this moment mattered to him. It rose again, perhaps fifty feet away. He could barely make out a flag flapping on the other side of the gorge, a marker to indicate the direction he was to take. And so the real task begins. He reached down and grabbed a handful of sand from the ground. Another sandmaster, one more powerful, could have leapt the chasm, propelling himself through the air on a stream of sand. Kenton didn't have that option. So instead, he took a few paces back and then ran straight for the edge, jumping off the cliff. Here goes! He plummeted toward the ground, his white robes flapping in the sudden wind. He didn't look down, instead concentrating on the sand clutched in his fist. Come on! Do this! The sand burst to life. With an explosion of light, the sand changed from bone white to shimmering mother of pearl. Kenton opened his hand as he fell, commanding the sand to move. Go! Go! It shot forward, forming into a ribbon of light that extended from his palm toward the swiftly approaching dunes below. When the sand had reached the ground, he commanded it to gather mass from the dunes below and move back up. A second later, there was a shimmering line of mastered sand extending from Kenton to the ground. Got you! He was still falling, but as he commanded the sand to push, his descent slowed. The sand worked like a shimmering coil, slowing him more and more as he approached the ground. He came to a stop just a foot above the surface of the dunes, then stepped off the ribbon and dropped to the ground. As he did so, he released the ribbon from his control, and the shimmering sand immediately darkened and fell dead. It was no longer white. It was now a dull black, its energy spent. Another Sandmaster, one more proficient with his abilities, would have done things in a flashier way, perhaps even smoother. But Kenton had control, and that ensured he could do things that seemed almost impossible to his contemporaries, who commanded dozens of ribbons to his one. Kenton jogged along the bottom of the ravine, forcing himself not to slow despite the fatigue of sand mastery. 
He was beginning to regret his insistence on bringing his sword. The weapon seemed to grow more and more heavy as he ran, dragging at his side. <sighs> this is costing precious time. Sixty minutes gone already. <sighs> he licked his lips, which were growing dry. Sand mastery didn't just take strength, it required water, sucking the precious liquid from the body of the Sandmaster. A Sandmaster had to be careful not to master to the point that his body took permanent damage from dehydration. Kenton reached the second cliff and looked up, gathering his strength. In the distance he could see a group of white-robed forms, the Mastrels, evaluating his progress. Look at him down there. It's painful to watch. He won't be able to ascend the cliff. It's too high. His powers are an embarrassment to us all. His father should be... Shh! Words carry on the wind. So I should be silent, Aloran? Even when it's a truth, his father already knows? Lord Praxton will reach that decision. He's humoring the boy, that's all. The evaluating Mastrels were too far away to be heard by Kenton, but even so, he could sense the finality in their postures. You think I've failed already? They assumed he was stuck. It was well known that Kenton could barely lift himself a few feet with his sand. Of course, that much in itself was amazing. No other Sandmaster could do so much with only a single ribbon. Amazing or not, however, it wasn't enough to get him to the top of the cliff, which was at least a hundred feet tall. Ignoring his doubting audience, Kenton reached down and grabbed another handful of sand. Where are you? He called it to life, feeling it begin to squirm and shimmer in his hand. Ah! There! Where you always are! The sand shone brightly, more brightly even than that of a mastrel. Kenton could only control one ribbon, but it was by far the most powerful ribbon any sandmaster had ever created. This had better work. He let the sand slip forward, dropping to the ground like a stream of water. There, he gathered more sand, calling to life as much as he could handle, enough to make a thin string perhaps twenty feet long. This time, however, he didn't form the sand into the ribbon. Instead, he created a step. Okay, so I can't lift myself the way the others do. The higher a Sandmaster lifted himself in the air, the more sand was required, and Kenton could only control a relatively small amount. He could, however, hold himself in place. <sighs> Don't rush it. Let it happen. He stepped onto his small platform of sand, pressing his body against the rough stone cliff face. Then, holding on as best he could and not looking down, he began to inch sideways, dropping sand off one edge of the platform and replacing it on the other. Above, the invigilating Mastrels watched with a mixture of amusement and frank astonishment. Is he using his sand like... like a staircase? I believe so! <laughs> and here in a challenge where speed is the order of the hour. Perhaps we should help him. Relieve him of this foolishness before he hurts himself. Aloran, what do you think? No. Let Kenton have his moment. When he fails, he must know it was his failure and not from our intervention. It's what his father wants. And what if he dies? Is that also what his father wants? We shall hold ourselves for now. He must request our assistance, but if he falls, we will catch him. If we cannot, then we are no more worthy of being Mastrels than Kenton. 
Kenton was concentrating on making his sand cling to the cliff wall. He slipped it into the cracks and clung to the rock's imperfections, rather than pushing it upwards against the ground, creating instead a single step. Slowly, Kenton moved to the side, sloping his platform of sand just enough that he moved in a diagonal direction up the wall. High above, the Mastrels watched with growing discomfort. This is becoming embarrassing. The boy's a failure. Eight years and this is all he can do. At least he's innovative. This innovation we do not need. He looks ridiculous. Sandmasters are supposed to flow and dance, soaring through the air in clouds of radiant sand. Not creep up the side of a wall like a sleepy sandling. Still, it's working. He's almost at the top of the castle. And now he's stopping. Exhausted, do you think? I don't know about Kenton, but my patience certainly is. <laughs> Kenton had stopped, but not from exhaustion. Or at least not solely from exhaustion. He had noticed something. A small ledge about ten feet down the side of the cliff. Perched on the ledge was a small red sphere. There you are. And you'd have stayed hidden too if I'd moved any faster. Kenton climbed to the top of the ledge, then shook his rectangle of sand into a ribbon and sent it to collect the sphere. Guided by his commands, the rope of sand wrapped around the sphere and brought it back to its master. You see? That's three. Just two left. Unfortunately, judging by the position of the moon, he had barely 30 minutes left. The group of Mastrels watched him with dumbfounded expressions as he jogged past the marking flag and located the next one in the distance. The rocks were growing more and more frequent now, forming caverns and walls of stone. Where are you? Kenton's eyes searched for any hints of red as he hurried along the high path. The next sphere couldn't be far away. If he guessed right, the path wound in a circle, and he was nearing the place where he had started. You have to be here. Unless I missed you entirely. Aisha, I couldn't have, could I? A short distance away, several lines of glimmering sand marked his silent followers. True to Mastral form, each of them was making a huge display of power, gathering as many ribbons of sand around them as they could manage. While it wasn't actually possible to fly with sand mastery, powerful Mastrals could launch themselves in extended leaps that could span hundreds of feet. Each jumping Mastral left a trail of sand behind him, sand pushing against the ground to form a means of propulsion. The Mastrals stopped atop a pillar of rock a short distance away. Kenton slowed his jog to a walk, watching them with careful eyes. The place they landed looked too predetermined to be random, which meant... The sphere's close. You're baiting me with it, wanting to see what I'll do. A short distance away, a large wall-like section of rock extended from the sand. It was filled with fist-sized holes, each one extending back into darkness. With a sinking feeling, Kenton realized that this was his next test. No fair! Any one of those holes could hold a sphere! If he had been able to control two dozen ribbons, searching through the holes would have taken no time at all. However, using his single ribbon to do the same would probably take longer than he had left. Yet, it appeared as if that were his only choice. Ha! <sighs> Kenton brought a handful of sand to life. Maybe I'll be lucky and choose the right hole first time. Yeah, because luck's been so kind to me up till now. 
Or maybe there's another way. Kenton's eyes skimmed the rock wall. One thing he had learned from his lack of ability, ironically, was that sometimes sand mastery wasn't the answer. His eyes almost passed over the solution before his brain registered it. A small pile of black sand. There were only two things that could change sand from white to black. Is it water? Or sand mastery? He smiled, approaching the discolored sand. It wasn't pure black, more of a dull gray. It had probably been recharging in the sunlight for a couple of hours now. A few more, and it would be completely indistinguishable from the white sand around it. Kenton raised his eyes from the sand, looking at the wall directly above it. Just over his head, he noticed a trail of black grains sitting on the lip of one of the holes. Aha! Let's see what's been turning the grains here. Kenton reached into the hole, retrieving the red sandstone sphere that was hidden in its depths. Though there was a smile on his lips when he turned to look back at the Mastrals, inwardly Kenton was worried. If the Sandmaster who had hidden the spheres hadn't been careless, if he had used his hands instead of sand mastery, I'd never have found the sphere. Still, he couldn't help feeling a sense of satisfaction as the Mastrals jumped away, twisting ribbons of sand carrying them into the air. Just one left! If Kenton found it, he would have succeeded in a task that baffled many Mastrals. As he moved to begin running again, Kenton noticed one of the Mastrals had stayed behind. Even though the column of rock was far away, somehow Kenton knew that the stooped-over form belonged to his father. Kenton stared up at Praxton's face. Pitiable. Your failure will be the talk of the Diem, Kenton, and it will be my failure for raising you. But you've come this far. Our mutual embarrassment is almost complete. He could not hear the words, but Kenton knew from the way he was looking at him that his father, the Lord Mastral, was not pleased. Kenton stared at him for a long moment, trying to project his defiance. I'm doing this! You haven't beaten that out of me yet! Eventually, Praxton raised his hands, summoning a dozen strings of sand from the floor below. They twisted around him like living creatures, their bright translucent glow shifting from color to color in the way of mastered sand. When Praxton jumped, the ribbons threw him into the air, and Kenton was left alone beside the rock wall. <sighs> Just one more. Kenton was running out of time. Not only would the moon soon reappear, but he was beginning to feel the effect of his sand mastery. His mouth was parched, refusing to salivate, and his eyes were beginning to burn. His brow, which had been slick with sweat during the beginning of the run, was now crusted with salty residue. The price the Sandmaster had to pay, the fuel that his art burned, was the water from his own body. Remember the lessons you were taught, Kenton. A dry mouth and eyes are the first signs that a Sandmaster is close to doing permanent damage to him or herself. The first thing a Sandmaster learned was to keep track of his water, to pace himself so he didn't overmaster. Students who even approached the point of overmastery were severely punished. Damn them for taking Magito! Without the water bottle, he risked dehydration through overmastery. But no doubt that risk was all part of the Mastral's path. Kenton cast such thoughts aside. It would be over soon. He looked around at the rising rock walls. I'm almost back at the start. 
Don't tell me I missed the last sphere. Up ahead, Kenton could just barely make out the rock plateau where he had begun the path. The Mastrel stood atop it, waiting for him to approach. <sighs> Kenton paused, leaning against the smooth rock wall. His breath was beginning to come with more difficulty. Both running and sand mastery sapped strength, and his dry throat made each breath painful. The Mastrels held his guidot and its water. He anticipated that first drink with such ferocity that he almost didn't care that... I failed. There's nowhere left to look, and no time to go back. He had done well. Four out of five was a respectable number. Some of the Mastrels, he knew, had only found three. But finding four would prove nothing, not to his father. Praxton wouldn't see the four spheres his son had found, but the one he had missed. Uh! His eyes were dry, so much so that it stung to keep them open. He probably only had ten minutes left, no time to turn back. That was barely enough time to make it back to the rock wall where he had found the previous sphere. He opened his eyes and stood upright. You've done better than anyone expected. Keep telling yourself that, Kenton, when your father throws you out of the diem for good. Kenton kicked away the wind-blown sand that had gathered at his feet, striding out into the middle of the basin. So stupid! My father is as harsh as the sands themselves. He would never have let me become a Mastrel, even if I'd found all... Five? Pausing, he regarded the strange rock formation around him. The sides were smooth and steep, almost forming a pit with a sand-filled bottom, perhaps 50 feet across. How many years had it taken the Curla's dry winds to carve such an odd bowl-like formation? Kenton froze, his abrupt stop kicking up a small spray of sand. As his eyes had scanned the basin, they fell on something so dumbfounding it almost caused him to trip in surprise. There, sitting in the middle of the circular flooring of sand, was a speck of red. It sat like a drop of blood, stark against the white background. Ripples in the sand had caused him to miss it earlier, but now there was no mistaking the red sphere. Kenton looked up at the Mastrels with confusion. They stood along the rim of the basin, their white robes fluttering as if in unison before the wind. Something's not right. It can't be this easy. There has to be more to the test. Doesn't there? Surely the last sphere should have been the most difficult to find, not the most obvious. As if in answer to his doubts, Kenton felt the sand begin to shift beneath his feet. Aisha! Whoa! He leapt backwards, but the whole section of ground below his feet was beginning to shift. The sand near the sphere began to churn like boiling water. There was something beneath it, something rising. I'm standing on deep sand. The sand-filled pit must go down further than he had assumed. Few people, not even the local Kurzdians, were foolish enough to wander onto deep sand. A black form burst from the sand, burying the sphere in a wave of sand. Kenton gasped in amazement as he regarded the creature that slid from the ground. Sand streamed like water off the 20-foot-tall monstrosity's carapace as it rose into the air. Its body was formed of bulbous, chitinous segments stacked on top of one another. A pair of arms sprouted from each waist, where segments met, arms that were tipped with thick, jagged claws. Its head, if that was the right term, 
was little more than a box with deep black spots instead of eyes, with no visible mouth. And worst of all, Kenton knew that the bulk of the creature's body was still hidden beneath the sands. Kenton was so busy staring that he was almost crushed as the creature swiped a claw in his direction. Kenton dodged, dashing toward the wall of the basin. The sandling's body was huge, perhaps ten feet wide. We've got to stay out of its way, which may be easier said than done. Kenton's body, invigorated by adrenaline and excitement, no longer responded sluggishly. His heart began to race, but his mind worked even faster. He had read of deep sandlings, seen drawings of them, but he had never visited deep sand in person. Kenton could barely see the thousands of tiny hair-like tentacles that lined the beast's carapace, the means by which it moved. But all the while, the creature seemed to glide through the sand as if it were water. Kenton dropped to the sand, barely rolling out of the way as a claw swiped toward him. The creature was incredibly fast. There was a reason deep sand was regarded with terror. The creatures that lurked within its depths were said to be nearly indestructible. Keep moving, boy. What would Gremt say? Kenton rolled to his feet, thankful for the hours he had spent sparring with soldiers from the tower. Thanks, Gremt. Your training just saved my life. For another two seconds, at least. Now let's use something else you taught me. Kenton's movements were quick and dexterous as he whipped his sword free with his left hand and grabbed a handful of sand with the other. Okay. Let's see here. See what you can do. Lord Mastral, you must call a stop to this now. Your son will die if you don't. The rules are clear, Eloran. Kenton must request the intervention. I fear that if we don't act soon, your son will no longer be able to make such a request. The rules remain clear, Elora. In the deep sand below, Kenton was focused on his monstrous foe. He saw the eye spots on each side of the creature's head, realizing that it would not be easy to surprise. But he recalled that sandlings were said to have poorly developed sight. Their true sense was the sand itself. The Kirstians said deep sandlings could actually speak with the sand, though few from Lawsand gave credence to their mysticisms. From high above, Eloran's voice called to Kenton. We cannot pull you out unless you request it, Kenton. Ask us to bring you out, please. No. I have to do this. My father will never be satisfied, not even with perfection. He never is. Kenton deflected another attack with his raised sword. The creature's strength was such that his parry barely seemed to have any effect, but it did allow him to dodge the attack just long enough to strike. Better dead than a coward! Even as he turned, Kenton raised his fist, commanding his sand forward. The sand tore out of his palm, streaking toward the sandling's head. It extended like a spear from Kenton's hand, leaving a glowing trail behind. Kenton might not be able to control dozens of lines at once, but when it came to a single ribbon, he was unmatched. No Sandmaster could move sand with half as much speed or precision. The sand snapped against the creature's shell ahead and immediately lost its luster, spraying to the sides like a stream of water hitting a stone wall. I saw. Kenton stood in confusion, so stunned that the creature's next attack took him in the side. Throwing him back against the stone wall and ripping a deep gash in his shoulder. Oh, oh. 
Kenton's sword dropped to the sand, slipping from stunned fingers. Terrican! It's coated in Terrican! Terrican was a naturally occurring substance, and it was the one thing that was impervious to sand mastery. Kenton checked himself. Blood was beginning to flow from his shoulder. Turkin creatures were supposed to be extremely rare, only the most ancient and feared of deep sand lakes. Creatures said to be protected by the Sand Lord himself had Turkin shells. How had one come to live here, in the middle of shallow sands and rock formations? All sandlings, whether from the deep sands or not, had one powerful weakness, water. The liquid could dissolve their carapaces, melting away their shell and skin, leaving behind nothing but sludge. Which meant that the final challenge in the Mastral's path was a test to locate water, something he should have planned for right at the start instead of proceeding blindly forward without it, as if he couldn't plan for dehydration. Stupid, stupid! There was always water in the sand somewhere if you looked for the Dorim vines or sought out the smaller creatures that resided below the surface. Dorim vines appeared only when you poured water into the sand, but even without a guido, that was still possible. A sandmaster was resourceful. Even the saliva in one's mouth might be enough at the start of the run. Not now, however. The Mastral's path wasn't a test of endurance. It was a test of preparedness. And Kenton had left it too late to prepare. Forget it. Remember Gramps' first rule. Just stay alive. He was moving increasingly slowly, and he could feel himself weakening. Trying to ignore the pain of his shoulders, he stooped as he ran, grabbing another handful of sand. As the next attack came, Kenton used the mastered sand to give himself a boost. Jumping high into the air and tumbling over the swiping claws, Kenton dropped heavily to the sand, then scrambled in the direction of the sandling's original position. Somewhere in that sand was the sphere. I don't need water because I'm not going to kill you. Just need that sphere. Once he had that, he could relent and ask Iloran to pull him out. It sounded so easy. He released his sand, dropping it to the ground, black and stale. Where are you? Kenton placed his hand on the ground near where he had last seen the sphere. He called ribbon after ribbon to life, commanding them to jump away and then releasing them. Go! Go! Again! 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 Sand flew from the ground where he knelt. He commanded and released ribbons in such quick succession that it almost seemed like he could control more than one at a time. But the sandling did not leave him to his digging. Kenton's jump had confused it, but it quickly reoriented itself. It came at him, but Kenton continued to dig until the last moment. I shot! Go! He dashed away, running desperately. He could feel the dryness on his skin, and each time he blinked, his lids seemed to stick to his eyes. His lungs were beginning to burn, and his breaths came painfully. He was approaching the last of his water reserves. He would probably even be chastised for going this far. For the good of the DM, he mustn't even come close to overmastery, the familiar teaching claimed. It was time to give up. Just as he made the determination to escape, however, he saw it. Resting beside the far wall of the basin was a speck of red, brighter than the dark drops of his own blood which ran behind him. No! Wait! Kenton switched directions, ducking beneath the sandling's arms and dashing so close to its body that he could smell the sulfurous pungency of its carapace. 
And as he ran by the creature, feeling the sand slither beneath his feet from the sandling's motion, he noticed an incredulous sight. There, trapped between two bowl-like chinks in the sandling's carapace, was... Another... sphere? But... that's impossible! Impossible unless there were not five spheres on the path, but six. What is he doing down there? Getting himself killed. We must intervene. If we do, Kenton would never forgive us. And if we don't, he won't be alive to complain. I am conducting this test. I will say when. Understood, Master Laloran. I just hope you don't regret your decision. Above, among the watching Mastrals, Lord Praxton said nothing. He was a hard man who had never shown any faith in his son's abilities. But could he really watch him commit suicide like this? In the valley below, Kenton was using his hands to dig in the sand. His mastering abilities almost spent. His fingers found something round and hard. Yes! He pulled the sphere free, looking at it with a frown, then turned his eyes back on the sandling. From this angle, he could see the object caught in its shell distinctly. A red sphere, just like the five he had already found. A sixth. Kenton dropped the sphere into the pouch at his side, then turned eyes up to the edge of the cliff. Directly above, he could see the faces of twenty Mastrals looking down at him. He could escape now. His time was probably all but up anyway. He had won. He had found all five spheres. So what am I waiting for? For some reason, he turned his eyes back to the Sandling. Its shell and skin were Turkin. But what about its insides? His father wouldn't be satisfied with perfection. He never was. Praxton would demand more. You want more? I'll give you more! What did he say? The dehydration has got to him. He's no longer making sense. Aloran, you must show responsibility. I know. The idiot boy has made his decision. Do not intervene. All eyes turned to Lord Praxton, the unquestioned leader of the Sand Mastrals. Yes, Lord Mastral. Kenton brought his sand to life, whipping it past the creature and using it to snatch his discarded sword from the sand floor. The blade flashed through the air, carried on fingers of sand. Yes! Kenton caught it as he ducked beneath the sandling's first attack, grabbing a second handful of sand as he came up barely inches from the creature's chest. Kenton slammed his sword into the creature's side. The blade slipped off a segment of carapace and crunched through the less protected line of skin, digging deeply into the soft area between plates. Come on! Kenton jammed the weapon in with all the strength he had left. Suddenly, his sword jerked, then ripped free from his hands, blasted backward by a powerful force. He had pierced the skin. Kenton caught a face full of acrid gas that Sandlings had instead of blood. Just before one of the monster's legs caught him full in the chest, flinging him into the air. Even as he hurtled away from the creature, Kenton called the sand in his fist to life. He commanded it forward, driving it with all of his skill. Kenton slammed against the rock wall at the same time that his sand hit the creature's chest, yet did not release control of his ribbon. He felt his body slump to the ground, but ignored the pain, 
commanding his sand to find the cut to wiggle past the Turkin carapace into the creature's cavernous insides. Come on. Visualize. He had to fight against air pressure and his own approaching unconsciousness, but he refused to release the sand. What is he doing? He cannot hope to stop a sandling with one ribbon. Kenton is skilled. No one is that skilled, Master Aloran. Kenton felt his sand ribbon break through the monster's carapace, where his sword had made the hole, pushing through the escaping blood that fizzed in the air. With a final surge of effort, Kenton ordered the ribbon around wild, slicing it through organs inside the monster's chest. The sandling began to shake and spasm as Kenton commanded the sand to move vaguely upwards. A second later, Kenton found the head, and the sandling grew rigid in a sudden motion, throwing sand in all directions. A moment later, the creature slumped to the side, its corpse sinking slightly in the sand before coming to a rest. Kenton forced himself to his feet and started to walk his way to his prize. Come on. One foot in front of the next. Kenton didn't know where he found the strength to stumble to his feet and cross the sand. In a daze, he retrieved his sword and used it to pry the sixth sphere free from the creature's carapace. Above, the invigilating Mastrels watched in shock as Kenton raised the recovered sphere from the Sandling's corpse. He's found six spheres. It's impossible! I laid five. Where did the sixth come from? That does not matter now. Can't you see the boy is exhausted? He needs water. As Eloran spoke, down in the valley below, Kenton flopped to the ground with sheer exhaustion. <laughs> that of his father's hard, angry face looking down from high above as the silvery edge of the moon began to peek out from behind Mount Kreda. Uh, uh. Water! Bring the lad water! He's pushed himself to the extreme. Thank the Sandlord he survived. You must be proud of your son, Lord Master. Must I? Chris woke slowly, a method which was, in her estimation, by far the best way. She stretched lethargically, her mind still clouded with images of dreams that were only just beyond memory. She stumbled from the bunk, only half aware of the ship's rocking motion beneath her, and threw open the shutters to her cabin. The world exploded with light. Chris stumbled back against her bunk. Light surrounded her, drilling through her eyes directly into her brain. She threw an arm in front of her face in an attempt to ward off the burning whiteness. Come on. Come on, where are they? Where are my... Oh, there! She located the thick, darkened spectacles and placed them on her face. There. Just calm down. Calm down. Breathe. 
The burning didn't stop, of course. The afterimage of what she'd seen remained like a sparkling sheet in front of her, and her mind continued to throb. <sighs> As she lay on the bunk, however, her teeth clenched against the pain, her vision slowly returned, and the torment lessened. Eventually, she risked opening her eyes again, though she didn't dare look out the window. The cabin, her home for the past two months, appeared before her. Even with the darkened spectacles, the light was much brighter than she was accustomed to. They must have finally passed through the border ocean's mists and crossed over to Dayside. <sighs> Shella, why didn't someone warn me the sun would be this bright? Duchess. You may enter. A tall, broad-shouldered figure entered, her bodyguard. His deep brown skin darkened even further by the effects of her spectacles. He wore a simple form-fitting shirt and a pair of canvas trousers, as well as darkened spectacles like her own. You look horrible. It's the illumination, Beyond. We've left the fog behind, I presume? Yes, several hours ago. You should make an appearance on the deck. We've sighted land, and the men are anxious. Let me put something on first. I'll wait outside. Oh. Now... What to wear? Blue trousers and... Uh, ah! A sweater. Jackets or no jackets? No jacket. It's supposed to be warmer here on this side. Now dressed, she checked her face in the cabin's small mirror. Oh. Bayon was right. She did look horrible. Her long, black hair was tangled from sleep, and it was obvious, even through the spectacles, that her eyes had been watering from the pain. She hurriedly pulled a brush through her hair, trying to make herself look at least presentable. Oh. You're a duchess. People expect you to look like one. She walked out into the light. The first thing she noticed was the burning sphere of brilliance in the sky. She found herself staring at it before her pained eyes forced her to look away. Oh, oh. She blinked, tears forming in her eyes, but she could still feel it above her, blazing like an enormous eye. She immediately began to sweat, despite her relatively thin clothing. She had read stories of the sun, and even believed some of them, but it was different to personally experience its power. So... This is what a star looks like up close. It's a wonder that anything can survive in its constant heat. She could actually feel it burning. Even across the incredible distance, she could feel its heat on her skin like a hearth fire. The deck was busy with men. The sailors, excited to arrive after two months of sailing, were enthusiastically climbing riggings and doing other nautical things Chris didn't understand. The ship had been half-drifting for a month, letting the powerful border ocean current pull it from dark side to day side. The ship had been spun through spinning maelstroms of wind, and only the clever sailing, and even more clever ship design, had allowed them to survive. Land ho, Duchess! Oh. Oh, I see it, Skipper! She did, albeit through pained and watering eyes. Three men, dressed in nondescript trousers and coats, stood beside Bayon, her bodyguard, further along the deck. Their skin, like Chris's, was dark after the fashion of Elis, but none of them approached Bayon's deep blackness. None could approach his height, either. 
the nearest standing a full six inches shorter than the massive foreigner. Bayan came from Iaria, a kingdom on the northern end of Darkseid, seat of the dynasty itself. She'd never found a way to tactfully ask him how he had come to be a member of the Elysian military, especially since crossing dynastic borders was expressly forbidden by law. Eh, eh, eh! Watch out, miss! Oh, oh, sorry. When she reached the men at the rail, the three soldiers put one foot forward and bowed. One man, Flenid, stood at their lead. Typical of the Elysian military, all were of noble blood, but they were also all at least third sons. Bayon didn't bow. The mercenary simply continued to stare at the dark line in the distance, a line that was quickly resolving into a series of cliffs. I half thought we would fall off the side of the world, like the stories claim. Ah, oh, Bayon, really? At worst, our ship would have gotten caught in the wrong water current and carried us right back to Darkseid. I know. Flenid, the oldest of the soldiers, had probably seen 22 years. Young men were the only kind who volunteered for a mission like this one. They had a spirit of adventure. Morrow, Duchess. I've heard tell it's 500 years since our people crossed this ocean. Officially, at least. There's little frontier left on Darkseid. Even the glacial wastes at the center of the continent are crossed frequently. This will be something new. Flenet was right. The only records they had of Dayside were of dubious validity, and most scholars, Chris included, gave them little credibility. Even if they were accurate, five centuries was a long time. Traveling to Dayside was an adventure few experiences could match. Yes, officially, it had been 500 years since anyone had traveled the border ocean. Chris was not a soldier or an explorer. She had never even left the capital, let alone Elis. But she was traveling to Dayside for one reason, to follow the trail of her late betrothed, who had come here three years ago to chase a dream, and had died for it. She's a beauty, isn't she? Look at the smooth action. Flenid was leaning against the ship's whale, his hand idly cocking and uncocking the flintlock pistol in his hand as he mock-aimed for the land ahead. You are ordered to keep those hidden, Flenid. What does it matter? They won't know what it is if they see it. Put it away, soldier. Yes, Captain. He stuffed the pistol back into its place underneath his cloak as Chris drew Bayon off to the side. I thought I ordered you to leave the guns behind. You did. I ignored you. You ignored me? Duchess, we're traveling to an unknown continent, completely blind as to what we'll find. Did you really expect your soldiers to give up the only advantage we have? I just thought that... Well, that it would be a good idea to keep the technology secret, just in case. The boy is right about one thing. Assuming they haven't developed gunpowder on their own, then getting hold of one of our pistols will do them little good. They couldn't replicate it. They don't have the technology. They couldn't even make new gunpowder. That's true, I suppose. Tell me, are you going to ignore all of my orders, Bayon? No. Only the stupid ones. <laughs> Just keep an eye on those three. For some reason, the idea of firearms in Flynnett's hands makes me nervous. On that, we agree. I doubt we'll even need the guns. You're optimistic. That's good. You're paying me to be the opposite, however. Our mission is purely to gather information. To learn as much as we can about Dayside and the... 
resources there. And then we go home. Who knows? Perhaps the Daysiders will be the ones who end up helping us. Duchess, if you're intending to find something on Dayside to help you stop the dynasty, then the legends about this place better not just be true. They better be gross underestimations. Gavin believed in them. But look where that got him. Or did you forget that he died? No. Thank you, Belle. I did not forget. You shouldn't have put me in charge. Why do you say that? Your soldiers don't like me. They don't have to like you to follow your orders. That is true. But they resent me as well. Technically, all three outrank me. They're noblemen. I'm not. I'm also a foreigner. You're older than they are. You're more experienced than they are. And you are a better leader. Even after traveling with you for a month, I knew that much. I'm also a mercenary. <laughs> Isn't every soldier, in a way? Duchess, you have a quick tongue, but despite what politicians and scholars claim, arguing cannot change facts. Those men resent me. You should have let their natural ranks determine who would lead when Captain Dural died. You... you're probably right. She turned away from him, instead focusing on the approaching cliffs. She was not accustomed to being contradicted. She had made a mistake. Of course, it had seemed logical at the time. Bayon's wise bluntness had impressed her from the first time they met months ago when the expedition had begun. Don't berate yourself. You're young yet. Barely as old as those boys. In fact, I'd guess you're younger. You'll learn. He was right, though she did not confirm it. She hated it when people realized how young she was. Young. And out of my depth. Should I go wake the others? Uh, yes, they'll want to see our approach. The large man nodded, turning back across the deck to climb down to the lower cabins. Chris was left alone with the three noblemen, whose faces now betrayed none of their earlier looks of resentment. Had she been wrong to assume she could be a leader of men? They were getting closer to land when her two professors appeared on deck, accompanied by Bayon, whose blank expression somehow still spoke volumes about how their constant prattle wore at his patience. I suppose that thing is going to be there the entire time we're on this side. You mean the sun? It doesn't appear to move, Professor Sender. The professor, an older man with barely a few wisps of hair clinging to the top of his otherwise bald head, was Professor Alstrin Cinder, 60 years old with a liver-spotted cranium to prove it. Cinder had been one of her teachers during the years of her university schooling. He had stepped onto the deck shading his already spectacled eyes. Well, I suppose I would have been disappointed if there weren't some light to be found over here. The legends do say a great deal about that point, don't they? By the divine, the adventure finally begins. The second man was John Akron, anthropologist, a stooped figure of about five feet with a sizable paunch that more than made up for his lack of height. Fifty years of age, he wore the long mustache over a goatee that was the current style in Elis. Both anthropologist and linguist were dressed formally. They had obviously taken more time getting ready than she had. They wore suits after the fashion of their rank, with vests and matching collar pieces. 
The long-tailed jackets had wide, drooping sleeves, and Cinder had added a pocket watch and wrist chains, as was his custom. Behind the two stood Bayon, who had donned a functional knee-length jacket to obscure the two pistols at his hips. Seeing the jacket reminded Chris of just how hot she was. She had assumed that perhaps she would get used to it, but so far she'd had no luck. Her clothing, which had seemed so reasonable in her shaded cabin, now felt sweltering. <sighs> I have never known such heat. By the divine, this is a dour place, isn't it? I think you would be excited, Sender. After all that studying you've done, now you'd finally get to visit. I studied the language, not the sun, dear man. Rayon, when do we dock? In about an hour. Those cliffs taper a bit to the east, and that's apparently where our town is. Another hour? In this heat? Let's get used to it, John. The sun's not going away anytime soon. Professor Cinder pulled out a spyglass from his jacket and peered at the town that lurked on the horizon. An hour. And it seems we were correct. Concerning? Their culture, my lady. I see little evidence of advanced technology. The professor passed the spyglass to his colleague. Hmm. I concur. No sign of wait. There is a man carrying a bow, see? They are definitely still in the sword age. Poor fellows. I can't help thinking you should say poor us. Why? From the looks of things, your soldiers seem to have discovered a couple of pistols. However, despite such an obvious advantage, the Elysian military is not known for its uh, martial superiority. I can't help wondering how we'll fare against the natives. Bayon, is this true? For a linguist, he has a point. Thank you, I think. I've seen you Elysians fight. Your military is more a tool for the pampered to dispose of their offspring than a true defensive army. Your country remains independent through clever politics, superior technology, and the fact that it is so small no one wants to conquer it. Those three will be practically useless against a well-trained squad of natives, pistols or no pistols. The useless comment didn't gain Bayon any ground with Flennet and the others, who were just within earshot. Honesty is one thing, Bayon, but there's also something to be said for tact. Within a foreign land, an ocean away from civilization, if this expedition turns violent, I doubt all the muskets in Elis could save us. The soldiers more to get us through dynastic blockades than to protect us from daysiders. Indeed. Cinder's right, however. The population looks considerably less advanced than what we've come from. The houses are mainly simple clay brick and the streets look uneven. And look at the vehicles. Simple carts rather than carriages. And none of the buildings are glass in the windows. There were other differences besides the level of technology, Chris noticed. Notably absent were the lantern poles that lined every street in her homeland. But, of course, such wouldn't be necessary with the sun's constant light. The great difference by far, however, were the beasts of burden. Up until the point that she looked through Cinder's spyglass, Chris had discounted the stories of strange monsters living in the deserts of Dayside. Now, however, she was forced to reconsider. Those creatures, do you see? 
They remind me of the armored war horses that the dynasty sometimes employs. The beasts were black in color, and the light reflected off their shiny skin. They were proportioned something like a horse, but with shorter legs and a stumpier neck. Their bodies seemed to be composed of plated segments, something like an insect, but they were proportioned nothing like bugs. Most disconcerting were their faces. They were covered with horn-like protrusions that stuck out in random directions. Each creature was different. Some had only a couple, others were covered with dozens, and still others had one massive spike sticking out like an overgrown nose. Well, they are like no horse I've ever seen. Perhaps not. And those horns! They must be cosmetic, used to frighten rivals. Many of them look too weak to be used for combat. Everything must have an explanation, I suppose. I am a scientist, Cinder. We explain things. <laughs> and here I thought you were a duchess. Oh, last I checked, the two weren't mutually exclusive. <laughs> yes, of course, of course. <laughs> You're going to have to find some dresses. Look at the women. They wear dresses and keep their hair tied up under their hoods. Most dark side cultures don't look favorably on women who dress like men, and I suspect it's the same over here. So you should find some dresses. I have dresses. Bayan was right, of course. Every woman visible, even the children, had their hair tied up and kept under a hood-like cloth. They wore one-piece dresses. Actually, they fit more like robes that were loose around the waist, and the styles didn't seem to vary much. The men also wore loose-fitting robes, though they kept theirs tied at the waist, and many wore two layers of clothing, a shirt and a skirt-like item beneath with an open-fronted robe over the top. All of the clothing was much more drab than she was used to, the pervading colors white and tan. This is going to be so exciting! Educational at the very least! Well, Cindy, I guess we'll soon find out how much the language has changed over the last 500 years. Yes. The only texts they had from Dayside were five centuries old. Courses in Daysider language were popular in the university, and Cinder was one of the experts. But underneath all of the postulation and studying was the knowledge that, to Darkside at least, Daysider was a dead language. They really had no clue how to pronounce the words. You look worried, Professor. Don't it, perhaps, but thrilled as well. Time to put my learning into practice. Chris had initially resisted bringing Cinder on the expedition because of his age. However, he was Elissa's premier authority on linguistics. If anyone could speak fluent Daysider, it was him. Cast the lines and prepare to dock! The ship pulled to shore, docking against one of a number of tired-looking jetties that ran at the edge of the town. <sighs> We're here. Once they made land, Cinder was keen to test his daysider on the locals. He, along with Chris, Bayan, Akron, and the soldier called Flenid, made their way to a nearby market whose colorful stalls ran along the shoreline, beside a street of single-story buildings. Bayan had brought only Flenid, instructing his colleagues to remain on ship for the moment. Cinder turned his attention to a local, asking the name of the settlement and where one might find a civic office. 
The daysider looked blankly at his words, frowned, and scuttled away as if in fear. Sandlord saved me from the rantings of the deranged. Good effort, Sender. No need for sarcasm, Flint. They are an odd-looking people. Their skin is different, do you see? Not completely white, like those from our eastern countries, but definitely pale. It looks like there are two races here. Some with skin that's a little pale, kind of a dark tan color. The rest have olive-colored skin. Yes, two peoples, two cultures, perhaps? It bears investigation. So long as you don't scare off any more of the locals with your conversational skills. Hey, I am... He's right, Sender. This isn't working. Ah, I don't know what it is, my lady. At first, it seems like they might understand me. Some of them, at least. They always run off, however. Could it be that they fear us? It seems unlikely, Bayon. No one's giving us a wide berth. They seem to barely notice us. Well, it's comforting to know one thing, at least. Which is? It would have been tragic if we could actually speak the language. It would have destroyed my reliance on the frivolous nature of higher learning. Some universal constants just have to remain unchallenged. Now who's being sarcastic? Perhaps it's your accent. They've reacted the same way to written phrases. As he spoke, Cinder's gaze was drawn to a stall in the marketplace. Chris followed where he indicated, seeing Akram had wandered away from them to poke through a shopkeeper's wares. He didn't seem to care that they couldn't communicate. The sheer joy of being in another culture was enough for him. You might want to keep an eye on him. He's probably overwhelmed. This is the first time he's been out of dynasty-controlled land. As an anthropologist, that must have been frustrating for him. That man is a fool. Fool or not. He seems to be having some success in getting that stall holder to understand him. See? What? How? Look in the window. They did so, squinting against the sun's light. Chris could barely make something out. A sign. A sign written in... Dynastic. Dayside supplies and maps. Shala! The spelling leaves something to be desired. Come on! Chris headed directly for the building, and after a moment, the others trailed her. I suppose we should. A shopkeeper, one of the lighter-skinned daysiders who had been speaking enthusiastically with Akron, noticed Chris's approach and smiled eagerly. Ah, more dark side good friend! You want supplies? Okay, friend? Oh, how? Oh, how does he... I don't know. He just started talking to me. Amazing, isn't it? Good dynastic. Yes, friend. Dark side come much. Escape dynasty. Very bad. Much exciting. Need much supplies. Yes, friend. Perhaps the dynastic blockades aren't as effective as our dear Emperor Skaven would have us believe. Much dark siders. I mean... Many darksiders. How many? One, maybe. Two ship one week. Shella! That's unbelievable! Those blockades are supposed to be impervious. The dynasty doesn't even let its subjects travel from one province to another. There's no way they let that many ships escape. We got through. Oh, through? And it wasn't very hard. 
We lost two men. What Flennet says is also true. And not just any men. Captain Daral and his lieutenant were well-trained warriors, Bayon. They weren't killed by the blockade. We lost them sneaking out of Ellis and crossing the dynastic lands to reach the ocean. Once we were on the waters, we barely even saw another ship. Shella, I thought we'd just been lucky. This just got more difficult. Come on, we'll buy supplies later. She turned to walk away from the shop and her entourage followed. Wait! Don't just walk in I assume you plan to tell us what suddenly made our lives grow more difficult, Duchess? The Darksider refugees arrive here. That's why no one thinks we look strange. Darksider fugitives are a common sight. Ah, it is a difficult thing to realize you're not as unique as you thought. It is a difficult thing to realize no one in this entire town would have taken note of Prince Galvaldon's arrival two years ago. I was counting on the event having been unique enough that people still remembered it. Now we have no idea which way he went. At least we know this is where he started. If the ship captain's telling the truth. He has no reason to lie. Unless, of course, someone paid him to do so. Or he just forgot. Or maybe he wasn't really the one who ferried the prince to Dayside and just said that to get our business. No reason beyond those three, and maybe a couple more. All right. Back to the ship. I have to think. The group began to wander back toward the ship. Chris had come to follow Gevin's quest, the one that had killed him. How was she to do that if Gevin was one of dozens, hundreds even, of Darksiders who'd arrived in port over the past three years? Their ability to speak the language had proven even less useful than she had assumed. And then there was the eye-opening fact that Darksiders were common on Dayside. But she did have one option. The Sand Mages were supposed to live in a kingdom called Lossan. She would have to make her way in that direction and assume Gevin had done the same. She would have liked to follow his trail exactly, but Chris's thoughts trailed off as something else grabbed her attention. It wasn't in Dynastic, but... That man speaking. Oh, I think I recognize the words. What is that, Cinder? A short distance away, sitting in an open space beside the market street, was a domed building with broad shadows. People were gathered within, and it seemed like the voice was coming from inside. Not bothering to look to see if the others followed, Chris crossed the small distance to the building and peeked inside. Oh, oh, wait up, Duchess. At the front of the room stood an olive-skinned man with a shaven head. He wore nondescript robes with a golden chain around his neck, and in his hand he clutched what appeared to be a long spear with a bone head. Directly in the center of his forehead were a pair of stark white scar marks that formed an X. The man was speaking forcibly to the crowd, his tone familiar for some reason. He stood with his arms outstretched, the spear pointing toward the sky. The words, pronounced almost so oddly that she missed them, suddenly jumped out at her. She would have missed them completely if they hadn't formed the single most pervasive phrase in the books she'd studied. She wasn't a genius at Daysider, but she had taken some classes. Takrin, Talbrecht, Telar, Telarna, Karnasha, Totar, Karsha. 
Grado, Unhara, Karnasha Tautar Kersha, Alet, Morwen, Rekenshana, Karnasha Tautar Kersha. May the Sand Lord bless us. I understand it too. Those words, or ones akin to them, end almost half the sentences written in Deicide. One reason the Deicide books were so incredibly thick. What does it mean? This? It's a speech of some sort. A religious ceremony, perhaps? But what is he saying? Uh, can you translate? I'll ask. Sid, wait! Iresha Takasha Aidakasha. The man at the front looked down at him with a frown of annoyance. Aisha! A real Karshanshan Tersham! Oh my! What is it? I think we should go. Cinder backed away before the man's anger, leaving the building and its occupants behind. Do you understand it, Cinder? A little. The words were spoken so quickly. He called it Karshan. It means. Oh, holy language! Why, yes. You're right, Duchess. Car meaning priest. Priest language. You mean. Instead of Daysider, we learn the exclusive language of the clergy. There is precedent for such things. I have studied class specific dialects. Oh. Well, I guess it's not as bad as it could be. <laughs> True. If we can't get directions out of them, then at least we can call them to repentance. Kenton lay frozen in the darkness. Six spheres. Why, there should have only been five. Kenton! Wake up, you scoundrel! Is that... Eric? The moment you declared you were going to run the path, I knew you would surprise us. Kenton opened his eyes, pushing the damp cloth from his face that had been placed there as he recovered. It was not Eric, his oldest friend, who stood before him, he saw. Eric had gone to Darkseid to find his fortune two years ago. Instead, here was his closest friend in the DM of the Sandmasters. Traben? Traben stood before him in the healing tent, immaculate as always in his robes and golden sash. He had gone bald early in life and kept what hair he had close-shaven, accentuating his firm, square face. Whoa there! Don't tell me you're too good to remember me now that you've conquered the path. As if you'd ever let me forget you, Traben. You've been sifting through my sand since we first joined the Diem as kids. Hey, if you weren't around, life in the Diem wouldn't be half as exciting. There was a playful irony to his friend's words. Traben was a mastral. His high status should have precluded him from associating with a lowly accolant like Kenton, even one whose father was the Lord Mastral. Yet the two of them had remained firm friends, even after Traben achieved the rank of Mastral, one of seven ranks applied to the Sandmasters, depending on their ability. His body aching, Kenton rose from the bed, its mattress filled with sand. How long have I been asleep? A small red-haired boy spoke from where he stood vigil at the doorway of the tent. About a day? There was a look of excitement in the boy's eyes. This was Diran, 16 years old, but small for his age, probably because of his Talonar heritage, a racially small people. When they brought you back, Kenton, all covered in sand and blood, we assumed you were dead. But six fears, Kenton! How did you do it? 
Kenton retrieved his guido and took a long drink from it. <clears throat> I don't understand where that sixth sphere came from. Were there always six possible, and I'm just the first to find the last one? No, it must have been... Mastral Trabit, be aware of your surroundings. That was Master Eloran speaking for the first time from where he stood reservedly in a corner of the tent, monitoring Kenton's recovery. As he spoke, he nodded to Diran, who had started to fold the cot's bedsheets and place them meticulously in a pile. Oh, yes, of course. Diran, lad, would you go tell the Lord Mastral that his son has recovered? Yes, Mastral. Once Diran had left the room, Florin nodded for Traben to continue. Now you may go on. Though there was little chance the boy would ever run the path, it was general policy not to let younger Sandmasters hear the path's secrets. I... I found six. But Kenton, there aren't supposed to be six spheres. The one you found must have gotten left behind following someone else's run. As you might expect, spheres are often lost where the Sandling is concerned. They get buried deep in the sand, where even the most powerful Mastral wouldn't be able to retrieve them. It is just assumed that they will never turn up again, but... One must have gotten lodged in the creature's carapace. For all we know, it could have been my sphere. I only found three of them, you know. You? You never fail at anything, Traben. <laughs> I'd ask the other Mastrals about that. My associating with you is considered a fatal character flaw, you know. I wouldn't say fatal. Well, perhaps their opinion will change after what you did yesterday running the path. Kenton reached for a server of sand located in a freestanding urn close to the tent's doorway, running his hands through its contents. And how is my father taking the news of my success? As he spoke, Kenton charged the sand. The Lord Mastral is calling the Sixth Sphere invalid. Of course he would. The small pile of sand flashed, glowing brilliantly, and remained in the air even when he removed his hand. He hadn't overmastered. His abilities, such as they were, still remained. It doesn't really matter. The entire Diem has already heard about what you did. The Lord Mastral is, of course, rather perturbed with you. When isn't he? This time, it's more than usual, Ackland. You weren't supposed to slay the creature. The path is destroyed forever now, Kenton. No one knows how that deep sandling came to be isolated so far away from the deep sands, but it was the central trial of the path. More Mastrals failed to recover that one sphere it was guarding than all the other spheres combined. For centuries, the Mastrals have fed the monster, using it to test their newer members. But now, it is gone. Good riddance. When that thing burst from the sand, I nearly died from the shock. Wait a minute. Didn't you have water with you? No one's more prepared than you, Traben. Why did it give you trouble? It outthought me. Fled beneath the sand as soon as I tossed a handful of water on it. Unfortunately, it took the sphere with it. Its digging probably buried the sphere all the way down to Darkseid. Personally, I don't think it was a very fair test. I did what I was supposed to, and I still didn't get my sphere. The point is irrelevant now. The path, or at least the path as we know it, is no more. Kenton flexed his shoulder, feeling the pain of his gash. Take it slowly, Kenton. You're still recovering. Yes, Undermastral. But I'm going to have to agree with Traben. I know the path hasn't killed anyone in decades, but we're still probably better off without it. And you will be remembered as a hero. The accolade who defeated the path. Traben patted Kenton on the shoulder. Hey, 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 easy. Kenton, perhaps you should stay back and rest today. What? Ellerin, how could you even suggest such a thing? 
Kenton frowned as well. It was an odd suggestion. All Sandmasters, except those left behind to watch the DM, were expected to attend today's ceremony, no matter what their state of health. I apologize, Mastral. It was a thoughtless suggestion. I mean, today of all days. After what Kenton did, the Lord Mastral will have to make him a Mastral. My father doesn't have to do anything. I'll bet he's actually less likely to make me a Mastral after what I did yesterday. Really? The Grand High Lord Mastral and respected Taisha Lord Praxton, that is my father, is very concerned with image. The more I protest his decisions, the more he's going to resist giving me what I want. If he were to grant me Mastralship now, it would mean admitting defeat in front of the entire Diem. But- I don't know why I keep trying. I'm not even convinced that I deserve to be a Mastral. Maybe an Undermastral or a Lestral. Probably even be happy as a fen, except. Except. Except I just can't force myself to let my father win. I guess I'm too much like him. You should rest now, Acolyte. Be assured we will wake you in time for the ceremonies. That's good. Then. I think I will. Kenton lay back on the cot. He did not, however, let them place a damp cloth on his forehead again. Instead, he let himself drift to sleep in the comforting warmth of daylight. It was nearing 10th hour when Kenton was awakened, leaving him enough time to prepare for the ceremony. The ceremonies were always held in the same place, a flat plain of sand. There were cliffs visible in the distance that surrounded the wide plain like the lip of a crater. The white-robed sandmasters milled together, for the most part remaining self-segregated by the colors of their sashes, which reflected their ranks. The gold mastrels were at the front, with a group of yellow undermastrels to the side. Lestrels in black, underlestrels in gray. The emfens in brown, fens in tan, and underfens in cream. And of course, the acolytes, who stood in smaller groups, staying with those from their same year. There were about 2,000 of them altogether. Kenton paced through the waiting crowds with Diran, who was excited to share the rumors he had heard. Is it true what they say about Dryle? Diran, I've already told you that I don't know. They say Dryle was caught making plans to sell his powers. They say he was gathering a group of Sandmasters to hire out as mercenaries. Hmm. I wouldn't doubt it. It was rare enough for a group of students to produce one Mastral, but Kenton's had produced two. Dryle was even more powerful than Traben. In fact, there were those who whispered he was stronger than Praxton himself. And the worst thing was, Dryle knew exactly how good he was. Do you think... do you think they'll kick him out of the DM? Maybe. It's happened before. Not in centuries, though. He never did one so powerful. Then it will be up to the Lord Mastral, won't it? I... I suppose so. Now, go join your class, Darren. Yes, Kenton. Tredka, good luck. Kenton approached the back of the crowd, while Darren drifted off to join the other acolytes. Of them all, only Kenton had no place. Every member of his acolyte group had been advanced four years previously, leaving Kenton to attend increasingly redundant classes with acolytes who seemed to get younger every year. He got numerous looks as he walked amongst them, most encouraging, but none accepting. Kenton was alone in the DM. He knew some of the others, especially the lower ranks, respected him. 
He also knew that many Sandmasters, regardless of rank, disliked him. Even as he passed a group of Acolans, he heard muffled snickers and comments. It's Kenton. Still? When isn't it? The students generally mocked their odd, overaged companion. Young as they were, they hadn't yet been forced to deal with advancements and the limit on their potential it would proclaim. This day, however, more of the faces seemed camaraderous than normal. Traitor, Kenton. Thank you for your support. The fair-haired Acolant was not the only one to bid him Tradeka, a Kirstian word to confer good fortune. Kenton walked through them, smiling at those he knew, quietly impressed by the level of support he felt. Kenton's optimism faded as he worked his way through a group of Lestrals to stand at the front of the crowd. Lord Mastral Praxton, his eyes hard enough to subdue even the wind, sat surrounded by a half-circle of Mastrals. His chair was crafted completely of wood, and was really more like a throne, though kings hadn't been seen in Lawsand since the beginning of the Titian era several centuries before. Praxton huddled in the massive chair like a sandling, watching and waiting with infinite patience. His face displayed as much emotion as a chitinous shell. Kenton walked to the side of the crowd, standing off by himself. Despite their overtures of friendship, none of the Sandmasters invited him to join them. In many ways, the lower ranks were just as exclusive as the higher ones. Perhaps Eloran or Traben would have done otherwise, but they were required to stand with the Lord Mastral. The Undermastrals were already taking their places, forming a larger semicircle behind the Mastrals. The rest of the groups began to quiet, standing in their separate ranks as they waited for the ceremony to begin. Where are the other Mastrals? I only count 17. Dryle's missing. Kenton had noticed, too. Despite what he had told Diran, he hadn't really believed Dryle capable of something so revolting. Sandmasters were one cohesive whole, regulated by the DM. If smaller groups began selling their services like common tradesmen, chaos would soon be the result. Look! There! Dryle made it after all! But he doesn't look happy. Kenton turned at the talk. A pair of Mastrals were leading Dryle through the group. Dryle was tall and lean, exuding everything that a Sandmaster was supposed to be. Powerful, controlling, and arrogant. He walked indifferently through the ranks, as if he were striding before a group of subjects, not being taken under guard to his own trial. At the front of the crowd, he paused briefly, turning eyes on the gathered Sandmasters. The Mastrals behind him froze, uncertain what to do. Dryle was more powerful than any other living Sandmaster, save maybe for Praxton himself. If Dryle decided to run, then the struggle to restrain him could potentially turn dangerous. Fortunately, Kenton was certain there was one law even Dryle would not break. No Sandmaster was allowed to use his skills to hurt another of their kind. It was an injunction as old as the Sands themselves. Dryle regarded the DM for a moment, still smiling. You created me, his look seemed to say. The DM, its arrogance, its remoteness, and its wastefulness, is what had led Dryle to become what he was. Once, the DM had helped everyone, working hand in glove with the citizens of Lausanne to enrich their lives, with grand construction projects and a fearsome army that had helped civilize this portion of the planet Taldane. But that was generations ago, and many saw the city of Khazar crumbling, while the Sandmasters did nothing, the very structures their powers had built now succumbing to entropy, 
Their defense, now a threat kept in check by bribes and tributes. Dryle, what have you done? Dryle turned slowly, arrogantly, to face his accuser, but said nothing. To make it necessary to engage guards to bring you here. <sighs> Take your place, Dryle. You're still a Mastral. As you instruct, Lord Praxton. Dryle complied with a curt bow, walking over to stand at the head of the Mastrals. Now, let the ceremony begin. Mastral Eloran, prepare the bowl. Yes, Lord Mastral. The Undermastral, foremost of his rank, bowed as he replied. He knelt and freed his guido from his belt, pouring its contents into an earthen bowl. My lord. He handed the bowl to Praxton, who drank a sip and handed it back. Eloran accepted the bowl, then stood uncertainly for a moment, his eyes apprehensive for some reason. Then, apparently deciding that tradition held, even in the face of irregularity, he carried the bowl over and handed it to Dryle. No. Dryle took the bowl, held it for just a second, his eyes meeting those of Praxton. Then, without taking a drink, he handed it to the Sandmaster beside him. Thank you. Kalmir accepted the bowl hesitantly, but eventually regained his poise and took a sip, before handing it to the next in line. The bowl moved through the Mastrals, then back to the Undermastrals, before Eloran accepted it once more and carried it back to Praxton. As we share in one drink, so we are one body united. Though we are many, we are one body, for we share this one bowl. With one final sip, Praxton officially initiated the advancement ceremonies. Eloran refilled the bowl before handing it to the first line of watching Sandmasters. They began to drink, each one taking a sip and handing it to his neighbor, refilling it from their guidoin when necessary. The ceremony, however, didn't need to wait for everyone to drink. As soon as Eloran had given away the bowl, Praxton gave him the ceremonial instruction. Under Mastral, show to all the colors that are as old as the sands themselves. Eloran picked up a sack from beside Praxton's chair and removed several colored sashes from within. Kenton squinted, counting. There were seven, none of them gold. There would be no new Mastrals this day. Eloran accepted a thin scroll from the Lord Mastral and took a few steps forward. He unrolled the scroll. We gather this day to acknowledge the success of our own and to award new ranks to those among us who have earned advancement. Step forward, Reendell, son of craftsman Keshdel. A white-sashed youth stepped forward from the back of the crowd, approaching Praxton's chair on nervous legs. You have been offered the rank of Underlestro. Take the sash and be advanced. Reendell reached forward a trembling hand and accepted the gray sash from the Lord Mastral. Congratulations. Thank you, Lord Mastral. Eloran proceeded, reading the names of Reendell's accolant group. Carol. Each accolant stepped Alston. forward as his or her name was called, Son. accepting Son a different sash from Praxton. Only Princess. one placed higher than Son the first, a reedy girl who was given the black of a lestral. It was an average group. Undermastrals and Mastrals were rare. Kenton took a sip from the bowl as it reached him. You okay, Kenton? Yes. But whoever refilled the bowl last wasn't carrying very good water. 
Finally, only one sash remained in Praxton's hand, a brown one, the rank of DM Fen. It was about midway through the DM's hierarchy, with three ranks below it and four above. Kenton suspected that the sash was meant for him. There had only been six acolytes in this year's group. A DM Fen was no mastral, but it was higher than Kenton had ever realistically thought he would be offered. Despite himself, Kenton found his mood begin to brighten. Maybe he was giving up, settling for less than he deserved, but the logical, realistic side of him realized that he had made his statement and had succeeded. There would be no more to be gained from pointless resistance. Kenton braced himself as Eloran called his name, except... Step forward, Dryle, Mastral of the Diem. What? Dryle? Dryle stepped out of line. His eyes were calm. He had been expecting this. Dryle, you have been offered the rank of... of Diemfet. Take the sash and be unadvanced. Unadvanced? Can they... Lord Praxton knew the rumors, but I didn't expect... Never in all the history of the DM had a Sandmaster been unadvanced. It was unheard of. Dryle looked down at the sash in Praxton's hand with stunned eyes. Then he stepped close, speaking words only Praxton could hear. What is this? You seek to insult me, Lord Mastro. I don't trust you, Dryle. If I expelled you for what you tried, I doubt that you would obey the law and refrain from using your powers. This way... I can still keep an eye on you. I... You will accept the rank, Dimfen Dryle. Yes, Lord Praxton. With a limp hand, Dryle took the sash from Praxton's outstretched hand. As the former Mastral stood looking at the sign of his defeat, Praxton reached out, whipping the gold Mastral sash off Dryle's waist and dropping it to the ground. This was what made Kenton's father a leader. His sheer willpower the one thing which Kenton had inherited from him. Kenton could only grimace at the irony. What his father would have wanted him to inherit was his sand powers, not this. Go join your rank, Diem Head bowed, Dryle turned, shuffling across the sand in a stunned daze, as if unable to believe what he had just done. But if the brown sash was for Dryle, then what about Kenton? They're saying he completed the Mastral's path. Kenton ignored the whispers, watched, and saw his father retrieve something from the pouch at his side. A cream-colored sash. It meant nothing, no advancement, lower even than the fen he had been offered yesterday. Just an accolant in the DM. Kenton could feel the disappointment and anger rising in his breast as Eloran spoke again. Kenton, son of Praxton, step forward. Kenton stepped forward, trying to control his emotions. For some reason, this blow took him harder than any before. He had been ready to give in, prepared to accept the compromise of Diemfen. He approached the Lord Mastral's seat with a slow step, resting a comforting hand on Eloran's shoulder as he passed. I told you yesterday, I would offer you Fen if you agreed not to run the path. Did you think I would reward you for disobeying me? For slaying the Marken. For ruining the path. I... You don't even deserve this. But I offer it to you this one last time. Now accept your place as Underfen and be grateful I do not drum you out of the Diem for making a mockery of this ceremony. You don't even deserve this much, Kenton. Praxton thrust the sash toward him. 
The words were true, Kenton realized. He had never belonged in the DM. He had forced them to accept him when they didn't want to, had demanded that they give him attention he didn't deserve, and cried injustice when he was offered the ranks he had earned. He was tired of fighting it. And yet, when he looked into his father's intolerant eyes, the eyes of a man who had lived apart from his family, like all Sandmasters, a man Kenton had never known, Kenton felt that old determination well within him once again. No. No, I won't be beaten down, father. I've proven myself worthy of more. You are certain? I won the Mastral's path. I beat it. Then I have no other choice left. Kenton, son of Praxton, I grant you the rank of Mastral. Kenton froze, stupefied. The Lord Mastral nodded down to the sand at the base of his chair, where a fluttering piece of gold was half buried in the wind-blown sand. Dryle's sash. Take it. But I thought, why would you advance me after everything you just said? Praxton leaned close and spoke low as Kenton took the gold sash. Have you learned nothing of the Diem during your years here, boy? Yes, they supported you when you were the victim. But that was when they thought you were below them. No one ever thought you would actually succeed. Kenton turned, shielding his eyes from the mass of animosity behind him. His shocked eyes fell back on his father, who was shaking his aged brow in sorrow. You think I hated you, boy? I was trying to protect you. Right now, every single one of them is thinking to himself, why was Kenton made a mastral when I was not? And they are all coming to the same conclusion. Because I'm your son. Yes. You will find no peace in this rank, child. Only hatred. The Mastrals will think you unworthy of them. The lower ranks will be envious of your favored position. You could have had purpose and fellowship in one of the lower ranks. You, more than anyone else, should have known how pointless a title is. What would it have mattered if people called you Underfen instead of Mastral? Would that have altered your power? Made you any less capable? No. Despite all of his accusations, his appeals for reform, Kenton had caught the same disease as every other Sandmaster. You wanted it, boy. Well, you can have it. Learn what happens to those who defy me. <laughs> Kenton looked up, his eyes seeking for some sort of sympathy from his father. Praxton stared back flatly, his eyes dull, almost like they weren't looking at him at all. Lord Praxton, father, what is... Only then did Kenton notice the arrow sticking out of his father's side. No! No! Kenton spun in concern. Ten clothed forms poured over the short cliffs from behind the Sandmasters. They must have snuck up through the camp. Arrows were falling from bowmen in the back ranks. The crowd of Sandmasters, confused and frightened, stood in mass as the arrows descended on them. Kirtsians! As the Mastrals shouted their warnings, they were already calling sand to life. Aisha! Kenton dropped to the ground and grabbed a handful of sand. He rolled to his feet, whipping his sword out with the other hand. All around him, Sandmasters were mastering sand, dashing about in a chaotic mixture of bodies and glowing sand. Some darted into the air, though where they were jumping, Kenton didn't know. Others called up massive walls in front of themselves to block the arrows. 
Still other Sandmasters didn't seem to know what to do, standing uncertainly with ribbons of sand hovering around them. But... doesn't make any sense. Lossand hadn't had a war with the Kirstians for centuries, Kenton recalled. True, they hated the DM, but they were also supposed to fear sand mastery to the point of irrationality. What could have convinced them to attack such a large group? Basically all the active Sandmasters, apart from those on assignment. Kenton pushed speculation aside, dashing forward. Regardless of their motives, the Kirstians were doing surprisingly well in the battle. Sand mastery was the most dangerous weapon on the sands, but its practitioners hadn't needed to defend themselves in hundreds of years. The Sandmasters fought as individuals, sending their ribbons against random Kirstians. The olive-skinned warriors were taking heavy losses, but they were advancing as their superior numbers allowed them to take down the Sandmasters one at a time. Unfortunately, most of the Sandmasters had decided to call up walls of sand to protect themselves, a method that was preventing them from seeing their enemies. The Kirstians easily ducked around the sides of the sand walls, attacking the unprepared Sandmasters with their bolts. Get out of the way! Get out of- Die, you heretic! Those who were powerful enough had made rings of sand around themselves instead. Behind me! Behind me! But that left them totally cut off from the battle, leaving the less powerful to fend for themselves. Aisha, it's a bloodbath! Kenton ran into the affray, whipping his sand to life. The Kirstian took sight of him, raising the tube-like Zinkal, a wrist-mounted crossbow, on his arm. Die, you heretic! With a flick of his wrist, the warrior released the Zinkal's air pressure, launching an arrow at Kenton's heart. Kenton waved his hand, and his sand obeyed, slapping the arrow out of the air. Then he snapped his finger forward with a sharp motion, drilling the ribbon of sand directly through the Kirstian's forehead. You're forgetting that sand mastery is the most dangerous weapon on the sand, friend. The sand fell dead a moment after it touched blood, but a moment was all that was necessary. Another Kirstian was on him a moment later, wielding a spear whose tip was fashioned from sandling carapace. <laughs> You're all out of sand, boy. Kenton brushed the attack aside with his sword. And you're all out of time. Kenton drove his sword point first through the Kirstian warrior's breast before the warrior even realized what was occurring, that this Sandmaster had more than one weapon at his disposal. Kenton paused, realizing that something was wrong with the warriors. The one he had just killed, and the attackers all around him, every warrior's forehead bore an X-shaped scar. That's... not right. Some Kirstians did wear ritual scars on their foreheads, but not all. So this meant something. But before he could consider the matter, he spotted a group of Sandmasters in trouble close by. No! Not like that! Kenton hurried toward the group, black-sashed Lestrals who were trying to defend themselves with walls of sand. Kenton reached forward, causing his sand to grab an arrow out of the air just before it hit one of the Lestrals in the chest. The young man, barely 16 years old, looked down at the bolt with a pale face. What do we do? Use ribbons, not walls. Don't leave yourself vulnerable. I... I couldn't catch one like that. Not even if your life depended on it? <sighs> you two, watch the Kirtians aiming at us and throw up a wall in front of them, not us. You others, attack! Understand? Yes, Kenton! 
The four Lestrals, three of them were far older than Kenton, agreed, obeying without question, fear in their eyes. There were so many wounded around them already, so many dead. It seemed an impossible task to turn the tide against their attackers now. And yet... We are Sandmasters! Never forget that! Now, with me, go! Kirstians began to fall as Kenton gathered other Sandmasters, adding them to the four Lestrals and creating a ring of organized Sandmasters. You! Can you stand? Yes! Ursulato! Back them up! Find others! Yes, sir! As he worked, amassing a creditable defense, Kenton thought on the impossibility of what was happening. The Sandmasters were out of combat practice, true, but even surprised, even unorganized, they should easily have defeated these foes. Something was wrong. Kenton scanned the battlefield, which was scattered with bodies, blood, and blackened sand. All of the rings of protective sand had fallen, crumbling to black dust, and the Sandmasters in sight, especially the Mastrals and Undermastrals, seemed to be in pain for some reason, even the ones who were unharmed. Then Kenton realized what it was. No! His throat was sharply dry, his breath starting to come painfully. He was running out of water. But I've only been mastering for a few minutes. It did not make sense. He could go a half hour without a drink, longer if he didn't do anything strenuous. Even on the Mastral's path, he may have collapsed at the end, but he had gone a full hour, 100 minutes, without water from his Gido. He couldn't argue with his body, however. It was warning him that he had wasted too much water. A short distance away, he saw Traben holding his face in agony. It hurts! It hurts! Uh, Traben! Traben! Kenton hurried to his friend's side. Traben stumbled as Kenton arrived, looking up as he dropped to the sand. No! Kenton froze in horror. Overmastery had been reached. Dehydration had set in across Traben's body, forcing him to drop to the sand. Traben, listen to me. Listen to me. Something is happening here. Something... I can't... I can't see. Traben's face stared back at Kenton with sightless sockets, where he had sucked the water from his own eyes. Even the newest Sandmaster knew how to control himself well enough not to do such a thing. No! I can't... As Kenton reached for his friend, Traben's skin flaked beneath his hands, cracking and splitting. It was impossible, Kenton told himself, clutching his friend's body. This was more than just overmastery. It was insanity. No Sandmaster would go this far without relaxing. They would surely surrender first. But no one was surrendering. Around Kenton, Sandmasters were dropping from sheer exhaustion, their bodies turning to dried husks, skin flaking away on the wind. Traben's mouth moved as he tried to speak again, but his tongue was a limp, dried strip in his mouth. It's okay. Hang on. I have water. Kenton quickly pulled out his yido, pouring its contents into the fallen Mastral's mouth. Then, uncertain what else to do, he pulled Traben back to the ring of Sandmasters he had formed, setting the wounded man in their center. Like Traben, they too were at risk of overmastering, drying out just as he was. Wait here. Master as little as possible to defend yourself. I'll return with water. Yes, Kenton. Hurry. Please hurry. The others nodded, eyes wide with panic. He had run the Mastral's path. They wanted him, needed him, to be a hero. Kenton raced through the line of men, attacking a Kirstian with his sword, his movements desperate. 
Realistically, he knew their chances were slim. Back off! Foolish Rikensha! Ah! He couldn't see a single Mastral or Undermastral still standing. In fact, a good half of the white-robed forms on the plane were immobile. Still, he fought, slaying the Kirstian with an angry command. Keep back! Keep back! Kenton whipped his sand forward, slicing it to the chests of three archers in a row before letting it die, lest it drain him of water. Even as he did so, three more Kirstians moved in to surround him, their short-hafted spears long enough to keep him from getting close enough to strike with his sword. Get him! Hold him! Come on, man! Come on! Kenton appeared to reach for another handful of sand when he heard Lord Praxton's bellow of rage. Praxton's scream surged across the plain, drawing the attention of both Sandmaster and Kirstian. Back where the battle had begun, beside the fallen throne, stood the Lord Mastral's form, an arrow sticking from his side above his golden sash. Not dead after all. Not yet. The ancient Mastral's eyes were wild with anger as he roared, raising his hands above his head. The sand at his feet rumbled, then exploded with light, shining like a second skin. A column of sand, fully 30 feet in diameter, rose up around him, swirling, pulsing like one of the horrible storms that sometimes struck the coast. The column shot outward, thinning into a wide disk, spreading like a ripple on a pond. The charged sand slammed into Kirstians, spraying gore as it sliced them in half. It moved blindingly quick, shearing bodies, hitting most of them before they realized they were in danger. It split where it encountered white robes, however, leaving Sandmasters unharmed. Dozens of Kirstians fell to the ground before the wave of sand. Ribbons of sand danced and twisted around Praxton as he continued to unleash the deadly wave, like some vengeful god so disappointed in all that he saw that he had no recourse but to wipe the slate clean, ready to start afresh. There was an edge to his screams now, an edge of pain. The Kirstians around Kenton dashed away as the wave approached. Look out! Run! Run! For a moment, just a single moment, Kenton wondered if his father's outburst had been only to protect him. And then it faltered, its glow dimming. A hundred Kirstian warriors were reloading their Zinkal weapons, peppering the old Lord Mastral's body with arrow after arrow. And in his last moment, the sand itself seemed almost to sigh as Lord Praxton, its master, its colleague, its friend, finally fell beneath the assault. The sand pulsed one last time and fell to the ground as a wide ring of black. At the very same time, the archers aiming at Kenton released their missiles. And in that final instant, the last of Praxton's sand enveloped Kenton, blocking the arrows that would have claimed his life, even as the great man breathed his last. The darkness claimed Kenton for the second time that day. And there, in total blackness, Kenton fell unconscious. Where? Kenton awoke in an embrace. Where am I? It was tight and warm and loving and it covered every inch of him. How did I get here? But there was something else too. Suffocation. (gasps) 
He was being held in the sand, under the sand. He was trapped there. Move! Ah, come on! He tried moving it with his sand mastery, but his powers would not respond. No, 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 no! Think, Kenton! Think! Every second was another second without breath, another second without sunlight or movement, another second of death. So he climbed, forcing himself up, pushing against the sand that had buried him. And with a final spasm of strength, head first, Kenton burst into the sunlight. Sand poured from his parched and cracked face, leaving behind confused, delirious eyes. Uh, what? What happened? Uh, uh. Only half conscious, he immediately fell back, slumping against the dune in which half of his body was still buried. As Kenton leaned back, his muddled mind reaching for the bliss of sleep, he felt the burning sun above him and knew somehow that he could not afford to fall unconscious again. Get up, Kenton. You're alive. Keep moving. Keep moving before the sun gets to you. He didn't know how long he had spent buried in his tomb of sand, but he would not last much longer with his skin exposed to the sun's fury. Exhausted and severely dehydrated, Kenton slowly pulled his body free from the dune. Don't stop! Kent, stop! Then he let himself slide down the slope until he came to a stop at the bottom. His knee bumped something soft, a body only recognizable by the white robe and gray sash. Sandlings, ranging from the size of a fist all the way down to dots smaller than a fingernail, feasted on the corpse, chewing away layers of skin as the sun obligingly sucked away the body's deadly water. Most of the corpse had already been reduced to bone. Aisha, get off him. Get off! Kenton brushed at the creatures, but as he did, he saw the other bodies, hundreds of them, perhaps thousands, all dressed in the familiar robes of the Sandmasters, and all dead. Am I the only one who survived? Hello? Anyone? Can anyone hear me? No one answered. No one moved. Kenton turned away, unable to feel sick. He could conceive only one thing, the desire for water. Ignoring the burning sands, Kenton moved in what he hoped was the direction of the camp. He passed more corpses, hundreds of them, all in white. The Kirstians would have taken their dead for a proper burial in the deep sands, leaving only his allies, or what remained of them. They're all dead. Craven, Pastor Ellerin, my father. Instinctively, he pushed his way into a tent, clambering for the shade. All dead. It was inconceivable, too much to process. Without conscious thought, Kenton stumbled over to the far corner of the tent, pulled the lid free of the small barrel there. He dipped his hand into the cool water within. Water. After drinking deeply, all dead. Kenton fell unconscious again. Chris felt sick as she trekked across the blistering sand. Her expedition had started as nine, but she had almost immediately lost Captain Doral and his lieutenant to that dynastic border patrol. Now, three more, the young soldiers, had deserted because of her poor leadership. 
Besides herself, only three remained, and it appeared it was her prerogative to choose which way they were going to die. Oh, my legs are so very tired. Can't we stop? And then what, Professor? Look around you. There's nothing but sand. And sun. There is a lot of sun. Too much. My sweat is beginning to form its own society. Good. Then at least you'd have something to study out here. I'm a linguist and I have no one to talk to. I'm going to die out here having never said a word. Bayan bit back a response that would have run along the lines of We can only dream. We have barely enough water to fill our three canteens, Bayon. Everyone turned to Chris. This isn't good. My good man, I hardly think you need to point that out to us. All right, you have some decisions to make, Duchess. Uh, I do? You are in charge of this expedition, are you not? This isn't the Elysian Senate. It's your expedition. You tell us what to do. I, I know. It's just that I didn't think we had a choice. We always have choices, Duchess. We can try to make it to a town. Feyan stopped as they crested a rise. Before them were bodies, some just shapes in the sand. And in the distance, a line of tents, their coverings flapping in the ever-present wind. <gasps> Shella! What happened here? Death. On a professional scale. Savages. All of them. Why would anyone... We should check the bodies. And the tents. Some of them will surely have had some water out here. Thus, without any further discussion, Bayon tromped ahead, seniority giving way to practicality as his old mercenary's survival instincts kicked in. The others followed. Perhaps they'll have seats in the tents? Primitive people don't fight the same way the dynasty does, Professor. Kenton did not know how long he slept. Voices woke him. Strange voices speaking words that were initially strange. With supposedly civilized restrictions. If these people were surprised by their enemies, then... It would have been a slaughter. You know a lot about war, dear man. Of course, that's what you're paid for. They were speaking dynastic, the language of Kenton's mother, a language he had not heard anyone speak in two years. Wait. Look there. Another one? What is it? Surely he can't be. Breathing? Yes, he is. Alert the Duchess, Professor. Kenton opened his eyes and saw the imposing figure who was leaning down to help him sit up. The man had the darkest skin that Kenton had ever seen dark even for a darksider, and his frame was broad-shouldered and muscular beneath his expensive clothes. Come on, lad. Up you get. Uh, uh, Here, drink. Despite his brutish appearance, the stranger gently helped Kenton drink from his water bottle. We've traveled a long way, but we're... let's call it lost? Do you understand me? My words? No? I see you've had a shock? What happened out there? It looks like a massacre. A massacre. Do you understand me, Daysider? Kenton handed back the water bottle, saying nothing. What was a Darksider doing here? Out in the Curla Sands? A world away from Darkside or from civilization? The question rattled in his head, 
the connections being made slowly in the muzziness he felt therein. As he turned the thought over in his mind, the drapes to the tent parted, and a woman entered, accompanied by two men. In here, Duchess. Like the men who had assisted Kenton, the three newcomers were also darksiders, their dark skins and smoked glasses marking them out immediately. The two men were older, their smart clothes at odds with the harsh environment of the Curla, their bearing as of royal courtiers rather than the soldier-like manner of the first. And the woman, well, she was something else again. Oh, what now? I should never have come to Dayside, Cinder. I'm not a leader of men. The Darksider woman's clothes were extravagant, her bearing imperious, and it took Kenton a few moments to process the conversation in the foreign tongue. The older one had called her Duchess. He's alive. The only one we've found so far. <gasps> Look at him. Probably scared, waking up after such a slaughter to find strange, dark-skinned people hovering over him speaking a strange language. One of the men, tall and reedy with thinning hair, gently checked Kenton's pulse. Either that, or he thinks he died and his god has a very odd sense of humor, Duchess. His pulse is steady, so there is that. Then as a local, perhaps he can lead us to more water. If we can somehow explain our dilemma to him. Well, you're the linguist, Professor. But an anthropologist like you should understand these primitive people better than I, Professor. Hold it, both of you. I suspect it won't be so hard, professors. Isn't that right, Daysider? Kenton looked blank for a moment, but he knew that the muscular man had guessed he understood them, even though he shouldn't, not on this side of the planet. Well, how do you people survive out here without water? <clears throat> you don't waste any time, do you? No. <laughs> he speaks! The water. How can you be out of water? You aren't in the desert yet. Sun? San? Conclusion? Desert? No, I mean a desert, a place with no water. Oh, wait a minute. How do you speak dynastic so well? One topic at a time, Duchess. Daysider, I don't understand you. If this isn't a desert, where's the water? Well, all around us, of course. You mean... No. Of course, no one told you. It's just, on Dayside, it's common knowledge. <gasps> you were faking! Duchess, please! He pretended not to speak our language! She turned on Kenton. You pretended not to speak our language! I did not. You sat there listening to us all the time, understanding what we were saying. Why didn't you say something? You never gave me an opportunity to speak. You have some water left. I assume... Uh... Call me Beyond. And we have only a little water, I'm afraid, Daysider. Why? Give it to me. The dark-skinned warrior reached down to his belt and pulled out a round container with a cap. Thank you. Kenton rose from his cot. <laughs> Easy, Daysider. I suspect you've had quite a trial. A moment later, the wave passed, but Kenton could still feel the weakness in his limbs. He was far from healed. Do we need to go far? No. Just outside. I can walk. Kenton walked slowly, with his muscles aching, across the tent. It's just... on Dayside, it's common knowledge. So you've said. After you, Professor Sender. Oh no, after you, Professor Aquan. I insist. 
Kenton felt the sun warming his body. Kenton and Bayon strode out across the sands, while the Duchess and the two academics trailed suspiciously after. What is he doing, Cinder? Leading us a merry dance, I should fancy. Do we need to go far? No. The water is all around us. If you know where to look... <laughs> Kenton's strength gave out as he walked out onto the sand, but he waved Bayon back as he sank to his knees. Let me help. No, I'm... I'll be fine. Should be enough. <gasps> no! What does he think he's doing? Let us indulge him for a moment, Duchess. But that's almost all our water. The Duchess does have a point, Bayon. The man's clearly in shock. And probably delusional. Respectfully, Duchess, we've lost our guide and three of our men already this day. As well as most of our supplies. Whether we like it or not, this local may be our only hope of survival. Kenton continued to pour, letting the water drain slowly so it soaked down rather than splashing outwards. Come on. Be here. This is clearly a fool's errand. The man's irrational with the sun. Maybe, Professor, but... The ground began to tremble slightly. Kenton thrust his hands into the ground, digging through the sand and grabbing the form he felt beneath. With a heave of his weakened arms, he pulled a thick vine from the sand. It was wider than a man's arm, a dull brown in color. What is he doing? What does he think he'll find? He could only lift it about a foot out of the sand. Both of its ends continued on beneath the surface. What he had pulled free was part of a much, much larger network. What is that? Kenton continued to clutch the uncovered vine. Friend, hand me your knife. Bayon pulled his knife from its sheath, a thick combat blade with a keen edge. Here. Careful, it's sharp. Kenton took the knife and began to cut into the vine. In a few moments, miraculous as it seemed, droplets of water began to appear like beads of sweat amid the capillaries. That's... Water? It's amazing. Get something to store this in. Yes, yes. As Bayon hurried back to the tent, Kenton pulled the two parts of the vine apart, and water began to seep from the hundreds of tiny tubes that ran inside its center. Oh, oh how did he know where to look? And when can he show me? Us, that is. I mean... Don't apologize, Duchess. Your inquisitiveness reflects well on your instructors. If you've learned nothing else, that would still be enough. Kenton refilled Bayon's water container as Chrysala padded over to see more closely. But how can this be? Why would they carry water like that, Decider? The plants carry the water for protection. Most sand creatures have hard shells that dissolve when they touch water. If sand creatures try to eat the Dorim vines, their mouths melt. But where does the water come from? It must be the water table, my lady. There must be a place somewhere beneath the sand where the water collects. Bayon returned from a tent with several empty water barrels from inside. Here, will these do? Yes, good. Kenton began to fill the first, using the vine almost like a hose. You'll need more? No, three will do. It took Kenton a few moments to fill all three barrels. Done. Incredible. If I hadn't seen it with my own eyes, I would doubt it had happened. Once he was done, Kenton pushed the two halves of the vine together, pressing firmly to help them reseal. A second later, it was done, 
and as he let the vine drop to the sand, its cilia quickly wriggled it beneath the surface. Our guide wasn't mad, at least. He could have found water at any time. He must have had quite a chuckle when we insisted on bringing water from the port city. There's something they don't teach you in your university, Duchess. The unlearned aren't as stupid as you think. I just want a drink. My mouth's been dry ever since we lost our man. As the Darksiders distributed the water containers and took drinks, Kenton walked away. These people are a long way from home. But then, so am I. They were at the edge of the battlefield, where the corpses of dozens of sand mastrels lay. Blood dried on their bodies, sand already piling up around and over them to claim them. Some sandmasters had dried out and were now more like sand sculptures. Farewell, my friends. My father, let us hope the Kurtians aren't right. Otherwise the afterlife will be very difficult for you. What is he doing? Grieving, I imagine. These are his people. Should we say something? He understands us. Let him have his thoughts. How could this happen? Why did it? The Kurtzians have denounced Sand Mastery for centuries, but what has suddenly made them act on their hatred? Did we become too haughty, maybe? Or too insular? When was the last time a Sandmaster helped build anything for people outside the Diem? Is that why they attacked us after so many years of peace? Had our closed ranks become intolerable? But there's more to this. They found an accomplice, someone within the Diem to help them. They had to have. Someone to poison the Masters, to leave us defenseless. The most arrogant among us. Dryle. And around him, the dried out bodies, some no more than husks, seemed to cry out for vengeance. Daysada! We must be leaving! But perhaps you will join us, since we are short a guide in these treacherous lands. Are you sure he can be trusted? No, but... I'll watch him, Professor. And the Duchess is correct. We do need a guide. The group of five are crossing the Curla Sands on the backs of riding mounts called Tonks, beetle-like creatures with armored shell bodies, four legs. Thus, Kenton remained with the Darksiders, offering to guide them as they trekked across the undulating sands of the Curla. Sticking together seemed a good proposition under the circumstances. They were lost, and he was alone. And not just alone. There were enemies out there, he knew now. The Kirstians had become bold and dangerous, more so than in many generations. They straddled atop the tonks that the Darksiders had brought with them and left at the edge of the battlefield, laden down with their possessions. The tonks were great beetle-like riding beasts that swayed as they walked, moving in an unhurried rhythmic way. The Darksiders looked uncomfortable in the relentless sun, and the woman called Chris wore a large floppy hat to protect her from it. So, how on the sands did you get lost out here without a guide? In a word? Betrayal. Some of our men became concerned we were here on a fool's errand and so they left us, though not without some fierce discussion. Our guide died during said discussion. Some discussion? But you're a long way from home. What brought you to Dayside? Learning. 
Ours is a scientific expedition. Then let me teach you some things. Here on Dayside, the sun is king. Karin philosophy, the religion of Kurtzians, calls the sun the manifestation of the Sand Lord, the source of man's autonomy and independence. And you? Even Daysiders who don't worship the sun feel some spiritual bond with it. That is to be expected. The sun plays such a crucial role here. I am an anthropologist, you see. Professor John Akron. And this is Professor Cinder, by the by. By the by? Pleased to meet you, Professor. I'm Kenton. Beyond, as you already know. Though you were a little distracted when we were introduced. And this here is the Duchess Kersala. Honored. We need provisions. Food for ourselves and the riding tongs. How well do you know this area, Kenton? How far is it to the nearest town? Two days' journey. This way. Oh, how can you be sure? Respectfully, everything looks the same out here. Magic. <gasps> you mean... When the sun hangs in the exact same spot for your entire life, you become sensitive to its changes. On dayside, you never need a map to guide you home. Only the sun. But you said magic at first. Do you believe in magic in them? Sure. Not that I've seen it, you appreciate but the Kurtzians talk about many things happening during worship services. What about the Sand Mages? The who? It had been a while since Kenton had spoken dynastic. He was unfamiliar with the word. The Sand Mages. They rule Lausanne. <laughs> You've been woefully misinformed, Duchess Chrysala. Lausanne is ruled by the professional heads, not your mages. I've never even heard of them. Then... Chrysala? Duchess? It's nothing. Just lead us to provisions, Kent. It took two days to journey to the settlement, a trading center characterized by colorful tents that shone brightly against the pale sand. Kenton had changed clothes, choosing not to advertise that he was a sandmaster while traveling among Kirstians, switching to a dun-colored robe. Kenton placed the bag full of metal onto the merchant's trading table. The low table, cloth stretched across a flat construction of sandling carapace, sat in the center of a gaudy tent with embroidered walls and numerous cushions. The Kirstian, a man with a broad face but thin limbs, opened the bag, picking at its contents with spindly fingers. That purse seems light, friend. The trader wore a golden coin pressed against his forehead tied there with two gold strings like a headband. Sitting beside Kenton, Chris frowned at the trader's words. She had removed her dark glasses and watched keenly as the trader examined the small items of jewelry and scientific apparatus inside the bag, items that had been procured from Chris's own belongings under Kenton's advice. The man's eyes lit as he saw some of the exotic jewelry. But for this? Ha! Best deal on sand! You want Kurtzian coin? You want Lausandian coin? Either coinage is fine. I'm just going to spend it on supplies. Spend them here, yes, friend? Well, I give you Sand's good deal. My cousin, he sells supplies, food, gedoin. Chris looked at Kenton. What's he saying? I can't follow a word. Not now, Chrysala. I deserve to know what's going on. Those instruments are mine, after all. I'll write you a transcript later. I don't trust you, Desider. 
For all I know, you're arranging to sell me into slavery instead of just selling my jewellery. I'd be lucky to get a three-legged tonk out of that deal, Chrysala. Now hush. Your companion is quite beautiful. However, I have found that Lancia women are rarely worth the trouble of their arrogance. Wise words, friend. Now, for the trade... The trader held a metal necklace up for study, using a lensed eyepiece. How much? Oh, friend, maybe forty lakh? Not much useful in scraps like this. Must be melted down, yes? Hmm. Put the bag back on the table. I may not be a merchant, but I know metal and stone are valuable out here. You're sitting atop sand that's a hundred feet above ground. There's no way that you're obtaining metal easily or cheaply. Perhaps, but you're lucky I'm trading with you. You're kind. My kind? You think changing your robes would confuse me? I'll trade with you, Mastro. You're mistaken. No, I think not. But still, we'll trade. Others in town may not be so open-minded, yes? Sift that sand, friend. What do you mean? You've never refused to trade with my people before? Times change. It is not a good time now to be friends with Rykensha. You understand? Rykensha. An old word for those who mastered sand, and not entirely a polite one at that. I'll take 40. But I want something else as well. Information. What's changed? You heard what happened in the Kurla. Why did Kurtzian warriors suddenly decide they could attack a group of sandmasters? Choose your words carefully, Ija. Ears are everywhere. Now come, quick. The trader rose and with stealth, despite his bulk, drew Kenton to the tent's flaps before parting them quietly. You see them? Kenton peered outside. Standing across the sand street were a couple of men, obviously warriors. They had Zingalin on their arms and swords were strapped to their sides. They wore shiny, well-made carapace armor. Soldiers? From the warrior Daikin. Soldiers, yes. Warrior Daikin, well... Kenton squinted, focusing on the men's foreheads. Every Kirstian man wore a symbol to mark his Daikin, his profession. Though a Daikin was more than just a job. Daikinen were more like clans, family groups that one could choose. The merchant symbol was a circle, and most of the merchant Daikin tied their marks to their foreheads. The warrior symbol was an X tattooed on the forehead. As Kenton looked, Chris moved closer to him. What's going on? Not now, Duchess. As one of the men turned, Kenton saw what the merchant was referring to. There was an X on the warrior's head, but it wasn't tattooed on. It was a scar. But scarring is the way of the... Priest, Daiki. Ah, yes. The new Akar, the high priest, he created it. This can't be good. Kenton was thinking back as he spoke, recalling the ambush on the Curla and the way that their attackers had sported that same X scar, every last one of them. We of the merchants are worried. The Akar has much popularity. He says he destroyed the Rykenshin, that the Sand Lord is very pleased with him, and a time of choosing comes very soon. Impossible. The merchant Daikin hasn't lost a choosing in centuries. The High Merchant is king in Ker Kadasha. The Ekar was wrong in one thing. The Rykensha, you, are still alive. A few, at least. There are other survivors? Y you've seen them? They passed through here a week ago. A dozen men. 
Then I'm not alone after all. Not all of us want the Ekar to be king, yes? So, I trade. You buy food, you go back to Los Sand. The Sand Lord may take my soul, but I would not see the Akkar's words be true. Kenton nodded. It was a lot to take in. Now, however, might I request you depart? I would rather not be seen in your company. Nothing personal, you understand? I understand. And thank you, Tradeka. It's not an easy choice you made. Uh, there's a risk in all trade, and where there's risk, there's profit. Here, 40 lakh. You see my cousin at the third tent? Tell him we made a deal. He will honor it. Thank you. Together, Kenton and Chris left the trader's tent, while the man stood watching the street uncomfortably. Bayan joined them from the shadows, where he had been waiting for the Duchess. That man seemed agitated. What was that about? Local politics. <laughs> politics? That's what you were talking about? Yes, curtsy and politics. What does that have to do with us getting food? Absolutely nothing. Then why bother with it? Bayan fell into step behind them, leaving the shade in front of the merchant's doorway, where he had been guarding. He wore a slight smile that seemed to say, She saved you, Daysider. Now you have to put up with her. It's complicated. Two hundred years ago, the Kurtzians and the Lysandin stopped fighting for the first time in history. Why were you fighting? Did they want your land? Hardly. The Kurtzians call Lossand the Rykel, the cursed land. It's the desert, remember? No water vines. Then why fight? Because we're infidels, non-believers. Two, three... This stall, wasn't it? They had stopped close to a trader dressed in similar clothes to the man they had left. He was already busy loading the last of their saddlebags. Kenton watched two Kirstian soldiers pass close by on their patrol before he spoke again. The historical Kirstian viewpoint was that we had to be slain for our own good, so we didn't reproduce and raise up more infidels. But 200 years ago, the Akar, the High Priest, lost the kingship for the first time in recorded history, and the High Merchant was crowned instead. How does one lose a kingship? The nobility, the Klin, voted against him. The Klee title passes from father to son, and over time it became more populated by merchants than holy men chosen by the Akar. According to the merchant, change is on the wind. The 50 years between choosings is up this year. The symbol that the soldiers wear is the Akar's symbol. The cross? I've seen it before, Kenton. Wait, you've what? When we first met Port Andeside two weeks ago, we stumbled into a... Rally, I suppose you would call it. The man hosting it spoke in a tongue Cinder and I just barely recognized. So quickly were the words spoken. And not just quickly, there was anger there. Real anger. What did he say? Professor Cinder recognized it as Karshant, the holy language of the clergy. He told us that the man said, May the Sand Lord bless us. Hmm. I wonder what he wanted blessed. An endeavor of some sort, perhaps? It certainly struck a chord with the crowd. In my experience, crowds are like the tonks you ride, Chris. They're easily led. Wait, what did you just call me? Chris. Chrysala is too long, especially if I'm going to use it to annoy you. Well, you shouldn't. That's what Gavon used to call me. Who's... Kenton paused as he felt an almost unnoticeable tug at his money pouch. 
a pickpocket. Fortunately, he didn't have any money. Unfortunately, he had chosen to store something infinitely more precious in his money pouch. He reached for the thief's hand. Hey! Thief! The pickpocket was a small Kirstian boy of perhaps twelve. Kenton was too slow. The boy had already started to pull back when Kenton reached for him. And as the boy moved away, his hand tugged something bright from Kenton's pouch. The end of his golden Mastrel's sash. Ice. The boy dropped the sash as if it were a deadly sandling. My cancer! My cancer! The marketplace froze around them, hundreds of eyes turning to focus on the sash. Which Kenton furiously tried to stuff back into its pouch. In that instant, the time of a single heartbeat, Kenton knew that everything had changed. As he worked to hide the sash, his eyes fell on a pair of faces that stood out from the crowd. Faces with cold eyes and scarred X's on their foreheads. Kenton, are you all right? We'd better go. What's wrong? What is it? Just go, Chris. Right now. They entered what Kenton called the desert, just after leaving the town a few hours before. But the landscape seemed the same to Chris. This is the desert? This is the desert. There was nothing around them to be seen but the same white dunes, some barely a few feet in height, others taller than a man astride a horse. Chris rode beside Kenton, who led the way, while the two professors followed, and Bayon brought up the rear, ever alert to danger. How do you know? Everything looks the same out here. How far is it to Lawson? We're already in Lawson. It starts where the desert does, though the sand won't recede until tomorrow. My turn. Who is Gavin? You mentioned the name earlier. He... Well, he was my betrothed. Gavaldin, Prince of Ellis, the second son. But an important match, nonetheless. I came to Dayside because he... because of him. To get away from him, then? No. Then why? Looking for a place to settle away from your primary wardrobe? If you must know, Gavon is dead. I'm sorry. So your expedition isn't just one of scientific exploration. You're here for revenge. Not revenge. A dream. A foolish man's dream. What does Dayside have that's so intriguing? Sand mages. Oh. Your mythical rulers of Lawson. Of course. They're legends on Darkseid. Powerful beings who control the elements with their magics. They're just children's stories. <laughs> Only Gavin believed them. And I suppose I wanted to for him. But until you said... I'm sorry. What did your story say? That the Sand Mages did preposterous things. Flying through the air, calling up sandstorms. Granting wishes to lost travelers. They were impervious to weapons and made objects float with their minds. <laughs> They're just silly stories about this, I think. To us, this place is a great unknown. Yes. Stories. Decider, I have a question. Ever since we left that town, you've been looking over your shoulder, but now you stopped. Why? Do you think we might be followed? Kenton wanted to explain that it was because of the sash the pickpocket had revealed, how it marked him as a sandmastrel. 
But until he could figure out what the Duchess Chrysala wanted with the Sandmasters, well, as his old friend Eric would frequently remind him, it wasn't smart to show your sand too early. It doesn't matter now. I was wrong, Bayon. They aren't... A massive, man-shaped form exploded from the side of the dune next to Bayon, covered in sand. The warrior leapt for Bayon, tearing the Darksider off his tongue. My word, it's a robbery! Keep your head down, you fool! Bayon's assailant, a bare-chested Kirstian, fell with him. The Tonks shuffled nervously, kicking up sand as the two men rolled on the ground. The Kirstian clutched Bayon's robes with one hand and raised a carapace hatchet in the other. Tensor! Collaborator! I don't understand a word you're saying! The sand exploded all around them, spewing forth a half-dozen further warriors. Kenton! Who are they? Kirtians! Wait! I don't understand! Where are you? Kenton jumped off his tongue. Aisha! The move was well-placed. For a moment later, he heard the distinctive air rushings of Zinkalin being fired. Three small arrows hissed through the air above him, and a fourth snapped off his tongue's carapace. Well, that erases any doubts about negotiating. I can guess who it is they're after. Me. The Sandmaster with the shiny gold sash. Kenton pressed against the side of his mount, keeping it between himself and the majority of the Kirstians. Only one was on his side. Unfortunately, one was more than enough. Die, Rakensha! The warrior, clothed in black carapace armor, was already aiming his Zinkal to fire again. Years of training with the tower's warriors caused Kenton to drop instinctively. Rolling to the ground, dodging a virtually point-blank shot. Kenton rolled to his feet only a short distance from his opponent, but now he clutched a handful of sand. You want to fight a Mastral? Fine! Here! Sandlord, protect me! Kenton thrust the sand forward. Nothing happened. What? I said, no! The powers are gone. Kenton threw the ineffectual sand at his opponent. The Kirstian, still expecting the sand to kill him, threw up his arms. Sandlord, protect your loyal servant! When the unmastered grains sprayed across his armor, the man barely had a chance to lower his arms in confusion before... Kenton's punch took him in the face. The Kirstian stumbled backwards, clutching at his broken nose. Old-fashioned, I know, but effective nonetheless. Kenton followed the stumbling warrior. Even stripped of his sand powers, he was not defenseless. He reached down to slide the man's carapace sword free from the sheath at his side. I'll take this. Sudden pain sliced through Kenton's arm, and he felt an arrow tear at his robes. It only nicked his skin, but it was enough to remind him that this was not a one-on-one battle. Kenton thrust the carapace sword at his opponent's face. The warrior, who had recovered from the punch, easily blocked the blow with his armored forearm. Kenton's attack had another purpose, however. He spun around the warrior, putting the man's body between himself and the rest of the battle. The archer who had wounded him still had one arrow left, and as Kenton turned, he was able to pick the man out. He had rounded Kenton's tongue and knelt on the sand, his face calm as he aimed his gauntleted forearm for another shot. A shot that was now blocked, however, by his comrade. Wait! Don't shoot! Don't shoot! Kenton reached out for his human shield, intending to grapple with the man and hold him close in an attempt to keep the others from firing their Zinkali. Come here, you! 
Unfortunately, the Kirstian realized what was happening, and instead of spinning to face Kenton, he simply started running in the opposite direction, leaving Kenton standing stupidly on the sand with no cover. Two other warriors moved around the Tonk and prepared to take shots at him. Target's clear! Kill him! Kenton looked around wildly, realizing he was trapped. His back was to a dune, and he had opponents on all sides. He barely had time to reach down for a handful of sand and hold it out threateningly. Come to life! But still nothing happened. <gasps> Kenton, look out! Kenton waded into battle, swinging the stolen sword. <laughs> Years of training with the tower's warriors had made his responses second nature. No, you don't get me without a fight. So, let's finish this quickly! Behind him, the Tonks had buried themselves in the sand, an instinctive response to danger. Chris, Cinder, and Akron were caught up in the enforced burial, their legs trapped in the sand as the Tonks burrowed head first into the dunes. Unable to move, Cinder was struck by an arrow from a warrior's Zinko. Kenton could not help feeling bitterness. The Duchess and her people thought they were savages on this side of the world. Seeing only this sorry display, Kenton would have accepted their viewpoint. But he knew that the Kirstian warriors were after him. They had always feared the Sandmasters, but they had never been so bold up until now. It was as the merchant had said at the trading spot. The Akar, or High Priest, must have got them riled up to make them attack so boldly like this. Again, Kenton grabbed a handful of sand. As he whirled to avoid a Zinkal bolt. The lifeless sand tumbled to the ground as it fell from Kenton's hand, but it suddenly did not matter. Before him, the warrior's head exploded. Did I do that? I can't have. My sand wouldn't charge. Then he saw Bayon. The black-skinned warrior stood tall, some sort of steel tube held in his hand. Smoke rose in the air before him. The Kirstian that had attacked Bayon lay face down in the sand, his neck twisted at a gruesome angle. Calmly, the Darksider turned his weapon on another one of the archers. Carapace armor shattered like glass, and the warrior was thrown backward several feet. When the man fell to the ground, Kenton could see a hole in his back, a hand span wide. The hard-faced Darksider turned his weapon on a third man. The Kirstian stared at his opponent for a moment, his eyes wide with horror. No! No! Before breaking into a terrified run. The other three joined him, running for the cover of the nearest dune. Run! Run! The Rakitsha's allies have their own magic! They're leaving! Then they are wise. Are you all right, Daysider? I can't command the sand anymore. Kenton! Shook up, but I'm... I'll be fine. But I can't command the sand anymore. I can't... We don't have much time. Bayan kneeled down before the warrior who had first attacked. The man's neck was broken. He wore minimal clothing, and his forehead showed another of those X-scars. Recognize him? I've never seen anything like him before. Kurtians never fight unarmored. Yet this man attacks wearing little more than a loincloth. He's also shaved his head. I've never seen a Kurtzian do that. What about the scar? It's certainly intentional. Ritualistic, perhaps. The square is the symbol for priests, but the X inside is the marking of a warrior. I've never seen both together before, Bayon. A warrior priest, perhaps? 
He ruined the ambush by jumping out too soon. That saved our lives. Tell me, why did they want to kill you, Daysider? For something I used to be. We should go, Bayon. We should. You believe they'll be back? Yes. Kurtzians never abandon the bodies of their fallen. They believe a man must be buried in deep sand lest his soul be lost to wander the curler. Bayon nodded, replacing his strange weapon in a sheath at his side. Kenton regarded it for a moment, remembering its incredible power. He had seen the unfamiliar items at Bayon's sides, but had assumed them to be instruments of some sort. Who could have imagined a weapon so small, yet so destructive? Kenton shook his head, moving over to begin raising the tonks. Ask later. Right now, we need to move. My first battle! I say, Kenton, does this sort of thing happen often? Akron, oh, for once, please shut up! The older professor was clutching his left arm, the end of a Zinkal arrow sticking from between his bloodied fingers. Let me help you. It's nothing. Stay still so I can remove it. With a simple tug, Kenton pulled the arrow out of Cinder's arm. It slid out easily, for it no longer had a head. What? Where's the tip? The arrowhead wasn't treated. The carapace dissolved. Grit your teeth. This is going to hurt. As he spoke, Kenton reached for his guido. Just a little to finish the job. What are you doing to him? Carapace can cause a wound to fester. The water dissolves it, but we don't want to infect. Do we, Professor? No. Thank you. May I have your scarf? Yes, of course. Too wretched hot to wear anyway. Kenton began to bind the wound. Interesting. Local customs often originate in practicality and survival. Once Kenton had finished binding Cinder's wound, he tapped the Tonk's horn with the tip of his sword sheath. The creature immediately began to unbury itself, shaking and wiggling as it climbed out of the sand. Interesting process. I think I can do the others. I'll... Kenton paused beside Chris's Tonk. The girl had obviously been disquieted by the battle. Her eyes were closed, and she was rocking back and forth. Kenton waited hesitantly for a moment, then reached out to shake her on the shoulder. Chrysala, are you okay? Do you need help? Fighting like that is a little outside my realm of experience, Kenton. But I'm all right. Just stuck fast. Let me... Whoop! But why? Why would these... These beasts develop such odd behavior. Surely hiding beneath the sand doesn't protect them from predators. Riding tonks have very weak minds. This isn't to protect them from predators. This is what they do in a sandstorm. Whenever they get confused, they assume they're in a sandstorm and bury themselves beneath the ground. Oh, I see. Well, thank you. No, thank you. Your man, Bayon, saved my life. It was more self-preservation, Daysider. Now, is our linguist all right to keep moving? He should be. Melted carapace rots easily unless it is dried properly. I think I got the wound clean enough. Bayon watched Kenton for a moment, other questions running through his mind. He asked nothing further, however. Instead, he walked back to one of the fallen warriors. Once there, he stooped briefly, removing the zinkal from the priest's arm by cutting its straps, then walked back to his tongue.
The weapon is called a pistol, if you were wondering. Kenton looked up slowly, where Chris's words intruded on his thoughts. There was a haunted expression on his face, one of sorrow. He had grown quiet after the attack, almost unresponsive. During the past few hours, he had ignored Chris's every attempt to draw him into conversation, an attitude that she found increasingly frustrating. She wanted to know why they had been attacked, who those men had been, and if they would attack again. Unfortunately, Kenton wasn't talking. So Chris had decided to try a new approach. Instead of asking questions, she tried to fuel Kenton's sense of curiosity. It would have worked for her, after all. They're relatively new to Darkseid, less than a century old. Only a few of the nations have them. The dynasty is very proficient at keeping new technology from spreading through its provinces. Skathen, the current monarch of the dynasty, knows how dangerous a little knowledge can be. Does it use air pressure? No. It relies on a type of explosive called gunpowder. This gunpowder must be powerful to cut through sandling carapace armor. How many times can it be used? Just once. But Bayon's pistols have two barrels. They're officers' weapons. Very well crafted. Two barrels? Then he was bluffing? He couldn't have killed that third Curtian. Not unless he pulled out his other pistol. Now what is going on, Kenton? Those Curtians attacked us just to get to you, didn't they? And they considered you so dangerous. They only sent one of their men against Bayon, but sent six against you. What are you hiding? Well, certainly not the fact that you annoy me, dear Chrysala of Darkseid. I... When he saw her expression, Kenton cursed himself. How could he be so cruel? Had he spent so long fighting authority that he didn't know how to stop? Sorry. It's not my best day. I suppose not. So, do you think those warriors will attack again? I wondered when you would get to that. Well, we deserve an explanation of some sort. I suppose you do. No, I don't think they'll attack again. We're too close to Los Andin civilization now. But why did they try to kill us in the first place? Not us. Me. They have nothing against Darksiders. They are opposed to Los Andon religious principles, however. I thought you said that the wars were over. I thought they were. Besides, just because most Curtians are willing to forgive our heathen nature doesn't mean they all have. Those men we saw, they belong to some new Curtian religious group. That's why they tried to kill me. I'm a non-believer. Chris frowned. There was more he wasn't telling her, but she could sense the reservation within him. After traveling with him for just a few days, she knew that if she tried to press the issue, he would only grow more withdrawn. In front of them, Bayon suddenly brought his mount to a halt, his head frozen in a posture of listening. Chris grew cold, her hand suddenly gripping the unloaded pistol with tense anxiety. What had the warrior heard? Had the Kirstians finally returned? Bayon frowned, then turned his mount, hammering it forward and to the west. Move, beast! Bayon, wait! Where are you going? Chris followed anxiously, but he didn't go far. The mercenary led his tongue up the side of a shallow dune, cresting the top and pulling to a halt. Oh, there. Easy now. Okay, good. Steady now. Chris stopped beside him, and only then did she discern what he had noticed. (gasps) 
water. Before her, the sand fell away, revealing a dun, flat plain of smooth rocks marked with occasional piles of white sand. A cavern opened from the rock floor a short distance away, and bubbling from its depths was a massive river. The Rido Ali, the bane of cursed waters, as the Kurtzians have dubbed it. Lifeblood of Lawson. It's amazing. It is. Just moments before, we had been in a stark desert, not a patch of water to be seen. But now this, a roaring river at least 50 feet wide. We must have finally dropped beneath the water table. But where does it come from? That mountain, perhaps. Do you see? Water melts at the mountain's top, but gets trapped in caverns and cliffs, traveling down the rock until it stops far beneath those sands. That seems credible, Professor. Thank you. Credible for dayside, anyway. The rules here seem so contrary. They probably think the same about you. Chris ignored him. Regardless of its geological roots, she found the river intoxicating. For weeks now, she had seen nothing but the repetitive dunes of white sand. She was happy to see anything different, even if it was relatively wan by dark side standards. The land surrounding the river was by no means lush, but compared to the desert, it was fertile. Sickly green bushes burrowed their roots into the rocky brown soil around the river, and there were even a few squat trees, though nothing grew on the pale white patches of sand. Los Andra lies on the Ali for nearly all of its water. Our society can't stray far from its banks. There aren't any vines, and wells are unreliable at best. Welcome to the desert. Time passed, but the sun never wavered. The group crossed the desert on their steeds, Kenton quiet and withdrawn as he pondered his own secrets, Chris ever inquisitive. How far do we have to go? As far as it is. Do you mean to be infuriating? Duchess, leave the man be. At that point, Bayon produced the Zinkal weapon that he had liberated from the fallen Kirstian ambusher and passed it to Chris to study. Here. Something to look at. It's an interesting device. What is it called, Kenton? A Zinkalin. Or Zinkal. Zinkalin. The top of the weapon was protected by an oblong, convex piece of carapace that ran from wrist to elbow. The shell ran around a group of wooden tubes and strange black chambers. The three chambers, shaped something like a pear, each fed into a thin carapace pipe, perhaps an inch in diameter. Arrows fit snugly in the tubes, the plug just behind the arrowhead forming a seal and holding the missile in place. It's mechanically simple. It operates along similar principles to our pistols, but uses air for its propulsion. She released the pumping mechanism, a long rod that folded out of the underside of the weapon and began to repressurize the chambers. The pump worked easily, working at an angle like a bellows rather than up and down. It's very efficient. After just five or six pumps, she was able to reload one of the small arrows and fire again. Kenton took note of how the noblewoman had reached her conclusion so swiftly. She understood mechanisms, how they were put together, how their parts worked. It suggested she was more than just the clothes horse he had taken her to be when he had first seen her. Hmm, not much power, though. This wouldn't go through armor. Not carapace armor. But Zinkalin aren't meant to be used like bows. They're for short-range combat to wound your opponent before you engage him with your sword. 
The best Kurtzian warriors, however, are good enough shots to incapacitate or kill with a single arrow. They trekked on, crossing the desert step by step. Zinkalin. Zinkalin. It took two days. They had crossed desert and seen more sand than Chris ever wanted to, all the while under the watchful eye of the relentless, unchanging sun. But at last, they had reached their final destination. The city of Kazer, capital of Lausanne. A wide river ran toward the city, bisecting the land before them. We'll need to cross the river? Yes. The land on the banks was fertile, with crops growing, harvested by the Lausandin farmers. A few dwellings lined the banks of the river like suburbs leading to the grand city itself. Seen from a distance, the city featured close-packed streets and low buildings, and many of the more impressive structures were built of sand. The sand buildings were dilapidated, however, patched haphazardly with carapace shell and cloth, where they were slowly giving way to entropy. It's... Why, it's splendid! Fascinating! Truly fascinating! I expected. Oh, this isn't what I expected. We'll need to catch a ferry from here to get across the water. For Kenton, it was Kazar, a place he had lived all his life. <clears throat> I'll secure you a ride and someone to get you to Lonsaire, the dark side section of the city. It took Kenton just a few moments of negotiation with a local ferrywoman on the docks. Today, my associates here require passage to Lonsaire. To them? Seven lakh. Make it five. Lanzaire is out of my way. Kenton opened his robes and drew out the sash that marked him as a sand mastrel. Or it had. He wondered what claim he had to it now, with his powers exhausted. However, seeing the sash did the trick, and the fairy woman capitulated, knowing a mastrel could request any service for free. Five lakh, you said? They'll pay. Kenton returned to where Chris and her group were waiting atop their mounts. The lady will take you. Five lakh. Pay her when you reach the destination, not before. And you'll need to leave the tonks behind. Why? Because they don't like water and won't cross it. Then how will we get around in the city? You walk. Or I suppose you can hire a carriage if you must. Which means I am afraid that this will be farewell, Chrysala. Goodbye? I have things I need to attend to. Oh, goodbye, Kenton. It has been an education. The ferrywoman's crew helped the Darksiders load their supplies, which included several large, robust cases. Oh, careful with those. They're... What did she say? Forget it, Duchess. They don't understand. Perhaps we'll find someone in the Darksider section who can speak dynastic as well as the local tongue. And until then? I suggest you instruct me to carry anything precious, such as your equipment. Thank you, Bayon. I wonder what kind of city it will be, Professor. Cinder rubbed his arm where the arrow had pierced. The kind where men of learning get shot at by savages, I would hazard, John. Now remember, my esteemed friend, a true man of learning retains an open mind. <laughs> I'd sooner that than an open wound. <laughs> Elsewhere, in a narrow, shadowy alleyway, close to the Khazar docks, over two dozen uniformed figures were listening to the final instructions of their superior, a senior tract called Ace. It's taken months to find Lachlan, and weeks to plan this raid. Everybody here knows that. 
Yes, ma'am. She, like all of them, wore black armor and a cloak. Their ranks were differentiated by subtle markings, their weaponry on show. Timing is everything. They were the thin line of defense that kept Khazar from sinking into lawlessness, and Ace, above all of them, approached that task with absolute gravity. We won't have a more perfect opportunity than this day. Taisha's in session today, serving as an ideal distraction. Ace did not voice her suspicion that Nilto, the so-called Lord Beggar, was giving testimony there, and that she had concluded that he was also Sherzan, the ruthless master criminal whose operation they were hoping to bring down. No, that suspicion would remain her own, for now. If we strike swiftly, and if he's there, we can bring Lachmalin into custody before 10th hour. Your men understand how important Lachmalin is, yes, Jadan? He's Sherzan's right-hand man. I've circulated his image and details. If he's here, he won't walk out. Jadan, Tane, are your men ready? Senior tracked Ace looked at her two trusted seconds. Jadan, loyal to his very core and quick thinking. Tane, slower, more meticulous, but infinitely trustworthy. Their styles of enforcing the law were different. Different again to Ace's often instinctive way, but they knew how to get results. I have my people on the roof ready to go, and my squad will be with you when you enter, ma'am. Excellent. And Tane? I'll bring my team in as the second wave once you've made entry, ma'am. Excellent. Okay, people. Wait for my signal. I'm telling you, it's empty. It's empty! All of the DM's riches are completely unguarded, left to be plundered. And the best part is, we know no one's going to come looking for them. They're all dead! All the Sandmasters! Besides, you know who the real thieves here are? Them! The Sandies taking whatever they want and ignoring the rest of us. We're only balancing the scales. I don't know. They aren't all dead. Enough of them are, right? Meris eyed his other two colleagues at the table. All four were experienced thieves, but rumors of the big score to be had at the abandoned DM were too much for him to ignore. If it's so easy, why don't you just walk in there yourself, Maris? I can't do it alone. You know the DM. All the valuables are on the second floor and no stairs to get up there. It's a three-man job minimum. Plus, share the wealth. Right, guys? <laughs> Theirs wasn't the only such conversation happening in the room. The hall was a favored meeting place and was filled with tables, plush chairs, and cushions on the floor. The room was well lighted by the windows. Even thieves on dayside shunned darkness, but was on the building's third floor, which offered a measure of protection against being seen. At least a half dozen conversations, just like Maris's, were happening around the room, each of them potentially discussing the same plan. That was why he needed to move quickly. Look, I know it sounds dangerous, but are we going to let a few Sandies, dead Sandies, keep us from the hall of a lifetime? I'm telling you, we don't have long. As soon as people realize that the Mastrals really aren't coming back, the Diem is going to be crawling with job men. What about the ones that are still alive? Most of them aren't even powerful enough to get to the upper floors. They'll never know we're there. Besides... I have it on good authority that after today, we won't have much to worry about. Is that so? What do you mean? Let's just say that the Diem as a profession is about to go the way of its master 
All right. I'm in. Me too. Sure, Maris. You ain't never steered me wrong before, my friend. <laughs> ah, great! Four-way split, right? At that very instant, the room plunged into blackness. What the... Hey, what's happening? What's... The darkness parted slightly after a moment. The door opened on the far side of the room, light from the hallway outside spilling in. However, Maris's horror didn't go away. Silhouetted in the doorway stood a form easily identified by its flowing cape. Uh, tracks! Maris reached for his sword as Zinkalin began to fire. Senior tracked ace strode through the room, sword in one hand, Zinkal raised to fire. You're all under arrest! Few of the thieves offered resistance, however. They were too confused by the sudden darkness and subsequent attack to do much but stumble around in confusion. The thick cloth window coverings, rolled down by Jadan's men on the roof, were removed just after Ace's squad entered the room, and Jadan's squad began coming down ropes just outside. However, it appeared as if such cautions were unnecessary. All right, don't push! Hands where we can see them. The thieves capitulated with barely a struggle, knowing they were outnumbered. Lockmalin isn't here, ma'am. Ace looked around at the faces of those her men were arresting, confirming the observation of her man Tane. You're right. Jadan? Good experience for the men, I guess, ma'am. Most of Jadan's squad was made up of younger tracks, recent additions to Ace's band. Ugh. We all know that most of these lowlifes will get off because of lack of evidence. I recognize several of them. Maybe something will stick. Ugh. Months of planning had been wasted. Ace was no closer to catching Nilto in his guise of Sherzen than she had been before. She had failed. She could almost hear the Lord Beggar laughing when he heard about Ace's mistake, her raid on a den of pickpockets and petty burglars. <sighs> a sharp pain brought Ace back to the room. Her hands were clenched so tightly that her fingernails were biting into the skin of her palms, drawing blood. Ace quickly refocused, pushing back the anger and rage before it took her over. Her breathing slowed, and her muscles relaxed. Had this lapse been noticed? Looks like we're done here, ma'am. Fourteen arrests. Not bad. Yes. Good. Let's get these gentlemen over to the hall for processing. Ace frowned, watching her second cross the room. Something's wrong. She followed Jadan, stepping off the distance from one wall to the other. The room was too small. It didn't match the careful plans Ace had drawn for the building. That meant... Several small sections of the far wall opened, revealing the ends of Zinkalin. Get down! It's a trap! Everybody form... The arrow took a surprised Jadan in the neck, dropping him and curtailing his scream. Other tracks were falling, arrows sticking from their chests or limbs. Ace dashed forward, heedless of the archers, running toward the wall. Death won't stop me today! A dozen arrows snapped past her, the archers finding it difficult to aim for single targets in such an enclosed space. One arrow passed within inches of Ace's leg, tearing a hole in her cape as it sped by. The tracts offered a pathetic resistance, many of them wounded or dead, the others unable to fire effectively against such a massive assault. Ace met the wall. Now! Let's find out! Reached through an arrow hole to snatch the end of one man's zinkal. What kind of coward? The surprised archer fired his weapon into the floor as Ace grabbed hold of his arm with both hands and... <laughs> yanked it forward. Hides in a wall! The man's unseen body slammed against the inside of the wall, shaking the structure. 
Ace yanked again. Smashing the body repeatedly against the wall. And with one final pull, a large section of the flimsy false wall broke free, and Ace pulled an unconscious body through the rubble. Ace jumped through the newly made hole, surprising the archers on the other side. You're all under arrest! The small room was much plusher than the one outside. It was decorated with tapestries and cushions. There was an open window on the far side, and Ace briefly caught a glimpse of Lachlan's Kirstian face slipping out of the room and down a rope ladder. Lachlan, don't move! Drown in sweat, Kate! The archers around Ace reacted, pulling their arms out of the arrow holes to point at her. Kill her! Her own weapon was already raised, however, and she fired an arrow point-blank into the nearest archer's eye. Ace ducked, hearing Zinkaline releases stutter from either side as the archers foolishly shot at one another. You shot me! Ace rolled to the side, whipping her sword from its sheath. The shiny black carapace blade found its place in the second archer's chest as the man realized his Zinkal's three shots had already been expended. A moment later, the fight was over. Her insane assault had forced the archers to stop firing at her tracts, and seconds afterward, Ace's well-trained men had regrouped and followed her through the hole. You're outnumbered, my friends. And outgunned. Okay, okay, we give up. Just don't shoot us! Deal with them! Ace charged across the room to the open window where the ladder waited. I saw Lachlan! I'm in pursuit! Ma'am, I... Ah! But Ace was already gone, leaping through the window and swinging recklessly down the ladder in pursuit of her real quarry. Elsewhere, on a rowboat approaching the Khazar docks, Iador the boatman looked up as his passenger muttered something to himself. You know, you're a fool for coming back. You okay, buddy? Travel sick, maybe? The passenger ignored Iador. He stood at the front of the small rowboat, heedless of its rockings, staring at the approaching city of Khazar. It's so hot on this side. You hate heat. And all that sand getting into your shoes and your lungs. It's horrible. Iador continued to row. Sure, buddy. Whatever you say. His passenger was definitely an odd one. His skin marked him as Losandin, but he spoke as if he'd been out of the country for some time. He had curly brown hair that sat like a disheveled mop on his head, and he was a bit overweight. His clothing was very irregular. It resembled the things that Iador had seen Darksiders wearing in the marketplace, constructed of many layers of cloth, and the bottom piece was divided like leggings, but not as tight. There were strange clasps and buckles everywhere. Darksider clothing had always confused Iador. Why wear something with so many pieces when a robe worked just as well? Of course, you have a noble purpose in coming. You haven't seen Kenton in three years, and he was once your best friend. Too bad he's dead. Of course, you always said becoming a Sandmaster was a bad decision. Sandmaster? Quietly, Iador made a Kareen sign warding against evil. He wasn't Kirstian. But he was a God-fearing man. He suspected he should have refused to ferry this stranger. Well, I suppose you can still pay your respects at his funeral. Maybe there'll be food. 
You'll stop, my friend. Iador pulled the boat into the docks, moving as quickly as he could, for he was eager to release his passenger. Huh? The man didn't comply with Iador's sense of urgency, stretching leisurely, then reaching behind to pull out a strange dark side cloth bag. He hung by a strap from his shoulder. Here. Thanks for the conversation. No problem. With that, the man stepped from the little rowing boat and onto the jetty, leaving Iador to make the Kareen symbol against evil once more. Hey! What conversation? Maybe the money was tainted, too. Eh, I'll risk it. Meanwhile, Senior Tracked Ace was running through the crowded market at the dockside, black carapace sword in hand. Up ahead, the punchy figure of Lachlan ducked into an alleyway leading away from the busy market. Move! Move! Ace halted at the mouth of the alleyway, pressing her back to the wall as she peered warily down it. Surrender, Lachlan! There's nowhere left to run! <laughs> There's always somewhere to run, Ace! Filthy sentia! As if to emphasize his point, Lachlan sent a Zinkal bolt hurtling down the alleyway. It missed Ace's head by barely an inch. Ace darted into the alley, her left arm raised, with her wrist-mounted Zincaline used as a shield. Lachlan faced her from the far end, a permanent sneer of cruelty on his scarred face. He was armed with a Zincaline on his left wrist, but he drew a narrow-bladed black sword from a sheath at his hip, ready to meet Ace's attack. Haven't you lost enough men today? Your raid was a bloodbath! Ace brought her sword to meet with her opponents. Parrying <laughs> blow for blow. You've murdered three tracts. Do you think I would turn a blind eye to that? Do you think any tract would? Now tell me where your master is. Who are you working for? Where is Sherzad? You enforce a law that favors God's eternal adversary, Sencha. And what's more... <laughs> You are weak! As their swords met, Lachlan shot an arrow from his Zincaline. Down through the fleshy part of Ace's thigh. And with it, Ace fell. <laughs> I've met children with more skill, Tracked Ace. This is what you betrayed your people to become? I serve only justice, Lachlan. And justice belongs to the Sand Lord. The criminal brought his sword down again. And Ace was lucky to parry the blow with her Zincaline. Fool. You're a traitor to your people. A naive traitor. So lost you can no longer tell which way the desert wind is blowing. A traitor to your heritage, to your people, to their future. No! The brute lashed at her again. <laughs> wrapping Ace across her sword arm, causing her to drop her blade. Weak and out of control. Fighting for authorities and laws that are an abomination to God himself. He stepped back then, bringing his sword down toward her head. You are a disgrace, Tracked Ace. I give you now to the Sand Lord's judgment. As he spoke, Lachblan tore the Daikin symbol from her forehead. <laughs> you don't deserve to wear this. Um, excuse me. Lachlan turned at the stranger's voice, and so did Ace. A man stood in the shadows at the end of the alleyway, leaning against the wall, dressed in a mismatched Darksider wardrobe, a bag of his belongings slung over one shoulder. 
It was the same man who had arrived on the dock a few minutes before. What? what, what? No, I realize it's probably none of my business, but don't you think the poor lady has had enough for one day? I mean, I'm a strong proponent of humiliating tracts and others in authority, but killing them is a bit extreme. This is none of your business. No? Shall we ask the lady what she thinks? Fool! If you wish to fight me, stranger, then I accept your challenge. In an impressive display of prowess, Lachmelin used the tip of his sword to flip Ace's own sword across to the man. To his surprise, the stranger caught it effortlessly. Black carapace, sharpened to... Perfection. Impressive. Thank you, but I'll decline. Swords and I don't get along very well together. You poked your nose in. I don't think you have much of a choice now. Lachmlan pounced forward, driving his blade at the man in a precise strike. But the stranger stepped aside, seemingly without effort. Ha! Indeed. Dropping his bag, the stranger sidestepped another attack from Lachmlan. A smug smile on his face. Ace didn't know who the stranger was, but as she lay there gathering her wits, she mentally thanked the Sandlord for the man's arrival. Incredibly, Lachmlan was being outclassed. The stranger stood leaning leisurely against the alley's other wall. The assassin struck again. But again, the stranger somehow wiggled past his blade. Stop dancing and fight! You wanted to fight, remember? I just came to dance. And maybe eat after. Yes, that... Would be a wise decision. Always listen to your stomach. Slowly, Ace slipped a small Zinkal arrow from the quiver tied to the back of her belt and loaded it into the front of her weapon. Lachmelin was attacking continuously now, fencing with the stranger like one would an armed opponent. Yet the stranger continued to keep just barely out of the sword's path. The weapon wove and sliced, sometimes coming close enough to the stranger that Ace could hear its tip tear at the soft dark side cloth. Mm-mm-mm. You'll need to try a little harder than that, my ruddy-faced friend. Lachmelin never drew blood, however. Curse you! Stay still! And where would be the fun in that? We'd both get bored if I just... Ah! ...stood still. And then the stranger pulled an odd feint, jumping forward instead of backward, and catching Lachmelin's weapon in one hand. Aha! What? The move put the two men face to face, one confused, the other smiling happily. The stranger released the weapon an instant later, and with his opponent overbalanced, proceeded to slam the heel of his boot into his opponent's foot. Lachmelin dropped his sword. Such was the pain and surprise. The stranger nodded cheerfully to Ace, who had just finished pumping her zincal. Ace raised the weapon, pointing it threateningly at the disarmed assassin. Eric's first rule of combat, my friend. Always go for the toes. With that... The stranger picked up his pack, waved farewell to Ace, and strolled back toward the street. Ah! Ah! My foot! They crushed my... Do not move, thief! Ah, Zensha, or not, I can assure you that I will not hesitate to kill you. Understand? Yes! Just please find someone who can... Ah! Look at my aching foot! Kenton rushed along the riverbank, the Darksiders forgotten for the time being. Now that he was so close to the Sandmaster's home, his eagerness was taking control of him. That merchant said people survived the ambush. A dozen, at least. But who? 
The DM itself wasn't in Kazar, but on the lake shore, a short distance away from where Kenton had dropped off the Darksiders. He made the trip quickly, barely letting himself wonder who would be dead and who would be alive. Soon he topped a small hill, and his eyes fell on the DM itself. He paused for a moment, despite his anxiety, to stare at the building that he had called home for the last eight years. So you're still standing, then? Large and fortress-like, the building that was the DM seemed to be part of the sand surrounding it. And in reality, such wasn't far from the truth. The building was an enigma. It was older than the Sandmasters, or at least their formal organization. It had been formed from a single enormous block of white sandstone. Yet unlike normal sandstone, the DM's walls and floors could not be chipped or torn away. It was permanent, eternal. Kenton stood, the ever-present wind ruffling his robes, bringing with it the familiar sense of Kirstian cooking and lake water. The sun sat about 20 degrees down from the apex, resting in its familiar place, the place that felt right. The Sandmaster's power, like the building before him, had seemed eternal. They had been broken, betrayed, and destroyed through the warping of their own powers. It was possible that not a single one of them had made it back. He had been attacked again in the desert. Maybe they had too. He hadn't considered that until now. Maybe none had survived. No, not that. Anything but that. Kenton descended toward the block-like DM. He walked straight up the road toward its front, striding up its sandstone steps and through the doorless gate. The DM was silent. Kenton stood in the entry hall, a massive open room that stretched up for two stories. The room was bright. Besides the inner hallways, there wasn't a place in the DM that didn't have windows. But for some reason, it felt dark. Rich tapestries swung on the walls, giving way before the wind. Paintings watched him. The murals on the back wall, depictions of Lausanne's eight professions, seemed faded and subdued. The ground, like all of the DM's floors, was covered with a few inches of white sand. Hello? This chamber was the DM's main entryway, and it had always been busy. Whether it had been acolytes running toward their rooms, or undermastrels yelling for them to act properly, the entry chamber was a place for meeting and socializing. With thousands of DM members, there was always at least someone there. But now it was empty. Is anybody here? Kenton took a step forward, walking tentatively as if he were on deep sand. Beyond the entry chamber, he entered the dark inner hallway. Unlit lamps lined the walls, but several open chamber doors provided some light. It's empty. Dead. He couldn't say it, but the thought came regardless. Like my powers. The inner hallway extended tunnel-like in either direction, the occasional open door lending it a ghostly, quiet light. The hallway circled the rectangular perimeter of the DM. The DM's center was a large open courtyard, and from it one could reach every room on the ground floor. Hello! The hallway should have been lit. It was the main area of traffic in the building. Now alarmed, Kenton chose a direction and began to stride down the hallway, throwing open doors as he moved. He passed the large conference room that sat behind the entry chamber and moved on to the smaller rooms that lined the hallway on both sides. He exposed living chambers and classrooms alike, each one empty. Can anyone, Can anyone hear, hear me? me? It's me, 
Kenton! Kenton searched frantically until he found himself back where he had begun. He had traveled the entire perimeter of the DM. Impossible! It's impossible. He had wandered back into the entry hall. The DM was empty. He couldn't know for certain, of course, for he couldn't check the two upper stories. The DM had no stairs. Those who didn't have sandmastering ability couldn't visit the chambers of the Mastrels and other high-ranking sandmasters. One needed to be able to lift oneself on sand ribbons to do so. Still, Kenton knew that even if he could get up to those floors, he would find the rooms empty. They would have heard him. Someone would have. But only ghosts and memories remained. Father. Then, I'm the last. The last Sandmaster. The other survivors must have been killed, and without Bayon's formidable pistols to protect them, they had likely been easy pickings, as powerless as he was. And so, he was the last Sandmaster. A Sandmaster who could no longer master the sand he touched. It was like a terrible joke. What would he do? Could the DM continue with one member? Kenton slumped against a sandstone wall, letting himself slide down to the floor. No. No. No! He stared forward sightlessly, disbelievingly. How many times had he wished that he didn't have to deal with the Mastrels? How many times had he speculated about how much could be done for the DM if the old leadership were gone? He had fought them for eight years, but now there was no one left to fight. It's over. Finished. No one to tell him he wasn't good enough. No one to snicker behind his back as he passed. No one to impress with how much he could do with a single ribbon. No one to meet for lunch to talk about how far they had come. No one to be his friend, despite their difference in ranks. No brothers or sisters left, spiteful or encouraging. Kenton's head fell to his hands. What am I going to do? Kenton, is that you? Kenton looked up with shock, uh, huh? bumping his head against the wall behind him. Standing in the large gateway was a familiar form. Darren? The flame-haired boy rushed into the room. He wore his Sandmaster's robes and the white sash of an accolant. Kenton, you're alive! We thought for certain that- We? There are others? Well, yes, of course. Oh, but you wouldn't know, would you? Kenton leapt to his feet. Where, Darren? Where is everyone? At the Hall. Are you alright? The Hall of Judgment? Why? The Titian counselors have met, Kenton. They need to ratify a new Lord Mastral. Who will they... Thrile. Oh. The hundred idiots take me as one of their own. Of course it would be Dryle. He's been pushing for this ever since the day he was accepted into the Diem. Ter sent me to get this. Deeran showed the golden sash he had folded in his bag. We're going to give it to Dryle when he leaves the hall. It wouldn't be right for the Lord Mastral not to have one. You won't need it. But- Come on, Deeran. We have a Titian meeting to interrupt. Before long, Kenton and Deeran were hurrying along the banks of the river through a small suburb of Kazar, populated by low buildings that were mostly residential in nature. None of the Mastrels survived, except maybe Dryl, who isn't quite a Mastrel anymore. How did you survive? I don't know, really. After the Lord Mastrel's final attack, the Kertzians only fired a few more arrows, then retreated. Most of them ignored the Acklands. Over half of us survived. The higher ranks, though. They must 
have known which sash colors to aim for. It was like we were wearing targets. Wait here. A boatman, a Losandan with dark enough hair that he might have had some Kirstian blood in him, approached as Kenton strode forward. Help you, sir. We need passage to the city as quickly as possible. Too lack. I'll have you there in less than five degrees. Kenton had given all of the money to Chris and the others, assuming he wouldn't need it once he returned to the DM. I... No money, huh? No ride. Kenton watched the man turn back to tending to his docked boat. Always before, he had been able to request money from the DM for whatever expenses he had. What did he do if there was no one to distribute money? Then, reaching down to his belt, Kenton realized something. Wait! The man turned, and Kenton pulled out the golden mastral sash. The man's eyes opened wide, then immediately turned down toward the ground, and he fell to one knee. He, too. It was a mark of respect, the Kurzdian word for master. I did not know. I mean, I, I thought, heard, you were all... Everywhere Kenton looked, people averted their eyes, some bowing, others scurrying away, and more than a few making Kurzdian wardings against evil with their hands. Kenton watched it all with a measure of shock. People had been suspicious of him when he was an accolant, but he had never received a reaction such as this. Mastrels rarely left the DM, and when they did, they traveled by carriage. Kenton had not realized what an effect the Golden Sash would have on those around him. The boatman remained kneeling before him, sweat on his brow, his arms shaking slightly. Please, get up. I still need passage. Yes, keep to. Immediately. The man hopped up, turning to his small boat. Duran, we're leaving! Yes, Kenton, I'm coming. Kenton, why imitate a mastrel? You know the punishment for that. I mean, I know you want to get to Kazar. I am not imitating. Diren, the Lord Mastrel himself gave me this sash right before the attack. Weren't you paying attention? Of course I was, Kenton, but... Well, you wouldn't know, because you always walk right up to the front. The rest of us can't do that. Watch your step, King Two. It's very hard to hear in the back. The lower ranks never know what's happening up front. Many of us are too short to see. I heard that you'd picked up Dryel's sash and taken it for yourself, but no one actually thought. I mean, the Lord Mastrel said he would never... Kenton sat dumbfounded as the boat crossed the water toward the center of Kazar. The last days had been so chaotic that it was hard to remember. He knew that Lord Praxton had told him to pick up the sash, given him those quiet words of warning, but had he ever announced Kenton's advancement to the rest of the DM? Darren... Who besides students survived the attack? Some underfens, a couple dozen fens, and 14 DM fens. So few. So very few. And all of them would, like Diren, have been so far back that they wouldn't have been able to see or hear the advancement. I was advanced, but there's no one alive who can prove it. Except Dryl. He was close to the front. I suspect Dryle's memory may be selective. Ah. Uh, oh, I almost forgot. Aloran survived too, but... Aloran was there, right up at the front. He saw. But, well, he isn't here. Why not? He should be leading the DM. He's the highest-ranking Sandmaster left. He's not a Sandmaster anymore. He overmastered like everyone who died, but his powers were burned away. He can't even master a single ribbon. Aloran burned out? 
Surely he can't have... He was the one who organized the refugees and led us back to Kazar. But once he got there, he left. He said the sight of the Diem was too much for him. Now that he... He had lost so much. We all have, Darren. Land ho! The boat pulled into dock. The dockman hopped out, quickly tying the moorings. Then he bowed subserviently as Kenton and Deeran climbed out. Steady does it, Kenton. Yes. Forgot myself for a moment. The boatman demanded no payment, but instead boarded his vessel in silence. Kenton noticed a look of relief on his face as he rode away from the city. Relief and something else, something carefully hidden. Resentment. Come on. We need to get to the Hall of Judgment. Yes, of course. It's this way. The Hall of Judgment was a massive pyramidal structure. Cut from dark black marble, it was the organizational center for Lausanne's tracts and judges, much in the same way that the Diem headquartered the Sandmasters. There was a massive crowd around its front steps, many of them wearing the white robes of sand mastery, and even from a distance, Kenton could feel their anxiety. The selection of a new Taisha, leader of one of Lausanne's eight professions, was a very important event, especially when that Taisha was the Lord Mastral. A busker played as they passed, hoping to elicit a few lack from the crowds. Confusion delights in its spin. Turning and turning, it finds its way in. But do not despair as it spins you around. For turn enough times and you'll see what's lost is now found. Kenton hung back from the crowd, waiting in the half-shadows beside an earthen building. He leaned against the hardened clay, feeling oddly hesitant after his rush to arrive. What's wrong, Kenton? The crowd's too thick. We'll never pass through. People will have to move. Let's ask them. Excuse me. Make way, please. Please excuse us. Kenton held back. He had put the golden sash away after leaving the docks. The people's reactions had made him uncomfortable. In all his years of seeking the golden sash, he had never associated it with the power that most sandmasters probably coveted. He had wanted to be a mastral primarily to prove his father wrong. Now that he had it, he was seriously considering throwing it away. He could do it. No one alive had heard Praxton advance him. Others might call him a fool for doing so, but Kenton had seen the faces of the Sandmasters who had been at the front of the crowd that day. He had felt their envy and their indignation. He didn't deserve the sash, and they all knew it. And then there was the reaction of the locals, the fearful respect in the boatman's bearing. Fear. Envy. Is this how Mastrals were viewed? Kenton, are we going to go forward? I... I don't know, Darren. But, but you have to stop Dryle. They're going to make him Lord Mastral. How can you be so sure? The Underfen over there said he's the only one the Tyshan let in. He's in there now. Then, then maybe Dryle should be Lord Mastral. He is the most powerful after all. But you said... I did. Kenton, please. I know Dryle far better than you. We were accolent together. He'll make a despot of a Lord Mastral. I couldn't think of a worse choice, no matter how powerful he is. The problem is, I don't see what we can do about it. But Kenton, you're a Mastral. You should be Lord Mastral. I thought you didn't believe me. I didn't hear Lord Praxton advance you, but I believe you. 
If you said he gave you the sash, then he did. Besides, you're right. Anyone would be better than Dryo. Should I be flattered? You deserve this. I've seen how hard you work. You do more with one ribbon than another Sandmaster can do with five. That should be the requirement for becoming a Mastral. Not the inborn strength of your mastery, but what you do with it. These past weeks, Dryle has been lording it over us like a king from the Rimlands. He's been talking about hiring us out as mercenaries. Even with his demotion, he is still the highest-ranking Sandmaster alive. Except for you. Everyone in the DM respects you, Kenton. Even those who hate you. I'm not what you think I am, Darren. My father... You have the sash now. As Darren spoke, Kenton reached for his sand, cupping a tiny handful in his palm and staring at it solemnly. How could he tell Darren his power was exhausted? How could he be a sandmaster in name only? Grains of sand will only flow with the winds, Kenton. Never against them. Of course, Darren. You're right. With barely a thought, Kenton called the sand in his hand to life, surprising even himself. What the... The light of mastered sand instantly banished the alley's shadows. His fist glowed red as he clutched the sand, letting it seep between the cracks in his fingers to form a ribbon that wove a simple pattern in the air. The feeling he had noticed earlier, before Chris had interrupted him, was still there. The sand felt weak. Still, despite the odd feeling, the experience of mastering sand was the same as it had always been. It sung to him, the sand, sung in his mind and in every fiber of his being. Eight years now he had worked with the sand, coaxing every ounce of power from its grains, driving it faster, controlling it with more delicacy, all because he had wanted to prove those above his father wrong, and never because of the sand itself. And that was why it had failed him when he had needed it to save his life. But now, now he could see it, feel it inside, like a childhood song he thought he had forgotten. It was beautiful, shimmering with radiance, twisting and spinning in the air. Three ribbons? You've made three ribbons, Kenton! Can you do that? I didn't think you could... Nor did I, but I was wrong. Now, let's go. And with that, he stepped forward, his three ribbons of sand whirling around his body. The crowd parted as Kenton hovered among them, carried a few feet from the ground by his swirling ribbons of sand. Deeran hurried to keep up. What do you plan to do? It's time I became a Sandmaster. Is that Kenton? I'm right behind you, Kenton. Just keep up. Time is of the essence. Years as the DM's favored topic of rumors had prepared Kenton to be the center of attention, and he ignored the people as he rose above the steps to the Blackstone Hall of Judgment, while Deeran trailed somewhat less confidently in his wake. Two tracts, dressed in formal Black Hall uniforms, crossed their spears before Kenton, blocking his path to the doors. Halt! The council is in session, the hall is closed. Not to a Mastral. There aren't any Mastrals left. Look again. As he spoke, Kenton allowed one of his glowing ribbons to flip on the sash. What? A golden sash? I thought... He's a master. We have to let him through. Kenton was stunned. He had been expecting to argue his way into the hall. All his life he had needed belligerence and stubbornness to gain even the slightest concession. Yet two simple statements had won this conversation. Perhaps there was something to be said for authority after all. Directly before them was another set of doors. These opened, with another pair of tracks guarding them. Beyond those doors was the judgment room, which took up the bulk of the hall's space. 
Inside that room, he would find the Taishin, leaders of the eight professions. Well, seven, since there was no Lord Mastral. Can we just walk in like this? Come on. I've done this before. Each year, when Praxton had refused to grant Kenton Mastralship, Kenton had appealed the decision to the Council. He was very familiar with the Taishin and their ways. This place is amazing. I've never been inside before. It's supposed to impress. Sandmasters built all of this centuries ago. How incredible. The buildings, sources of law and justice in Los End, were regarded with nearly as much reverence as Kirstian temples. As Kenton strode forward, he tried to gather his optimism. All four times he had appealed to the council, they had denied him with seven-to-one decisions. He suspected that after four years of useless appeals, made only to spite his father, the Taishin were growing tired of him. A functionary looked up from her desk as Kenton and Deren approached the doors into the debating chamber. May I help you, young gentleman? Announce my arrival to the chamber. I can't interrupt. Mastral Dryle has the floor. Kenton strode past the minor functionary's desk, marching into the main judgment chamber. Then you can announce me after I arrive. Wait. Allow me. With foot traffic at the boat race at the main market, continuing to rise. Shaped like an inverted pyramid, the chamber had a central platform for testimonies, surrounded by three sloping walls filled with seats. Nearly every chair was filled. Hall seats, especially in Kazar, were expensive commodities. It was more than the privilege of watching judgments. A seat in the hall was a sign of prestige and importance, even if they were purely spectatorial in nature. Kelzin, influential profession members, as well as public officials, vied for the places ferociously. Wait here. Fine, but be quick. The only people in the room who really mattered were the Taishin. Eight raised chairs stood on the far wall directly in front of the testimony platform. Seven were filled. One was empty. Kenton's eyes sought a place on the second wall about midway up, where the mastrels usually sat. The chairs sat empty, like an open sore in the otherwise packed wall of people. A familiar form stood on the platform addressing the conference. A face of dark scars beneath tattered robes, the man's ugliness could be recognized even from a great distance. Nilto, so-called Lord Beggar, leader of the unofficial Ninth Profession. What reason would he have to make testimony during proceedings held to ratify a new Lord Mastral? I thank you for your time, my honorable friend. Nilto finished his arguments, stepping off the platform and heading straight for the doors. It seemed the Lord Beggar had other places to be. As he did, the flustered functionary hurried over to address the Taishin. Ahem. Announcing Mastral Kenton of the Diem, son of the late Lord Praxton, and a, um, representative of the Sand Profession. Ha ha ha! Our dear Kenton of the Diem, oh, back to bother the council again. Oh, I always knew that something as paltry as death would never be enough to keep you from annoying us. (laughs) Kenton smiled. At the far end of the line of Taishin, in the least respected and often ignored council seat, lounged a man in ridiculous violet robes with a frilly white shirt underneath. The cuffs of the shirt were undone and were stained with droplets of wine. He was an older man, perhaps in his late forties, 
His face could have been a respected face. It had strong features and almost a venerable quality. The face, however, betrayed the rosy cheeks and red nose of drunkenness. This was Delius, the Lord Admiral, the embarrassment of Lossand. Lady Judge Helis, a woman in her sixties who headed the Taisha Council, looked at Kenton with disdain. Lord Admiral, please. I apologize for my tardiness, lords and Lady Tyshan. The woman knew Kenton well from their previous encounters, liked him even, or so he had thought. Her look, however, could wither a Dorim vine. Kenton, this is most irregular. We have already heard from Dryal on behalf of the Sand Profession. I apologize again, Lady Judge, but I am sure that the Council can see what I am wearing and understand what it means. The sash? Yes. Mastral Dryal has no claim on the leadership of the Diem. That honor falls to me as its most senior member. Poised among the Mastral section of the Great Hall, Dryal's eyes narrowed. Lies! Must we listen to this? Dryal, still your tongue. You have had your say. Kenton saw now that, as Diran had suggested, Dryal was accompanied by several accolants who appeared loyal to him. Lady Judge Helis turned to her fellow Taishin, encouraging them to speak. Lord Regent, the head of the tower, Lausanne's military, was the first to do so. This is most irregular, Kenton. The other Sandmasters said nothing of this. The other Sandmasters didn't know about it, Lord Regent. They didn't hear the Lord Mastral advance me. Those who survived the attack were standing too far back to hear anything. Convenient. As he spoke, Kenton had the uncanny sense of hearing his own words as an outsider. They don't believe me. I can read it in their expressions. I have petitioned the Taishan too many times with frivolous claims, challenging my father's authority. Now, they view me as a time waster and a petulant child. I'm afraid you have come here under a false assumption, Kenton. These proceedings are not to ratify a new Lord Mastral. No? Then what? Even after the raid, this thieves' den still looked like any other building to Ace. It was carved of stone and sand, run down and tired like so much of the city, in need of repair. Inside, it was empty and dirty and smelly, rank with the stench of men and of heat. This way. Come along. Keep your hands laced behind your head. Sure. Just quit shoving, tract. There were uniformed tracts posted outside. Her men. Guarding the doors, now that the place had been opened wide, and a handful of thieves too slow to escape the raid were ushered out as the crowds watched. Ma'am? Ace had returned to supervise the cleanup operation, having handed Lachman over to her men outside. Ace entered and quickly mounted the stairs. Inside, more uniforms were searching the messy room. Stolen wares nestled along its scarred walls. Let's get this moving. Come on, get your backs into it. Three tracks worked to move a cupboard away from one wall. On three, one, two, three! <laughs> Ma'am, I think you'll want to see this. What is it, Jarsk? The tract called Jarsk beckoned her over to a set of doors that had been deftly disguised by the use of paint and sand so as to blend in with the wall where they hid behind the cupboard. What is that? A door? It was hidden behind the cupboard, ma'am, when we moved it. Fine. Well, open it. Let's see what Lachlan was hiding. 
great sand lord. Through the open door, the tracts saw a grimy windowless storeroom that was little more than a cupboard. The room had been turned into a cell, and within there were bodies accompanied by the stench of human waste. Sitting there amongst the bodies was a man, his body emaciated through lack of food, a scrabbly beard on his chin. His once colorful robes were stained with blood and worse. The man looked up as the door opened, any sign of hope all but gone in his eyes. Hello? Who is that? Your name, man. Beside the man were the decomposing bodies of a woman and two children, both of them under ten years of age. It was hard not to stare at the long, dried blood on their clothes. Jarsk, I'll speak to him. Ace stepped into the room, crouching before the disheveled figure who sat amidst the grisly scene. You, man. What is your name? What are you doing here? Torkel. Will you... Please, will you... Kill me now? No, friend. I am Senior Tract Ace, and these are my men. We're here to help you. Torkel? Where do I know that name? He was an advisor to the Lord Merchant. Went missing in a boating accident last year along with his family. Sad Lord, preserve us. You were presumed dead, Torkel. You're a very lucky man. Luckier than his family, at least, was the thought that no one dared to voice. Who did this to you, Torkel? Sherzan. He... We... Had an arrangement until... Until? I just wanted to walk away with my dignity, but no one may walk away from Sherzan. Ma'am, I've called the healer. Good. As her men tended to the tortured merchant, Ace's hand clenched into a fist so tightly that it threatened to draw blood from the palm of her hand. First Jadan and his men, now this. I will find Sherzan. Or should I say, Nilto. By the Sand Lord, I will catch this devil. Hearing this, the tract called Tain, who had followed her into the room, nodded at her vow. With Jadan gone, Tain was her second. He would be the closest confidant on the Sherzan case. We're getting close. We must be. Chris's estimation of Kazar proved correct in one area at least. It was crowded. Chris and the others practically had to fight to move through the mass of people. <sighs> it's hard to believe that such a hideous city was my late Prince Gewalden's destination. It's so overcrowded. The city is well-placed, Duchess. Hard to attack, easy to defend. Thus it thrives, and success and safety attract people. The first few minutes were horrible. Chris was accustomed to people giving her a great deal of room. She was, after all, of noble blood. The daysiders didn't seem to care about her personal space. They jostled, shoved, and bumped into her. Oh! The smell of their dirty, unwashed bodies was nearly enough to knock her unconscious. Fortunately, she had Bayon. Whether he noticed the look on her face, or whether he simply guessed she would need room, Bayon suddenly began to make space where there had previously been none. People shoved, he shoved harder. People pushed, but he was much taller and more massive than anything Lawson could produce. 
people began to notice for the first time that the body they were shoving was much larger than what they were accustomed to, and their eyes opened wide with amazement as they turned up to stare at the massive black-skinned giant that stood in their midst. Within a few moments, the crowd had pulled back, flowing around Bayon like raging waters before an enormous stone. Chris and Cinder crouched in Bayon's wake. Oh, thank you. Come on, we'll lose our guide. Where's Akron? There. Akron's large head could be seen bobbing happily underneath a colorful canopy. A moment later, Akron pushed his bulk back in their direction. When he met up with them, he wore one of the Kirstian forehead medallions just above his brow. You should never have given them any money, my lady. You have no taste for other cultures, Professor. On the contrary, I'm happy to observe, just not to go native. Akron gestured to his forehead. How is that? Do I look like a local? Very much so. Keep moving, both of you. Their diminutive guide waited impatiently just beyond the line of tall shops with colored canopies. This way, and try to keep up this time. The thin streets and tall buildings granted plenty of shade as relief from the sun, but Chris wondered how anyone could survive in a city so crowded. The streets weren't cobbled. They didn't need to be. The ground appeared to be solid rock, though there were patches and drifts of sand hiding in corners and alleys. The canopies and drapings were more colorful than what she had seen in the Kirstian towns of Nakurla. Of course, the colors were still far from as vibrant as those of Darkseid, but only so much could be done with the bright sun bleaching everything over time. Their urchin of a guide, perhaps 12 years old and as suspicious as she was bored, led them gradually toward the center of the island. The land sloped upward as they walked, but before they could reach a point where Chris could overlook the city, their guide stopped and turned down a particularly narrow alleyway. This is a good place for an ambush. Who would want to ambush us? I'm just making an observation. But the warrior strode into the alleyway with one hand resting on his sword hilt. Chris followed, as did the others. A few feet down the alleyway, their guide turned and walked through what must have been an open doorway in one of the walls. Now, where did she go? When Chris arrived, she discovered that the doorway looked something more like a tunnel, a vaguely squarish opening cut in the stone wall. It was large, wide, and tall enough to accommodate even Bayon and Akron without trouble. Have arrived, Lanzer, like promised. Two luck for Pac-Man. Where are we? Lanzer. What is Lanzer? Place you were going? Per Pac-Man. Chris frowned, peering through the dark opening. There appeared to be shadowed forms moving deep within the tunnel. Perhaps Bayon was right. Maybe it was an ambush. Then she realized something, or rather, she heard something, a few words echoing through the stone tunnel. He said he could wrestle ten sandlings and still not be out of prayer. <laughs> and you believed him? How could I not? He was a lot bigger than me, my friend. <laughs> Those people in there, that's dynastic. They're speaking dynastic. Reassured, she removed her dark glasses and stepped into the tunnel. Come on! The Pac-Men, however, stayed where they were. The four sets of saddlebags remained on the ground. Won't enter. Too dark. We aren't blind like you. Blind? Lonsha. Many of the Dayside texts use that word for darksiders. It means blind ones. That's silly. So are people. Therefore, it makes sense that they would use the term. <laughs> Won't enter. 
I go, but Pac-Man stay. All right. She poked through the coins Kenton had given her, choosing two of the red-colored ones she had determined were worth the least. Apparently, these were lax. Here. Guide. Can you explain that I am paying them? You will find that money is a universal language, my lady. Huh. Indeed, the Pac-Man accepted the coins, and without bowing a proper farewell, turned and left down the alleyway. Forty lakh? Look! She overpaid? <laughs> Good. Drinks are on me. Uh, launches know nothing. Their eyes can't see. Coins all look the same. They certainly seem cheerful. Maybe they're happy in their work? Maybe. Is this place what I think it is? We'll find out in a moment. <coughs> Bayan struggled to pick up all four sets of bags. Akron, help him! What? Oh! Of course. The hefty professor moved to accept one set of bags, slinging them over his shoulders like a scarf. Thank you, Professor. You're welcome! They entered the tunnel. They rounded a corner and entered a short-ceilinged room, or cavern. Chris couldn't tell which it was. It was filled with shops and people, much similar to the market they had just left, except for several major differences. All of the signs were written in dynastic, and all the people had dark skin. Chris stared at the scene with amazement. Darksiders! Everywhere! It's incredible! Professor? Culturally, I mean. Indeed, Darksiders mingled and mixed here, traveling from shop to shop, bargaining for familiar foodstuffs and other items Chris hadn't seen since they had begun their voyage months ago. The walls were hung with colorful lanterns, illuminating the large room with soft hues that were just the right level of brightness, and the air was cool and wet, at least compared to that outside. Oh, it's... <laughs> we're home! It is reminiscent of Ellis, like a... A magical door to home! It is amazing. A linguistic enclave. You mean a cultural enclave, Professor Sender? We're not going to have this discussion again, are we, John? They're maintaining culture first. Language is only a byproduct. Yes, well, I'm a linguist. That means I get to name it. Hush, both of you. This is... It's where Gavin would surely have come. As she walked, Chris identified at least a half-dozen different accents. Each region of Darkside had its own distinct way of speaking dynastic. Aerians, Tayak people... No Elysians that I can see. No. The black-skinned Iarians were the largest and most powerful nation under dynastic control, while the Tayak states were a group of dynastic protectorates that lay huddled along Darkseid's eastern shore. If anyone would want to escape Darkseid, it would be the Tayak. Their fertile flatlands hold some of the most overworked, most secluded people in the dynasty. No guns here, you'll notice. No. But from what I've heard, the dynasty barely lets the Tayok have horse-drawn plows, let alone firearms. This place should not exist. The dynasty wants us to think it doesn't exist. They don't want us to know that there is traffic between the continents. She turned to their guide. How do they get their goods in this? Shipments come every month. So what is this place? Darksider Village. Darksiders live here. I can see that. Is there someone in charge? 
Uh, someone who might keep track of darksiders who pass through the town? Can help, yes. Cost ten luck. You little cheat. We already paid once. Need it, so you pay again. She'd make a good mercenary. Chris counted out ten more coins. Oh, here. Once paid, the girl immediately began to move, dashing through the crowd. At first, Chris thought she was running away with the money, but then the girl paused, turning restlessly and waiting for them to follow. Come! Our guide's not prone to extended bouts of patience, is she? No, she isn't. Did you resolve your discussion with Professor Akron? No, but I did manage to confuse him enough that he thinks I won. <laughs> Shall we go? Chris led the group through the darkened, cavern-like space toward their guide. As soon as they got close, the girl scurried away again, but Chris refused to let herself be hurried. The more I see them, the more I believe we're in Darkseid. But is that foolish? We crave familiarity. It's how cultures exist and replicate to reinforce such trappings. Safety here is an illusion, Duchess. Remember that. The room resolved into corridors that almost seemed like streets. The floor was cobbled, even though it probably didn't need to be, and in some of the larger areas there were even lamp poles bearing oil lanterns. Chris still couldn't tell if they were underground or not. Some of the walls were unworked stone, but occasionally she would see small patches of light above, as if the ceiling were constructed of wood. The place seemed to be a combination of caverns, both natural and man-made. Most of the walls were obscured, however. Buildings had been built up against them. The line of houses and shops didn't even have alleys between them. They kind of reminded Chris of tenements back in the poorer sections of Elis, though many of these buildings looked rich and well-constructed. It's such a huge space. Magnificent! The underground system was even larger than Chris had assumed. Their guide led them through at least a dozen different chambers and tunnels. Overall, it was probably as big as a couple of city blocks back in Elis though it was much more spread out because of the tunnels. Eventually, they passed through what was probably a residential section, dark-side fungal flowers growing in rows outside the front doors. The tunnel eventually narrowed to one last door, sitting solitarily in a rock face. Like some of the buildings, this one actually seemed to be cut into the stone wall. Their guide led them to another alleyway. Man you need is this way. Those are dark-side flowers. You see, Senna, they must have been imported specially. Yes, it's fascinating. See the doors here? This must be a residential area, located right off the main trading square. Must be very convenient. A necessity, too. Space is at a premium in an enclave of this nature. To hear a familiar song. Culture is more than language, Professor. How many times must I stress that? The alley narrowed toward a sheer rock face, within which, almost hidden, was another door. Antis stopped the others before she entered the door at the end of the alley. Here, you wait. Antis disappeared from view as the door closed. <sighs> I didn't cross the ocean to visit Dark Side. We already came from there. The outside is much more interesting. Look at this trinket I picked up on one of those stalls out there. The professor showed the medallion he'd had tied to his forehead. The meaning of the symbol was a mystery to all of them. Of course, this isn't dark side, John. It's a new culture, one in the process of blending. I wouldn't be surprised to find a contact language developing. 
a pigeon between Dynastic and Lawson. The door opened to reveal a dark-side woman with a sword at her side and a grim expression on her face. Bayan immediately spotted that she wore a pistol as well, its bulge neatly disguised by her robes. You may enter. At the instruction, Chris's party passed through the door in the rock face. Accompanied by the swordswoman, they entered a corridor lit by lanterns, whose walls were constructed from carapace. It was plain and unfurnished, and felt rough and cold. See, Duchess? Ten lakh well spent. A thick, ornate door stood at the end, guarded by another darksider who wore a sword at his belt. He pointed to Chris. Only you. Now, Duchess, I must advise caution. It's all right, Bayon. I'll be fine. Chris entered the doorway alone. She entered a grand room with an ornate fireplace. The fire was masked behind a protective plate of glass with a decorative grill. The walls were hung with paintings and a massive rug covered the floor. There were several plush dark side chairs beside the fireplace, one of which was occupied by a bulbous man wearing a very expensive dark sider suit, cut with no tails on the coat and a girdle instead of a vest, a style fashionable a few seasons ago. His skin was darkest black. Their guide, Ntis, was curled up in another chair, sipping on a warm drink, watching suspiciously as Chris entered. She tried to take it all in. Ah, this must be our missing Elysian Duchess. I am pleased to see you survive the trip on her. <gasps> you know me? Of you, my dear, of you. Though we expected you weeks ago. Come, sit. Chris saw the man more clearly as he turned, and her eye was drawn to a distinctive scar on his neck. It was star-shaped, and ran from his neck up his face almost to his ear. The only person she knew of with such a scar was... Loten! You're Loten! So I'm often accused, and of course, I can't deny it. Please, Duchess Chrysala, sit down. Before his fall from grace... Loten had been the Emperor's chief minister of diplomacy. Chris took the seat opposite Loten. You're infamous on Darkseid, you know. Traitor to the dynasty, executed, or so we're told, for trying to murder Emperor Skaven himself. <laughs> is that what they're saying? It is. Loten poured tea for her from an ornate pot, smirking. This was his domain and it was clear that he felt invincible here. But how do you know who I am? We are not completely isolated from our homeland. Information has a way of finding us. My expedition is, was supposed to be secret. Little a secret from the dynasty, dear Duchess. Especially the doings of its enemies. But must we talk politics? I came here to escape such things. That and to retain my head in its proper position atop my neck. <laughs> you want news of Gavin, I assume. My betrothed is dead. That news reached me a long time ago, and I am past mourning. I'm here to find the weapon he sought. You don't drink your tea, dear Duchess. I thought cinnamon was a favorite in Ellis. It is. But 
I've never liked my tea too hot. Wise. You wouldn't want to burn yourself. Chris knew that he was a master of the social subtleties which thrived in the Emperor's court. And so, as they spoke of tea, she felt certain that he was also telling her something else, warning her of danger. But of what? Just outside, Chris's companions were becoming anxious. Time waiting is time wasted. Do you think that dear Duchess will be long? Professor Cinder glanced at the two armed guards. I suggest you temper your patience, Professor, lest you feel the press of cold blade through flesh. Hmm. Yes. I see what you mean. As was his nature, Bayon kept his own counsel on the matter, watchful of his surroundings. My prince sought a weapon, Lothan. If you know how he died, or what he found, then I need to know. I will pay you, if you like, for the information. Money and information are really quite similar, you know. Both are extremely valuable, but neither would be worth anything if everyone had all they desired. Both can also get you killed if you let it be known that you have too much. Meaning? Meaning, dear Duchess that there are certain things I am not at liberty to reveal. Chris rose in her chair to accuse Loton. <sighs> you know what Gavin found here, don't you? After a fashion. But why can't you speak openly? He is dead, and I am his representative now. Prince Gavaldon will not advise nor chastise you from the grave. I've already told you that there are certain secrets I am required to keep. Required by whom? Myself. I don't mean to frustrate you, but I have learned through experience that rash words can be... inconvenient. Chris sat again, resigning herself to the circular talk of the Emperor's court. <sighs> what can you tell me then? Not much. I will let you know, however, that your prince gave up his goal. Then he must have made it to Kizar. He wouldn't give up hope unless he saw for himself that the Sand Mages weren't real. And you must have met him. You called him Gavin, not Givaldin, his proper name. Gavin is what he tells people to call him, but only in an informal setting. Like a comfortable room, sitting before a fireplace, perhaps? Loden nodded just once, a smile crossing his features. <laughs> And I thought you were supposed to be bad at this. Yes, Gavin did make it to Kezar, and I have spoken with him after the fashion. But that was a long time ago. And where is he now? At least tell me that. I told you, dear Duchess, I am not quite certain. Do not be despondent, my dear. I am not a heartless man. Seeing you are relatively inexperienced with Dayside, I will assign one of my best people to aid you. He indicated the girl who had already acted as their guide here. In teeth. Oh no, I'm not going to lead these fools around the city, Loten. Find someone else. You're a darksider? I thought she was just an urchin guide. To be frank, we're not sure what in teeth is. She claims to be half darksider, half curtsian, and half losandin, though she obviously never claims to be good at mathematics. <sighs> You're bad for business, Loten. As Antis glowered at Loten, a door opened across the room. Chris looked up. <gasps> oh. She saw a ragged figure enter. 
The man was dressed in dirty clothes and walked with a limp. His skin color was difficult to define because his face was a mass of scar tissue with just one eye showing, bulging and red, while the other had completely scarred over. Though he stood in the shadows, the medallion on his head shone in the firelight, the sign of the Kirstian merchant class, similar in fact to the one Akron had purchased not an hour earlier. Who is the woman? A visitor from Darkseid, Nilto, my friend. A rather important person, a ruler on her side of the world. <laughs> Get rid of her. You'll forgive Nilto's lack of tact, dear Duchess. He is a rather impatient man, though many people suffer him. Probably because he is a Taisha. Taisha? The Taishin are the rulers of Lausanne, my dear. There is one at the head of each profession, and it is their council that governs the country, just as Emperor Scathan governs Darkseid. But his... your face... Beauty isn't a requirement for the job. Now, Lothan, get rid of her. I'm afraid our Lord Beggar is a difficult man to refuse, dear Duchess. But I believe our conversation was at an end anyway, wasn't it? Chris rose. It was. And I thank you. Intis, shall we? <sighs> As they exited Loton's chambers, Bayon peered alertly through, ever the bodyguard, looking past his mistress to see where she had been. Duchess, is that who I think it is? Loton? He? That man is a traitor! As he spoke, Bayon drew one of his pistols. At the sides of the door, the two guards went for their own weapons, but Chris stepped before Bayon, placating. I know, Bayon, put the gun away, please. For a moment, Bayon stood with his pistol aimed at the rapidly narrowing gap of the closing door. The guards waited, eyeing Chris's party cautiously. Let's go, before I decide to kill him. That sounds like a good idea. Leave him, not kill him. Bayon glanced over his shoulder just once at the guards as they left, and in that moment the woman's pistol was visible, one just like his own. Now, is anyone else hungry? I am ravenous and simply cannot wait to sample the local delicacies. At roughly the same time, Kenton stood in the judgment chamber before the Taisha, Lady Judge Helis left him dumbfounded by her statement. This council has decided that henceforth there will be only seven professions in Lawson. The diem of the Sandmasters is to be dissolved. What? You would disband the diem? Yes. But you cannot destroy one of the professions. What good would that do? Whining will get you nowhere, Rykensha. This council may do as we please. There are provisions for it in the law. That was Lord Vey, the Lord Merchant who represented the influential businesses of Lausanne, and who had already scoffed at Kenton's claim of mastership. The Lord Merchant is correct, young Kenton. The law says that if a profession is left without leadership, irrevocably decayed or destroyed, it can be removed. That and Lord Vey hates me. Perhaps they all do. The Sandmasters have done so much to build this city, to help Lawson, but that was before I was born. Now the people see us as aloof, a drain on their taxes, and who can blame them? When was the last time a Mastral helped build a meeting hall, a bridge, or a home? When did they, we, last repair anything? Well, 
May I close this meeting, young Kenton, or does your mystified expression bode that you have something to add? I... I do. He had to convince the counselors that they were wrong, the way his father would have were he still alive. Kenton took a moment to prepare himself, tamping down his temper, steadying his nerves. Might that be today? Lord Vey, please let the boy gather his thoughts. Then, bowing his head respectfully, Kenton began to address all of the Taishan Council. The Sandmasters offer you all protection from the Kurtzians. Ha! <laughs> we haven't been at war with the Kurtzians for centuries. Besides, can you really claim to protect us when you failed so miserably at protecting yourselves? Lord Vey makes an insightful point. The fact is, Kenton, that the Sandmasters cost nearly as much in the people's taxes as the Tower's soldiers, yet give nothing in return. Sandmasters are almost more famous for their arrogance than their powers. And so now you do something? You strike when the DM is weak and cannot defend itself? Why not speak out earlier? Try to change the DM before it's... It, it's... Arrogance is the word you're looking for. Fine. Before its arrogance led to its destruction. And what will the Sandmasters do? Dissolving the DM will not get rid of us. We were going to decide that during the next council. Personally, I think exile is the best choice. Forbid you to practice your unholy art. What would you do then, Lord Vey? Create a state where Sandmasters are hunted like sandlings? Turn this nation into a place of fear and prejudice? I would remind you that sand mastery must be taught, young Kenton. It is not spontaneous. It takes weeks to even decide if a person has the ability or not. Sand masters never just appear in the population. So, with this decision, you would eradicate the power entirely? If a skill gives the people no benefit, then is it worth the trouble of its upkeep? To say nothing of its danger. The new counselor who spoke was Regent, the Lord General of the Tower, and hence the Chief of Lausanne's armed forces. He was a stern and inflexible man, who had little patience for Kenton personally, despite the fact that his own son, Eric, and Kenton had grown up together and become best friends. That bond suddenly seemed a very long time ago. They claim it's the money, but in the end it's our power they fear. Power they can't control. There is still good in the DM. It can be beneficial. My lords and lady, would one throw away a tool simply because it has been misused in the past? Now, when the Sandmasters are weakened, is the time to change us for the better, not bury us in the sands. You argue well, young Kenton, but I fear your words come too late. It is time for the Taisha to vote. My lords, how do you vote on the matter of dissolving the DM of the Sandmasters? In turn, each member of the Taisha thrust forth one hand, clenched fists held at the horizontal. Kenton watched as the hands opened and the votes were cast. Thumbs turned down. Dissolve. Dissolve. It is for the best, I believe. Dissolve. 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 Kenton's heart sank until Lord Admiral Delius, head of Lausanne's seafaring class and a notorious drunk, held his hand closed. Lord Admiral Delius? Oh, oh, what? Oh, Lord Vey voted to dissolve. So I vote the opposite. Retain the diem. 
Which leaves only you, one of you anyway, Lady Healers. I vote to dissolve as well. Kenton wanted to be physically sick. The sickness he felt, the pain, he knew it was the burden of responsibility. This was what he had fought so furiously with his father to gain. And now he saw that all it brought was sorrow. Kenton, step down. The vote has been cast. No! I demand these proceedings be declared void. (laughs) On what grounds? Suddenly, passages of the law were flooding back into Kenton's mind. Learned over all those years he had tried to find a way to convince his father, a technicality to force the DM to fully accept him. And for the first time in his life, Kenton had a purpose to go with his arguments. At the deaths of the other Mastrals, I immediately became acting head of the DM, and I wasn't informed that this meeting would occur. By the law, any Taisha, including the Lord Mastral, must be given two weeks' notice to prepare for the council meeting that will remove his title for any reason. Lady Judge Helis, please tell this boy he is a fool and let us be done. No, Lord Regent, he is right. As Lady Judge, I must declare the proceedings of this council void. But I am hereby giving you notice, Kenton. In two weeks, this council will meet again to decide whether or not to dissolve the DM. By the laws of the council, you will need a unanimous vote to overturn the preliminary decision reached here today. And I suspect the votes will not magically change during the wait. Furthermore, since your mastralship is in doubt, you may be considered to be only the acting Lord Mastral, which means you do not get a vote. Aisha! Anything else? A civil tongue, if you please. You have two weeks, Lord Mastral. Unless you can convince every member to vote in favor of the DM, your profession, the profession of the Sand Mastrals, will be dissolved. After the Taisha meeting had dissolved, Kenton found himself outside the judgment chamber with Diran wondering what he had set into motion. People were flowing from the judgment chamber, most of them eagerly discussing the day's events. Many had paused to congratulate him on his arguments, though Kenton didn't see what they found so impressive. That was a good speech in there, Kent. (laughs) I mean, Lord Mastrel. Thank you. I just hope... You have two weeks to turn things around. Tradeka! A two-week forestallment of the DM's destruction was hardly a stunning victory. However, he was quickly coming to understand that he couldn't afford to make enemies amongst Lausanne's elite. He already regretted his treatment of the council in years past. As he stood there watching the crowd pass, another person stopped to greet him. It was the Lady Judge Helis. Young Kenton, would you mind helping an old woman to her quarters? She appeared to have lost all of her earlier hostility. She now stood before him with an unreadable expression, her wrinkled eyes studying him. I'll help her if you want. No, Darren. Wait for me outside the hall. I will escort the lady judge. It would be my honor. Quite kind of you, Lord Mastrel. Don't you mean acting, Lord Mastrel? You are much like your father, young Kenton. I don't know about that, my lady. I am stubborn, like he was, perhaps. Stubborn and contradictory. (laughs) Maybe. 
<laughs> Don't be too ashamed of your nature, child. There is a vague line between contradictory and being discerning. Just learn when to object and when to allow authority to do as it is intended. I must confess I'm confused, my lady. Aren't you angry with me? Yes. You arrived at a very inopportune time, young Kenton. No one likes to be surprised at the last moment. But you were going to destroy the DM. After a manner, yes. I couldn't let that happen. Do you understand the responsibility you have taken upon yourself, young Kenton? Now you sound like my father. He did enjoy laying responsibility, didn't he? I will miss Braxton. Really? I thought you didn't like the Sandmasters. Nonsense, child. I had great respect for the DM, and especially for your father. Both grew too powerful, however, and too arrogant. Those are things that breed enemies. The DM built itself up so high that when it fell, even I couldn't rescue it. You would have tried? In the chamber? I did try, young Kenton. That was what I was doing today. You said yourself the purpose of the law was to protect, not to destroy. I must admit confusion, Lady Judge. Perhaps we were attending different trials? <laughs> oh yes, you are very much like your father. The Lord Merchant and Lord General, Lords Vey and Regent, are very powerful men, Kenton, as powerful as your father was. The three of them have been vying for leadership in this nation for decades now. Once the Diem stumbled, there was no chance that the other two would let it survive. There was no way I could have saved the Diem. I could, however, allow its enemies a complete victory at first, then convince them to go easy on the remnants of your kind. The Sandmasters could have continued practicing probably as a sub-profession in the draft. But then we wouldn't have had a voice in the Council. True, but you would have been able to keep your identity as a group. But if you are so intent on helping the DM, why did you push such harsh limitations on its continuance? There is... well, there is no chance that I will be able to convince all seven Taisha to vote for me. I could have perhaps gained a majority, but a unanimous decision? Oh, young Kenton, you must not mistake Helis the person and Helis the Lady Judge. The Lady Judge must remain impartial, no matter what her personal biases. The DM is wounded, perhaps mortally. A simple majority decision wouldn't be enough to heal it. Now that the doubt of a practically unanimous decision has been cast against the DM, only a complete reverse of that decision will be enough to restore the nation's faith in sand mastery. Any less would be a disservice to the DM. Such a decision would leave it irreparably weakened. My decision was not made out of vengeance, but out of pity. They drew to a halt beside a large door marked with the hall's seal. You have a chance, young Kenton. But I will admit that it isn't a very good one. I do not envy you. Can I at least count on your vote? The older lady looked regretfully at Kenton. I am afraid not. But you said you don't want to see the DM destroyed. I don't! But if destruction is in the best interest of Lawson, then that is what I must support. 
The DM's arrogance is broken. There is nothing to fear from us now. Arrogance will return. Wherever there is power, there is pride. Besides, it's more than the DM's power that I'm worried about. What do you mean? The DM's financial situation, for one thing. Our financial situation? The DM has no money, Kenton. No money? Actually, it has great debts. But the tributes... Most professions stopped paying tribute to the DM a long time ago, child. They got tired of paying the Sandmasters, then having the Mastrels take whatever they wanted in addition to the tribute. But the law... No, the tribute wasn't part of the law, child. It was given out of respect and thankfulness, things that the professions stopped feeling long ago. I might have been able to do something if the Mastrels had objected, but none of them did. They actually seemed to enjoy spiting the other professions. You see, the cessation of the tributes only gave the Mastrels more reason to misuse their powers and to ignore their responsibilities. You know that the golden sash you wear gives you the power to demand any good or service from a merchant free of charge? Yes, the ferry I took here involved just such a transaction. Technically, you are supposed to pay the money back, but there is no time limit set on when you must do so. That's part of the DM's charter. Well, the less tribute the other professions paid, the more the Mastrels demanded from the profession members, walking into their shops and procuring crafts or expensive pieces of art. There is a reason why the other professions hate the Sandmasters, so... I didn't know. The only profession that has continued to pay the tribute all this time is the Guild. The Merchants? Really? That doesn't make any sense. Lord Vey is one of the most outspoken enemies of the Diem. I know. It is very odd of him. Regardless, I cannot with good conscience vote in favor of the Diem as long as it retains such large debts. You can probably request ledgers from the separate professions to find out exactly how much they claim you owe them, but expect to see some very large figures. This has been going on for some time. All right. I'll see what I can do. That isn't all, young Kenton. There is also the leadership factor. If what I saw today is any indication, you are going to have a difficult time convincing the rest of your Sandmasters to follow you. A profession that cannot agree on its own leader is not stable enough to maintain its status and Daisha. I'll find a way to bring the other Sandmasters to my side. Not just Sandmasters, child. I must lay one more task upon you. Another? Why not? Better I die with no water than a single drop. The professions represent the people of Lawsend. We govern by their sufferings. If the people are morally opposed to Sand Mastery, then I would not be able to continue to support you. First, you must convince the DM to accept you, but then you must convince Lawsend to accept the DM. <sighs> And all in two weeks. Lady Judge Helis entered her chambers, turning to bid Kenton farewell. I warned you, Lord Mastro. May the Sand Lord watch over you. I'm certain he will. He's probably eagerly awaiting my failure. Kenton found Diran waiting patiently beside the hall's outer steps, contentedly buffing a carapace statue's head. Diran, always so tidy. You're too sans-cursed good for your own good. What did you say, Lord Mastro? 
never mind. The crowd had mostly dispersed, leaving a few scattered groups, and the busker still singing for his next meal. Truth is foretold by the stars, though often it's sought in the darkest of bars. So when it seems life awaits to begin, put down the glass and exit the inn. <laughs> Where is everyone? They, uh, went with Dryl. Aisha. Come on. Back to the DM. When Kenton arrived, the DM was busy with activity. Dryle seemed to be holding court amid the remaining Sandmasters, passing out his instructions. And you shall take a room on level two. Thank you, Dryle. You, under Fern, will take a room on level three, where... Dryle! What on the sands are you doing? The crowd parted to allow Kenton and Deeran to meet with Dryle. I am allocating the rooms on the top floors, Lord Mastrel. The Mastrels no longer need them. Very helpful! And by what criteria are you allocating those rooms? I choose those who seem most likely to be loyal to... the Mastrels. You mean to yourself. Now, stop this foolishness. We can discuss this later, find a fair means of allocating the rooms. And why should I listen to you? You have no authority over me. I was appointed Lord Master. Let us move this meeting somewhere else. Say, in the very rooms we are discussing. Yes, let us move to the third floor. Dryle turned with a smile, shooting Kenton a victorious look as the sand around his feet exploded with light. The sand rose around Dryle like a vortex of light, lifting him into the air, ribbons of sand whipping lightning-like around him. All of those who are able, that is. He landed on the third-floor balcony of what had once been the Lord Mastrel's chambers, and casually walked inside. Around Kenton, Sandmasters regarded him with embarrassment or amusement. Then, the 14 DM Fens and several of the more powerful Fens gathered their sand around themselves and began to rise into the air. None of them were as showy as Dryle, of course, and several were barely strong enough to lift themselves so high. Kenton was left standing red-faced, surrounded by a small crowd of fens, underfens, and accolants. Very clever, Dryle. A short time ago, that little move would have ended the argument. Slowly, Kenton reached into his sand pouch and pulled out a handful of sand. Hesitantly, irrationally fearing that his experience before entering the hall had been a fluke, he called the sand to life. Come on. It pulsed and shifted warmly in his hand, shining with the familiar glow of sand mastery. He sent it in a ribbon to the courtyard floor, where he gathered sand into it. Then he split the one ribbon into three. The sand flashed, rising like three trails of smoke to surround him. I didn't know Kenton could... Uh, he can't! Can he? But he could. Kenton raised his head, looking up at the third floor with trepidation. Historically, three ribbons was the minimum amount required to lift a Sandmaster more than a few feet in the air. Many Sandmasters who could control three or even four ribbons still couldn't lift themselves to such a height. What if he still wasn't powerful enough? I have to be. <sighs> he gathered his ribbons beneath him, one underneath his feet and one underneath each of his arms. Then he pushed. <sighs> Air rushed around him, battering his face and his clothing as he shot into the air like a Zinkal arrow. Yes! Such was the force of his vault that he passed the balcony and continued into the air. 
Kenton floundered for a moment. Finally reaching his apex a full 20 feet above the DM's open roof, he ordered his sand ribbons to him, realizing with horror the drop that awaited him. Fortunately, he was good at falling. Even the weakest Sandmaster could slow a fall enough to keep himself from being seriously hurt. Come on, Kenton. Just get to the balcony. He sent the ribbons forward as he began to plummet, using them to guide him toward the balcony and slow him to a reasonable speed. His feet slapped against the carapace balcony, leaving him disoriented, his heart racing. The jump became worth it, however, the moment he saw Dryle's face. I told you to stop this foolishness, Dryle. You! Controlling three ribbons! It isn't- Now, get out of my father's room! And why should I obey a traitor like you? Trails of sand swirled around Dryle as he spoke, rising to work for him. Traitor? What are you saying? Tell us why you came back so late, Kenton. Tell us where you have been. Did the Kirchins treat you nicely when you went to collect your payment for betraying us? Or did they turn you away like the filth you are? Surely you don't. We all know someone betrayed the DM, Kenton. We've all figured it out. Isn't it convenient that you disappeared in the middle of the battle, then arrive here safely? Kenton felt his footing slip as Dryle jabbed an accusing finger at him, his glowing sand swirling and expanding like a funnel. Dryle took another menacing step toward him, and Kenton slipped over the edge of the balcony, losing his balance. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Around him, Kenton's glowing sand dissipated into a cloud of useless dust, while Dryle drew his own sand ribbons around him like whips. This isn't my power. Kenton realized. It's my father's. He gave it to me somehow before he died. He did something then, bequeathed his abilities to me, or ignited a spark deep inside me, or... Or something. Lady Helis pointed out today that the skill of sand mastery is taught. It's nurtured. It's not simply there. It has to be encouraged. Suddenly getting new powers is like getting a new set of hands. You know, they're useful, but they take a whole lot of getting used to. Well, I hope you're satisfied, Father. Where he had been falling a second before, now Kenton was rising, white sand back under his control, charged by his power. The Sandmasters on the balcony watched in surprise while Dryle gritted his teeth the anger clear in the tension of his body. Then Dryle leapt from the balcony, down toward Kenton, who was powering upward on his own ribbons of sand. Traitor! Dryle was forming spear-like weapons from one of his outstretched ribbons as he dropped. There's only one traitor here, Dryle. Only one man bitter enough at the DM for taking away his rank. As he spoke, Kenton did all he could to knock Dryle's attack aside. Sand clashed with sand in a coruscating wash of light. One man, with a streak of vengefulness strong enough to commit such an atrocity. What? You accuse me? You dare to accuse your better? I dare! In that instant, Dryle was knocked aside in a flurry of glowing sand. Loose grains of glowing sand thrown against his body, dazzling him. Sandmaster scrambled to get out of the way as Dryle crashed to the floor at the very edge of the balcony. Now! Stay out of my father's rooms! Kenton landed gracefully, though he was trembling inside. Without a word, Ryle stood and turned, walking away accompanied by his entourage of supporters before leaping over the balcony on new spiraling ribbons of sand. And take off the sash! Otherwise I'll report you to the Taisha for violating the Diem's charter! 
Kenton had argued many times in the DM's courtyard before, but never once had it been against one of his own contemporaries. Suddenly, he had a cruel insight into how removed his father must have felt, and how alone. Meanwhile, having located lodging rooms in the Darksider Quarter, Duchess Chrysala and her party were unpacking their possessions as they settled into their temporary home. The rooms were windowless, and unusually there was a fireplace in the room, an affectation on Bayside where the sun never set and heat was abundant. Alone, they spoke only Darksider, and Ntis had assumed the role of repository of local knowledge instead of translator. So now what, Duchess? Gavon's quest ended here. Lothan said as much. And you trust that contemptible man? He had no reason to lie, Bayon. Not about this. So, we shall go to the top. If my prince really did come to Lawson, then he wouldn't have been able to resist introducing himself to the local nobility. The, um, uh, Taishu? You mean Taisha. There are eight liters of the Dayside professions. Some are more approachable than others. At that moment, Cinder's case burst open as the lock snapped, throwing clothes and books everywhere. Oh, Shella, 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 Shella. Oh, Professor, are you all right? Blasted case. The lock must have been knocked while we were traveling. I'll take a look at it. Although why you needed such a complex lock for such dowdy clothes is beyond me. Dowdy? <clears throat> now then, in this... You will arrange meetings with these profession leaders for us. I'll try. And she did, getting the Darksider Duchess into every one of the guild halls. But the result was always the same. At the Hall of Judgment. He says it will be a short wait. Good. And that the Lady Judge will see you in three weeks' time. At the Tower Barracks. They said that Lord General Regent is currently engaged in a hunting trip and will be unavailable for the next 12 days. 12 days? The Helm. The Lord Admiral is on inspection duties and unavailable without a booking. Then we shall book. Um, his booking officer is also on inspection duties. The Merchant's Guild Hall. The Lord Merchant will see you immediately. Just as soon as you pay the 2,000 lakh processing fee. Too foul! Farmer's Congressional Stables and Marketplace. Janelle, the Lord Farmer, is currently overseeing harvest quotas and is unable to see anyone. Until when? I am beginning to detect a small flaw in your plan, Duchess. The Lord Artisan's assistant is currently unable to locate him. Apparently, this happens a lot when he's working on a project, Duchess. Sorry. <sighs> At least Cinder's lock is working smoothly now. Nothing like having time on your hands, Duchess. The House of Masonry. I'm afraid that... Forget it. Until finally, seven guilds later, the Duchess, her bodyguard Bayon, and their guide Ntis returned to the lodging house they had rented in the Darkside Quarter. My goodness, Duchess, you fixed it. Your lock is the only thing I have fixed today, Professor Cinder. 
We couldn't get a single one of these Taisha to even speak to us. Hmm. You said there were eight professions in Tis. We have tried seven. Where would we find the eighth? What do they do? The masters? Well, it's hard to explain in dynastic. They're like holy men, except not holy. Very enlightening, I'm sure. We must try. In Tis, you will take us to the Lord Masteril first thing tomorrow. As you wish, Duchess. But I don't rate your chances. Luma says the profession is about to be dissolved. Be cheered, my lady. It is only the first day. We will find the prince's magicians. If they exist. If they exist. It was quite the taxing day, however. If you don't mind, my lady, I think I will have the man there draw me a bath before we eat. Oh, do we have running water? Unfortunately, no. But we do have a well right outside, and I ordered a couple of houseboys to bring warming water for our evening baths. Baths? Yes, baths. Wonderful, relaxing baths. The feel of the water on your skin. Baths? In... in water? Now who's asking stupid questions? Dayciders have an aversion to water, my lady. One of the house staff explained. They are afraid of swimming and find the idea of immersing oneself in water extremely discomforting. <laughs> they probably assume they'll melt. <laughs> How very odd. I suppose it makes sense. They don't take baths at all, then? It is customary to wipe oneself down with a damp cloth before one dresses after waking. How sad. They'll never know the luxury of floating, surrounded by warm water. You people are too strange. I'm leaving. You don't need me anymore today. If you wish. Of course, you'll miss dinner. Hmm. I'll leave after dinner. Ace was alone in her office as Twelfth Hour approached. She checked the moon with a distracted look, noting the time. Though most of the important officials followed Taisha standard time, working from 4th hour to ninth hour, Kazar itself never slept. The streets were slightly less busy during off hours, but the change was barely noticeable. For Ace, it was time to sleep. She kept Taisha standard, and 12th hour was late for an already exhausting day, emotionally as well as physically. Finding the traitor Torkel incarcerated with his dead family had been yet another awful reminder of how ruthless Sherzan was. No, not Sherzan. Nolto. She was so sure of that now. Every piece of evidence pointed to the so-called Lord Beggar. Her personal chambers were neat and unadorned. Many accused Ace of lacking imagination. They were right. Ace had little use for imaginative decorations, frills, or pictures to distract the mind. The hall was a place of work and efficiency. But today, Ace's efficiency had failed her. Her men had lost their lives for nothing. She was no closer to proving that Nilto and Sherzan were the same person than she had been weeks ago. And then, on top of it all, Ace had found out that the DM continued to exist. As a senior tract, Ace was privy to information that others did not have. She had known about the Lady Judge's plan to shut down the DM, and had approved of it. 
The Sandmasters were blasphemy, poorly masked as people. They are mere existence, an affront to the Sandlord. Ace may have chosen to disobey tradition and join the Hall, but she was still Kirstian. She followed the priest's daikin. She often found it ironic that, as a representative of the law, she was forced to protect the very beings that she accepted as her god's eternal adversaries. In addition, Ace had other reasons for hating the Sandmasters. The Mastrels, with their golden sashes, often made mockery of the law. When the law had been written and Lossand formed from a group of smaller warring countries, the only way to persuade the Sandmasters to join with the new federation had been to give their Mastrels near immunity from the law. Mastrels could take from merchants without fear of retribution. Mastrels were not required to follow the commands of a tract, even in the case of an emergency. Mastrels could not be brought to trial or even arrested without the permission of the Lord Mastrel. The Sandmasters were Lausanne's deepest and ugliest stain. It was because of them that the Akar named Lausanne a nation of heathens, even though a large percentage of its people now believed in the Sandlord. If it weren't for the Sandmasters, then it would have been all right for Ace to join the Hall. It was because of the Sandmasters that Ace was rejected by her own people, called traitor even by murderers like Lachmelin. <sighs> Calm. Remain calm in the eye of this storm. Ace, are you still working? My lady judge, what brings you to my office so late? Please remain seated, senior. Oh, Ace, must you always be so formal? How many years have we worked together now? Eighteen, my lady. Always the perfect tract, Ace. I understand that your operation today was a success. I lost six men, and five more have injuries that will keep them from duty for months. Yet I seem no nearer to apprehending Sherzan. He's always a step ahead. True, but you captured a known murderer. You realize that Lachmelin has admitted to over a dozen assassinations besides the three tracts he killed. I do. Beyond that, the archers you captured were more than simple thugs. Several of them were wanted killers as well. A sound operation, Ace. You couldn't have known about the trap. I read Dane's report very thorough, incidentally. The casualties would have been much greater had you not broken the archer's attack. Thank you, my lady. And this is just one of many such operations, Ace. You have quite a reputation in Kazar. I only do my duty, my lady. Oh, Ace, when are you going to let me reward you as you deserve? If you mean a promotion, Lady Taisha, I must decline. Why? My reasons have been stated, Lady Judge. Oh, I know you enjoy your work as a tract, but I need you to do more. I want you at the head of a hall somewhere where you can teach others to do what you do. Trust me, Lady Helis, the last thing you need is a hall full of aces running around. Trust me, we could do much worse. All right, Ace, but if you refuse to rise to the rank of judge, then I have another job for you. I am taking you off of the Sherzan case. But I... I see that you object. I would never... Yes, I know you would never go against orders. I realize how much this case means to you, Ace, but I have something more important for you to do. Besides Ace, 
I worry about you. Perhaps it's time for you to take a short break from Sherzen. My assignment will only take two weeks of your time. Then you may return to chasing him. Two weeks. Ace knew straight away that the timing was not a coincidence. What could the lady judge have in mind? You know of the judgment today, I take it? I do. This new Lord Mastral is an enormous random factor. I still can't decide if he will benefit Lawson or destroy it. Ace had no such difficulty deciding, but she kept that to herself. I want you to go to him. Tell him that I fear for his safety, and I want a tract protecting him. He won't believe that, Lady Judge. Sandmasters have little need of a tract's protection. He doesn't need to believe it. He just needs to let you follow him, which I suspect he will do. Genton is in little position to deny my requests, even one to put a spy in his midst. Yes, my lady. Watch him, Ace. For me. Follow him and see what kind of a person he is. All I know of young Kenton is his impetuousness and his hostility toward authority, and neither are things I would find attractive in Atisha. Report back to me on what you observe and tell me your opinion. You realize what my opinion of him will be, my lady. I know, Ace. Your hatred of Sandmasters is well known, but so is your impartiality when it comes to the law. Your job is to observe him as a tract, not as a Kurtzian. Do you understand? I understand. I trust you, Ace. Perhaps more than anyone else in the hall. Keep an eye on this boy of a Lord Mastral for me. Hmm? Helis rose, dismissing Ace's own gesture to stand, then making her way to the door. Oh, and Ace... Go home, and go to sleep. Your paperwork will keep. Yes, my lady. Alone once more, Ace clenched her fists again, the anger building inside her. Kenton sat alone in the Lord Mastral's chambers. Once his father's chambers, now his, whether he wanted them or not. He sat with his back pressed against the wall by the open door, looking out onto the balcony overlooking the courtyard. Like all the rooms of the DM, there was a tall barrel of sand beside the door. It seemed almost to mock him and his fledgling powers. Kenton, the Lord Mastral who controlled three sand ribbons. It was like the start of a joke, a terrible joke. It had been a long day, the longest. I should never have let Diren talk me into this. I'm worse than the Hundred Fools. What do I know of leadership? He had tried all his life to tear down authority. Worse yet, just one week ago, he thought he had lost his sand mastery power forever. And would that really have been such a bad thing? See reason? These are my father's chambers. This is my father's life. I don't belong here. I have never belonged here. Well, where is he? What? what Can anyone here find that scoundrel for me? Who? Kenton rose at the noise, making his way to the suite doors and peering out across the balcony beyond into the courtyard below. There, standing amid the white-clad forms of the Sandmasters, was his oldest friend. Eric? What on the sands are you doing here? Yelling myself raw, it seems. Has the high altitude of your chambers made you deaf? Uh, I... A strangely familiar form stood in the courtyard sands, hands on his hips. 
Kenton frowned. He was dressed in the clothes of a traveler, flamboyant but worn, with hardy boots and a cloak slung casually over his shoulders. He looked a little older than when last Kenton had seen him and weighed a little more than Kenton remembered, but there was no mistaking that curly hair. It was Eric, carefree, irresponsible, jokey Eric. The perfect tonic to his day. You blasted sandmaster still don't believe in stairs then? I I'll bring you up. Gently. <laughs> the two old friends embraced as Eric arrived in the Lord Mastro's chambers. You've changed, Eric. I can't get over it. It's been almost three years, Kenton. People do change. For instance, rumor has it that you were dead. Imagine my disappointment on seeing you. That rumor is a little out of date. Next time I decide to come back from the dead, I'll consult you first, okay? Make sure you do. And next time you die, I'm not going to mourn you. You can just count these last two weeks as your requisite grief. <laughs> Sands, it's good to see you again. How is Darkseid? Are you a successful merchant these days? Well, it depends on how you choose to measure success. So, why did you come back? I told you, to visit my childhood friend. How are you coping, Kenton, with not being dead? You did not cross the border ocean just to see me. What about your father? Hmm. Lord Regent? He disowned me, remember? So, now that you're rich and powerful, are you going to take me in? I could use a rich patron. They're much better than getting a job. You can stay if you want, Eric. But I don't think I'll be able to provide you with a home for long. So I heard. Two weeks, eh? Yes. Someone set up the Sandmasters out in the Curlew, one of our own. And now this. You make it sound premeditated. Do you know who set you up? I have my suspicions. Nothing I can prove. Yet. For now, I'm left with two weeks to convince all seven Taisha that the DM can be responsibly solidified behind one leader. <sighs> I guess there's nothing to do but make the best of it, then. Even if you fail, at least we'll spend the next two weeks in comfort. So... Start as we mean to go on. When do we eat? <laughs> the building that Ace called home lay far away from Kazar's business district, in a place where land prices were more reasonable. Here the buildings were pressed just as closely together, but few of them were taller than a single story. In such an area, even a tract could afford a house of his or her own, assuming she had been saving for two decades, as Ace had. As she walked the last few steps to her door, thoughts whirred in Ace's mind. Damn the Sandmastrels! God's eternal adversaries! All they know is how to take, and now the Lady Judge expects me to play nursemaid to one of them? A child leader at that. Maybe Lachmon is right today. Maybe I am a traitor. Maybe I've been fooling myself all this time, justifying my violation of the Sandlord's laws. She walked quickly up the steps and entered. Her daughter was not yet four, but her face lit up as she saw her mother, and she came racing across the room from the dinner table to greet her. Ace scooped the child up in her arms. <laughs> Maloney, you should be in bed. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
She waited up for you. I was scared you wouldn't come home, Mommy. Little Canlished, I am home now, so stop worrying. Okay, Mommy. <laughs> Satisfied, the child hurried off to her own room, leaving Ace to talk to her husband, Melis. She wanted to see you. She gets scared. I know. How did it go? We got her, Melis. There were complications. Shadan died. Oh, Ace. Ace sat down, and Melis began to knead her shoulders, massaging the kinks out. No wonder you're so tense. I'm always tense, Melis. As they spoke, Ace noticed a folded note that lay on the table among the remains of the meal Melis had prepared. She took it, unfolding it with trepidation. What's this? Did you read it? I couldn't help it. It arrived while we were out. I enjoy our game, Ace. You gamble your family. I fear I have little to bet in return. Sherzan. Our daughter isn't the only one who's scared. He is only trying to scare me. The Underground maintains a measure of civility. It kills tracts, not their families. Are you sure? How could she be? The answer was no, and it was all Ace could do to not voice it. Their child lay in the next room, sleeping in innocence. What if she's right, Ace? What if you don't come home one day? Jadan didn't. What could you say when the truth is unspeakable? It was another day on a planet with no rotation and hence no change from night to day. Despite his worries, Kenton had slept. His body was truly exhausted and so sleep had come. Now Kenton stalked the Lord Mastral's chambers as if admiring them for the first time. That was not so very far from the truth. Do you know, until yesterday, I had never seen my father's rooms. Eighteen years of my life, eight of them spent living here in the DM, and never once had I visited my own father's quarters. How was the bed? Hard and unforgiving. Sounds like your father. <laughs> or mine. I can heartily recommend the couch in the future, if you want to trade. Your breakfast, Lord Mastrel. Should I arrange for another bed? No need. The days of mastral elitism are over. Duran, I want you to find ladders so that regular people can reach the upper floors. All right. Now then, is that breakfast for just you, Kenton, or is there enough for the both of us? Kenton... But Kenton's attention was on the courtyard. He had turned just in time to see Dryle dropping from the third floor room directly across from his own chambers. Dryal's sand glowed and swirled around him, and he was followed by three sandmasters with less impressive collections of ribbons. None of the four men wore sashes. Their robes were tied with black cords instead. It was a statement, obviously. They wore no sashes because they didn't accept Kenton's authority. Kenton? You look like you just swallowed a sandling. Do you remember Dryal? Tall, arrogant, and annoying? That's him. I seem to remember everyone thought he was the perfect Sandmaster. He was. Now he's just a traitor. A traitor? Because of what happened to the Sandmasters and the Kerala? Dryle isn't the nicest person in the Diem, but he was lucky to escape. Hmm. I wish to Sands I knew what had happened. It must have been the water. Water? I've heard a dozen rumors about this. What really happened out there? Half the people I asked claimed the Sand Lord himself destroyed you. Though why he would have waited this many years is beyond me. 
The other half claimed the Mastrels weren't really dead at all, but just hiding because of some mysterious Mastrelic scheme. Before the advancement ceremony begins, we pass around a ceremonial bowl of water. Everyone takes a sip. Then, the Lord Mastrel hands out sashes to the oldest year of Acolytes. Right after he did so, a group of Kurtzians attacked. The Mastrel should have been able to protect everyone, but something went wrong. Their sand just fizzled and died. The water sucked out of their bodies. There was no time to replenish their water, and, and they dehydrated, dropping like, like spent sand. Oh, my. They should not have dehydrated so quickly. It had to be the water. Dryle took the bowl first, but he didn't drink any water himself. He knew he was going to be on trial that day. In fact, my father revoked his Mastrel's sash. Dryle must have had some deal with the Kurtzians. He poisoned us, then they could attack, and cause the Mastrels to overextend and kill themselves. Wait a minute. How big was this bowl of water? Weren't there thousands of Sandmasters at your ceremony? We refilled it as it moved along. And the poison would have been gone after the first round. Maybe he only needed to poison the Mastrels. There was enough confusion caused by the deaths of the most powerful that the rest of us weren't able to defend ourselves. I know it's not a perfect theory, Eric. I felt dehydration too, but I'm certain the Dryl was involved. Not only didn't he drink, but he survived. Ah, yes. How could he have been so stupid as to live? Horrible mistake. Kenton frowned. Was his friend mocking him, or was he right to be skeptical? While Kenton pondered the matter, a boat was crossing the lake toward the DM. On board were three passengers, Chris, Bayan, and their guide, Antis, as well as the ferryman who navigated the currents with deft experience. DM up ahead! Why your lady would want to see those self-serving swelled heads is beyond me. You should tell her that. Thank you, ferryman. Realizing the ferryman had been looking at her and unable to understand the Daysider dialect, Chris asked for a translation. What did he say, Intis? That we were almost there. We'll be docking in a few moments. Chris frowned. The ferryman's words had seemed harsher than that somehow. A few moments later and the punt slowed, pulling up against the shore where a line of steps forged from compacted sand led up toward the towering domes of the DM. Watch yourselves! Here we are, the DM, home of the final profession. You know, I've never actually been inside before. Carefully, Duchess. Take my arm if you need to. Thank you, Bill. They ascended the steps and approached the grand gate-like opening of the DM. There was no gate. The entry was open. Furthermore, there seemed to be no one about. Oh. Are you sure that this is the place, Intis? It's awfully empty. They walked together, passing into the open courtyard with its sand floor. Oh. Chris began to walk forward. In the courtyard, a crowd of people stood talking, mostly in small groups. Some rushed toward other parts of the courtyard, where different groups stood placing ladders, and others seemed to be arguing about something. Chris frowned. They all wore robes, which was common enough on Dayside. The robes, however, weren't tan or gray like most she had seen. They were bright white. She'd only seen one robe bleached so colorless. Most noticeable of all was how young most of these people seemed. Is this a 
profession of teenagers? They had a recent setback in personnel, ma'am. You'll require the Lord Master. That's him. Ntis was indicating a man in hooded robes who stood with his back to them. Chris followed the gesture. There, standing in an authoritarian manner as he directed the movement of the different groups, was a man of average dayside height. Thank you. Duchess, I... Chris switched to Daysider, reciting one of the only sentences she had memorized overnight. Profession Master, I humbly come before you to request. Then someone moved, and she noticed the golden sash tied around his waist. At that moment, he turned absently, and Chris got her first look at his familiar face. It was Kenton. Oh, you! Kenton looked up with surprise. His eyes widened slightly for a moment, then he smiled. Hello, Chrysala. How have you been? I, you, Shala! Oh, you knew I was looking for, for, you! You lied to me! Well, you didn't ever actually ask me if I was a Sandmaster. How dare you! After I saved your life, after I let you travel in my presence, you... Liar! Oh, I don't have time for this right now. As he spoke, Kenton reached into his robe and pulled out what appeared to be nothing more than a handful of sand. Suddenly, the sand flashed brightly. <gasps> Chris froze, amazed, as the sand rose out of Kenton's hand, moving seemingly of its own volition. It bent in the air, snapping down to the ground. Two more snakes of glowing sand rose from the sand below, gathering around Kenton's feet. Then suddenly Kenton launched into the air, a trail of brilliant grains streaming below him. Kenton ascended gracefully through the air to land on a third-floor balcony. <gasps> That's... It's sand mastery. Why are you so surprised? Oh, how did he do that? Wires? I don't think so. It looks like we've found our sand mages, Duchess. A child's story, she had thought when she had told Kenton. But now... White Sand Volume 1 by Brandon Sanderson has been a graphic audio production. Copyright 2016 by Brandon Sanderson. Recorded with the permission of the author and Dragonsteel Entertainment, LLC. All rights reserved. Production copyright 2019, The Cutting Corporation. All rights reserved. Narrated by Terence Aselford. With performances by Alexander Strain as Kenton, Don Ursula as Chris, Jason B. McIntosh as Bayon, Frank Britton as Cinder, Yasmin Toison as Ace, Holly Vagley as Judge Helis, Peter Holdway as Praxton, Paul Reisman as Deeran, Kenyatta Rogers as Akron, Bradley Smith as Eric, and Eric Messner as Eloran. Also with Dwen Washington, Jacob Yeh, Michael Glenn, Zeke Alton, Lawrence Redmond, Tim Carlin, Joe Mallon, Jonathan Church, Matthew Pauley, Ken Jackson, Nanette Savard, Richard Rowan, Chris Gennebach, Joy Jones, Tony Nam, Scott McCormick, Thomas Keegan, Nick DePinto, Rose Elizabeth Supan, Mort Shelby, Steve Wanall, Chris Stinson, 
Alyssa Wilmoth, Nora Ashradi, Ren Casey, David Fernandez, David Zitney, Tia Shearer, Andy Brownstein, Michael John Casey, and Chris Davenport as Hoyd. The graphic novel direct-to-graphic audio adaptation by Rick Hoskins. Directed by Scott McCormick. Produced by Richard Rowan, Dwayne Beeman, and Matt Webb. Executive producers James Cutting, Mary Cutting, and Angie Cornett. Dialogue editing and graphic audio sound design by Justin Wirtz. Kenton and the Duchess Chrysala will return in White Sand Volume 2. Following the loss of most of his colleagues in a violent ambush, Kenton is now Lord Mastral of the few remaining Sandmasters. With the ruling council poised against him, the hot-headed Kenton must become a diplomat to have any hope of preventing the eradication of the Diem forever. However, there's another complication. Assassins are coming for him from all directions, and Kenton's only true ally is Chris, a visitor from the other side of the planet who has an agenda of her own to pursue. Keep listening for a preview of another exciting title in Graphic Audio. As I stood there with my sword in my hand, the blade dripping blood on the floor, I couldn't help but wonder if the blood belonged to my father. A new fantasy series in graphic audio from New York Times best-selling author Peter David. Sir Apropos of Nothing, an unlikely hero who can't help himself and, despite himself, always winds up doing the right thing, eventually. I am, by trade, neither writer nor historian. I am merely a master of fabrication, which I am told is all one requires to take up either of the aforementioned pursuits. I am also told that readers require something of an immediate nature, preferably something involving action, to draw them into the narrative. If nothing else, apparently, it gives the reader an idea of where the story is going to go. I can sympathize with that requirement. I've lived my life without the faintest clue as to where it was going, walking an extremely angled and treacherous path in order to arrive at no place that I actually started out to get to. In the grand tradition of the once and future king, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, and the Forest Kingdom saga, Graphic Audio presents a rogue, a rascal, a scoundrel, a cheat. And those are his good points. Lame of leg, but fast of wit, the only reason Apropos doesn't consider chivalry dead is because he's not yet through with it. I no longer care about right and wrong. All I know is what I wanted my entire life, to be a hero. I would hijack Destiny's plot, laugh in the face of the author, and write my own ending. I would turn it around. No longer would I be Apropos the disposable character. Instead, I would take over the narrative and drive it in a direction more to my liking. I would be more than apropos of nothing. Available now in Graphic Audio. Thanks for listening to this Graphic Audio production. Graphic Audio has over 1,000 titles and 100 series to choose from in high-quality download formats. If you'd like to listen to an entire series, you can now conveniently purchase a download series set from graphicaudio.net. At graphicaudio.net, you can also earn loyalty rewards points, redeemable towards future online purchases. 
You can stream or get full downloads directly to your mobile phone or tablet with our newly updated Graphic Audio Access app, available on all Android and Apple devices. Listen to a movie in your mind, on the go, anytime, anywhere. For those of you who are new to Graphic Audio, check out our Graphic Audio Streams subscription service, where you can choose from four different genres. Each plan features two Graphic Audio titles per month to listen to through our Graphic Audio Access app. At the beginning of every month, the previous featured titles will be automatically removed and replaced by the new featured titles. It's an economical way to check out and sample titles from our various series in Graphic Audio starting at only $4.99 per month. And be sure to listen to our newly reformatted Graphic Audio Story Podcast, GASP. Please subscribe, give us a five-star review, and recommend us to your friends and family. You can get GASP in the free Graphic Audio Access app or subscribe to GASP through Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and RSS feeds. Sign up for our email newsletter for the latest updates and new releases, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Twitter or Instagram. Call 1-800-670-5220 or visit www.graphicaudio.net.